This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Nudist Camp by Ori Hitt. It's read by Evan Lampe. It runs 4 hours 21 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Nudist Camp by Ori Hitt. Published in 1957 by the Universal Publishing and Distribution Corporation under the Beacon Book label. The cover says... They worship nature in the raw. The back of the cover, the back cover says, Double Exposure. Della knew what it was to worship nature. After all, where she came from, it was considered quite proper to swim or sunbathe unclad. She decided to welcome this strange sect that wanted to camp on her property, thought she might even join in the fun and games. It was all so lovely, so innocent, until voluptuous Ada Holden, a girl completely without scruple, began to love nature a little too passionately. Under such circumstances, few men could withstand deliberate temptation, certainly not Ricky, Della's husband. It was then Della realized that a she-devil had entered paradise. She fought back with the only weapon she had, her own glorious body. Chapter 1 Della stepped out of the shower, water dripping from her skin and forming tiny pools on the pink tile. A soft knock sounded on the bathroom door. Della rubbed herself with a heavy towel. I'll be out in a moment. Ricky, she thought. No, not Ricky. Ricky wouldn't be guilty of coming home so early, and even if he did, he wouldn't knock on the door. He'd try to batter a hole in it with his foot. Oh, that's all right, Mrs. Farland. It's just me, Jeannie. I only wanted... I said I'd be right out, didn't I? There was a brief silence. Yes, Mrs. Farland, Jenny finally said. I'll wait. Della sighed and pulled the red bathing cap from her head. There was no doubt about what Jenny wanted. Permission to go to town, of course. She was getting pretty sick of Jenny running off every night. If the poor thing needed a man so badly, why didn't she pick on Jack, the gardener? He was only in his forties and strong enough for anything. Or one of those farmer boys, especially that older one down the road. Della sighed again. Maybe... Jeannie had found something in the town that she liked. She certainly talked enough about her Sammy. Della finished drying and tossed away the towel. Then she got another towel from over the sink and worked it down across the mirror on the door. Ricky probably was the most useless husband outside a cemetery, but there was one thing Della had to admit. He sure knew as hell how to build a house for his wife. Full-length mirrors. That's what a girl needed. Full-length mirrors everywhere so that a girl could take a quick inventory of her assets whenever she pleased. Assets which her husband claimed were frozen tighter than American dollars on deposit in the Bank of Iceland. Della Farland stepped away a little from the mirror and smiled at what she saw. 22, she thought, or was it 23? No, 22. For heaven's sake, what's the matter with her? Almost jumping a year like that. Maybe Ricky was right. Maybe her nerves were on edge. And maybe it wasn't living up here in the mountains that was doing it. Maybe, after all, there was something to what Ricky said. That they shouldn't have separate rooms. To hell with them, she thought. To hell with Ricky Farland. A wedding ring didn't give him the right to sleep with her after he'd crawl over half the willing flesh in North Landing. She threw back her head and laughed. 
She'd driven him to it, he had said. I'm not a machine, he had told her one night, trying to push past the door. She had felt his eyes going down over her negligee, pulling it off her body. Della, I'm only human. You don't know what you do to a man. She looked at herself in the mirror and smiled. She knew well enough what she did to a man. She had known it as a young girl in Iceland, even before she had come to the States and taken that two years of school on an exchange scholarship. But she'd been even more aware of it by the time she had gone back, and if there had been any doubts in her mind, these had soon been dispelled by the Americans who worked at Keflavik, the big airbase. She had, she felt, bargained well. Ricky had given her a beautiful home. He kept her bank account above the $5,000 mark, and he made love to her every chance she gave him. A girl, she supposed, could hardly ask for more. The face that looked back at her from the mirror was not in any sense a cosmetic counter face. Della's lips were naturally full and dark, and the bright red of her cheeks had been inherited from her father, an Icelander. Her sea-blue eyes and soft golden hair were endowments from her mother, who had come to the island as a girl from the Danish mainland. Her glance moved from her face down to her full, ripe lines for her body. Her breasts were high and pointed, her nipples fiery red and swollen. You ought to wear a brassiere, Ricky had told her once. A guy with only half a sight can see through that blouse. That had been during her second week in the States, almost a year before, when they had gone to dance down at the landing. I'm sorry, she had said. I didn't realize. After that, whenever she had gone out, she had worn a bra. But she hadn't been able to get used to the things. She wondered, too, still looking into the mirror, how American women could get themselves into those tight little girdles. Why... She was only 24 inches around the middle, and she felt like somebody was strangling her if she had to put one on. The way some women dressed, they could pass themselves off for statues in the park. They were so stiffened up. Miss Farland, Jeannie said from the other side of the door. Please, Miss Farland, Mr. Abbott came with the eggs, and he said if I hurried, I could... Oh, all right. Della's rounded hips and long, slim legs flashed in the mirror as she went to the door and jerked it open. What is it you want? The girl's eyes focused on the nude figure before her and her mouth widened. I'd like to go to the landing tonight, Jeannie said. Her voice was desperate. I I, I have to go, Mrs. Farland. Jeannie was in her early 20s, had straight black hair and unreadable black eyes. Her round face was always sad and worn, as if she were constantly chasing something uphill. The lines of her body, however, even under the ill-fitting green uniform, were attractive and generous. You've been going to town almost every night, Della reminded the girl. When I hired you, the arrangement was for two nights off a week. Do you remember that? Jeannie looked at the floor. Yes, Miss Farland. That's because I don't like to be alone, Jenny. And with Mr. Farland away so much, I have to depend on you. Tears filled Jenny's eyes. I know all that, Miss Farland, but, well, just tonight. Oh, Miss Farland, I have to get down to the landing tonight. I honest have to. Della came out of the bedroom and closed the bathroom door. She crossed to the dresser and picked up a cigarette. She knew without looking that Jenny's face was flushed a bright red. She always seemed to embarrass Jenny when she walked around without her clothes on. She smiled and lit the cigarette, blowing the smoke at her reflection in the mirror. Tell me, Della said, turning slowly, what's your trouble, Jenny? This boy you've been seeing... This, what's his name? 
Sammy, Jenny said solemnly. You're in love with him? Jenny shook her head, her eyes dull and distant. Then he's in love with you. Jenny started to cry silently and nodded her head. I thought so, Della said, crushing the cigarette into the ashtray. She walked towards the girl. You're going to have a baby, is that it, Jenny? You're going to have a baby? For an answer, the girl let out a little frightened cry and stumbled towards the door. Della grabbed her by the shoulders. I asked you a question. Let me go, the girl pleaded. Please. You don't have to be afraid, Della said, her voice suddenly gentle. If that is what you want, I'll help you, Jenny. I'll do everything I can. She felt the tentness go out of Jenny's shoulders. Saw a quick smile as the girl swung around, choking against the tears. You will, Miss Farland? Of course. Jenny's eyes were huge and grateful. You'll help me with Sammy, Mrs. Farland? You honestly will? I don't know about Sammy, Della said. I'll talk to him if that's what you mean. But you don't have to worry about a place to stay or a job. You can stay right here, Jenny. Just don't worry. You have to take care of yourself now, you know. Jenny nodded and moved to the door. It's all right, then, if I go down to the landing with Mr. Abbott? Certainly, Jenny. Thank you. At the doorway, the girl hesitated, looking scared again. Then suddenly the words came out in a rush. You aren't what they said at all, Mrs. Farland. You aren't what I thought either. You aren't hard and cruel. You're good, nice. I don't care if some people do think you're mean to Mr. Farland. I think you're, you're a lady. Della turned back to the mirror, smiling, listening to the pound of Jenny's heels going down the rear stairs to the kitchen. Hell, she thought, I'm no lady. I'm just an Icelander who knows how to treat people when they get into a jam. In Della's native country, there are no bastards. One baby was as good as another, whether the father admitted to him or not. It wasn't a question of being a lady. It was, in Della's opinion, simply a matter of treating trouble in the only way it could be treated. She sat down at the vanity table and examined her face in the mirror. She had enough of her own problems with Ricky these days, in spite of the beautiful face she saw in the mirror. And she couldn't waste all night thinking about Jenny. Besides, Ricky had called on the phone a few minutes before she'd gone into the shower and had said he would be home shortly, that he wanted to talk to her as soon as he could. She wondered, idly, whether he would be drunk or sober. The phone rang, just as she was about to slip dutifully into a brassiere, the black net thing that let the skin show through, and she answered it. Hi, Della, Sally Berenger breathed. Is Ricky in yet? Da bitch, Della thought. When would she wake up to the fact that she had lost him, that Ricky was married just as solidly as though his feet was set in concrete? Or was Sally like the rest of the girls Ricky knew, trading something that they had for anything that money could buy them? No, Della decided. Sally wouldn't be like that. Sally was a doctor's daughter. She was pretty and smart, and she would only play for keeps. In a way, Della supposed, that was the thing that bothered her. Maybe Sally was still playing for keeps. You still there, Della? Yes. I was asking about Ricky. He isn't home yet. Oh, darn. Anything I can do? Well, yes. Would you give him a message? Ask him to call Roger Adams down at the landing. And put in a good word for me, would you, Della? I got a terrific chance with them for a wonderful job, and Ricky's word might help. I mentioned Ricky to Mr. Adams, and he seemed like Ricky and... All right, Della said impatiently. I'll do it. When and if he gets home, she picked up a powder puff and ran it lazily across her jutting breasts. 
I'm just surprised you're out job hunting, Sally. You folks have all the money in the world. Besides, I thought you and that young fellow, the one who does advertising, would make a match of it. You mean Ed Loring? Yes. Oh, heavens. He can't even support himself, Della. You know how he is with those advertising fellows. They get 15% and half the time that 15% is figured on nothing. So please ask Risky, Ricky to give Mr. Adams a buzz, would you? I promise. And maybe I'll stop around later this evening. Don't break your back doing it, Della thought, hanging up. She guessed she could get through on one Saturday night without having Sally on hand to fall all over Ricky every chance she got. Saturday night. Saturday night at Raven's Nest on Lake Sorrow. Della went to the bedroom window and pulled aside the curtains. Slightly below and to the right of the long, rolling green lawn lay the lake, its glass-like surface reflecting the red fire of the late June sun. Lake Sorrow, the natives called it now, but before, a long time ago, an Indian name for it had been the Lake of Tears. Della sighed. Closing the curtain, she went over to the bed. She sat down, stretching her long legs, looking at them. They were nice legs, smooth and tan, lithe, soft legs meant for a man. She laughed again and patted her white stomach. She wished that her stomach and breasts weren't so white, that she could get tanned all over. In Iceland, where she had been brought up, men and women lay in the sun without any clothes on, and thought nothing of it. And they went swimming together without wearing bathing suits. There was nothing irregular about it. That was the way they lived. She lay back on the bed, still thinking about it. There was no prudery in Iceland, not like there was here in the States. If you didn't know what it was all about, and you wanted to take a look, you took a look. It was like having to go to the bathroom when you were riding on a bus. In the States, you gritted your teeth and hoped the God, to God the driver wouldn't hit a hard bump. In Iceland, you simply asked the driver to stop, got out, walked around the back of the bus, and took care of things. Della broke out of her reverie. She stepped into a pair of brief net panties, a half slip of the same material, and then on impulse cast the brassiere aside. For a dress, she chose a deep yellow cotton with plunging neckline, and when she finally glanced at herself in the mirror, she decided that it had been a good selection. She didn't know why Ricky thought the neckline too low. All a person could see was a little of her cleft and the rising mounds on either side, but, of course, she didn't bend forward and examine the dress the way Ricky had examined it. Saturday night, she thought again. Saturday night, and she ought to go down to the kitchen and make sure that Jenny had set out the picnic stuff. But she wouldn't. She didn't give a darn. She was getting sick and tired of this every Saturday night rumpus. Nothing like eating out in the open, Ricky would say. Indeed, Della thought there was nothing like it. Ricky would be half drunk, and he'd want to do the cooking and the hamburgers and the steaks would either fall into the fire or get wiped across the ground before they were eaten. Nobody would eat much anyways. But they would drink a lot, and maybe Ricky's sister, Gladys Anderson, would get sick on the beer and the liquor, and her husband, a doctor, would say that the food had been left out in the heat, and that it was spoiled. And that Sally Berginger would show up. I just happened to be passing, and she'd make it her business to hang around Lake Ricky and the fire. Of course, the road up to Raven's Nest was a dead-end affair, but that didn't matter. Sally was just going by. Sometimes she brought somebody with her, and they were usually real drips, except for the one fellow, that Ed Loring, and he had been all right. Dark hair and dark eyes and long and lean, he'd asked Della to dance with him. She hadn't wanted to, not really, but Ricky had been getting impossible. I married an Icelander, and I can't get her thawed out, but... And she accepted Ed Loring's suggestion. 
He was a good dancer, moving easily and not holding her too close at once. And when his lips had accidentally brushed her forehead, she had felt different. Almost free. You have a beautiful command of English, he had told her. One would never guess that you had been born in a foreign country. Some day, she had said, English will be more universal in Iceland than Danish. You see, much of the foreign trade is carried on with the United States, and there are Americans on the island all the time. Most all of us learn it, and for some reason we're able to learn it without an accent. A few, like myself, come to the States to finish our education in one of those colleges. Later that night, after everyone had gone, Ricky had followed her to her room. Let me in, doll. Not tonight, Ricky. He had kicked at the locked door, sending crashing sounds all through the house. What the hell's the matter with you, Della? Silently, she had undressed and crawled into bed, wishing that he wouldn't act like that. Damned woman! Ricky had stormed, still kicking at the door. He said more. He called other names, but she hadn't listened to him. Her pillow had gone wet with tears, just as it had grown wet with her tears on other nights. Ricky, she had told him once during the early days of their marriage, don't laugh at me, Ricky, but I'm scared. Scared of what, baby? My mother's dead and my father's dead. Yes? And there's just the two of us, Ricky, and I don't have anyone else. Nobody. No one at all. He had laughed at her then, and she hadn't confided in him any more. Hadn't ever told him how she worried over his constant drinking, or how frightened she was to be so alone in a strange country. She had wanted to explain how important it was for her to have a baby. Not someone to cling to her, but someone she could cling to, only she hadn't been able to do a very good job of it. Every time she mentioned it to him, at first he'd laugh at her, and want to know why she wanted to ruin her swell figure getting big with a kid. Hell, you don't want to get yourself fixed up like that, baby. We're young and the world's brand new. Let's have fun. Kids will come later. Well, don't call me baby then. Why not? I don't like it. Save it for a real child. To hell with you then. You think you're going to jump on me every time I open my mouth just because I don't see eye to eye with you on this? You're my wife, baby, and I'll call you any name I want you. You hear me? You can either like it, or you can go back to Iceland and marry some fish-head-eating Mojack. Maybe you'd like that better, huh, baby? Maybe you'd like that better than a $35,000 house and a dame to pick up the dust after you. That had been their first and most serious argument. She had been left terrified and speechless by it. And when Ricky had struck her across the mouth with the flat of his hand, she had fled from their bedroom, and she had never gone back. She'd taken the room at the end of the hall, hoping it was for just one night or a week at the most. Okay, save it, Ricky had told her one evening. You think you're any different from the rest of the dames? You think a guy can't relax with some classy company whenever he feels like it? I'm sorry, Ricky. Forgive me. She had led him into her room that night, and afterwards she had felt worse than a common prostitute. He'd been drinking heavily and had said things to her that no man had ever said before. Later, when she heard him sick in the bathroom, and then she had been sick, and she hadn't let him into the room again for a month. It had gotten worse, she thought now, much worse. Sometimes she wished that Ricky's father hadn't left him all that money, that Ricky had to go out to work and earn a living. The seemingly limitless funds bought new cars and fine clothes and even finer women. Sometimes when Ricky was staying away overnight, either at the landing or at Port Jervis, he would call her on the phone, and in the background, 
she would hear a girl's laughter, mocking laughter, laughing for Ricky at a price. She walked around the bedroom, thinking about it. Things couldn't go on this way, not forever. They had to end sometime, somewhere, somehow. It wasn't a matter of love anymore. It was a matter of survival. Either Ricky would destroy her or she would destroy Ricky. It was as simple as that. Chapter 2 She heard Ricky drive up at about 7 and park the long green caddy in the rear of the house. The sounds of a man's muffled curse and a woman's high-pitched laughter came through the open window. Della sighed and stretched out luxuriously to the wide, soft bed. Her luck was getting worse all the time. Ricky's sister and brother-in-law had driven out with him. The kitchen screen slammed, and after a few moments, she heard Ricky coming up the stairs. Hey, he yelled. Where's Jenny? She went down to the landing. Not a thing is ready, he complained. How come? I don't know, Della told him. Jenny must have forgotten. Ricky came and stood in the doorway. He had a long, powerful body with a narrow waist and wide shoulders. He grinned at her and pushed his tousled brown hair back from his forehead. The dutiful housewife, Ricky observed, flat on her back in the bed. Della sat up. Let's not fight, Della suggested. Let's try to be human beings for one night. Sure. He came into the room still looking at her. Human beings, he said. That's for me. He moved fast, grabbing her by the arm. He pushed the arm behind her, twisting it, and she arched her back. He held her that way, smiling down in her face. You've got a good idea, baby. Let's get human. She tried to pull free, but he held her fast. You ape, she told him. Let me go. He shook his head. I said I wanted to talk to you, didn't I? Well, this is what I wanted to tell you. I'm getting out of here tomorrow. He paused and then laughed as bewilderment filled her eyes. Oh, it's just for the week, baby. Just for a week. She wished that she would take his hands from her. I see, she said. Don't you want to know where I'm going? His lips brushed her mouth. Or don't you give a damn? If you care to tell me. Fishing. He increased the pressure on her arm, and she bent forward, backward over the bed. Up to Roscoe, on the beaver kill. Best trout stream in the world. I'm going to take a room, forget about the booze, and fish for a week. His free hand went to her hair, grabbed it, and jerked her head back. Kiss me, baby. She tried to shake her hand free, but her scalp felt as though a thousand hot needles were being shoved into it. You don't have to hurt me, Ricky, she whispered. You don't have to do that. He let go of her hair and cradled the back of her head in the palm of his hand. All you have to do is show a little wifely affection and you won't have any trouble at all. She felt her head being driven forward, and then his mouth was down there on her lips, wet and wide, his tongue slamming against her teeth. He released her arm, and his hand went down to the small of her back, crushing up against her. You've been driving me nuts, he breathed. She struggled for a moment and then stopped. He was too strong for her. You don't have to force a kiss, Della said. You could ask me nicely. And have you tell me to go to hell? Try it. All right. He released her, standing there with his face flushed and perspiring. So I'm asking, baby, a nice, long, sweet kiss. Your sister's waiting downstairs. To hell with her, Ricky said. So what if she and that jerky husband of hers are waiting? 
They aren't going anywhere, and they got all night to get there. She jumped up and attempted to run around him to get away, but again he caught her. You haven't got the guts to say it, baby. He shoved her down on the bed, holding her there. She kicked him. Her eyes were cloudy and wild. You're my wife, he said. The tears were in her voice. Don't, Ricky. She closed her eyes, not wanting to look at him, not wanting to see him, hoping that the humiliation of his moment would die in the darkness. He swore at her and jerked savagely at the yellow dress, ripping it from top to bottom. Her flesh spilled into the open, heaving. I'll give you credit, Ricky told her. You sure are stacked. I hate you, Della said miserably. I hate you, Ricky Farland. His mouth covered her lips. Kiss me, baby. Kiss me. She lay beside him on the bed, her lips unresponsive, her body limp. Bitterly, she endured the desires of her husband. Later, she reached up and shoved his head away. You had your fun, she said in disgust. Get up. I never worked so hard in my life, Ricky sighed. Della walked to the dresser and stood there watching him in the mirror. I hate you, she said, and picked up the comb. You'll hate me more when I get back, he assured her. I'm going to have news for you, baby. She tossed her blonde head contemptuously. See you downstairs, Ricky said, and left the room. She went over to the closet and got into another cotton dress, a crisp white one. She glanced into the mirror again, decided that her hair was possible, and followed Ricky downstairs. Hell of a note! He greeted her in the kitchen. Nothing ready. She got the hamburger out of the refrigerator and dropped it into the basket. Next, she took the buns from the cabinet and the silverware from one of the drawers and put these in with the hamburgers. You can bring the butter and the booze, she told him, picking up the basket. She started for the door and he stepped in front of her. Look, he said, about what just happened. You got what you're after, she reminded him. Let's skip it. She walked past him and out of the house. The smoke from the charcoal fire filled the air and the night was clear and hot. She went around the building and over towards the fireplace. Damn Ricky, she thought. Why did he have to go and do a thing like that? Damn him and she'd make him pay. Someday he'd pay big for taking her that way and making her feel like a $2 whore. Hi, Gladys Anderson said. What kept you so long? I was flat on my back, Della replied, putting the basket on the table. Ricky's sister was a tall girl with a thin face and an unimportant body. Her one claim to beauty was a dimple in the middle of her chin. It's uh, hot enough to put anyone on his back, Dr. Anderson said, straightening up from the fire. Paul Anderson looked something like his wife, tall and thin-faced and bent in a slight, slight sloop. God, Gladys sighed, looking at the basket. Hamburgers? Why doesn't somebody invent something else to eat? There's steak inside, Della said, and pork chops. But you'll have to help yourself. Jenny's out. I wouldn't want to eat pork fixed this way, Paul Anderson said. You know, if pork isn't cooked enough, why... Oh, shut up, his wife said without feeling. She looked towards the house. Where are Ricky and the drinks? God almighty, it's a good thing he doesn't have to earn a living waiting on tables. Paul Anderson scowled at his wife. I wish you wouldn't talk like that, he said. I don't know what's gotten into you these days, Gladys. His wife wheeled on him angrily. Well, I'll tell you what's the matter with me, she stormed. You want to know? So I'll tell you. Gladys? You know where I was all afternoon? Plain Bridge, her husband said lamely. And with whom? The choir club? 
That's right, Gladys sneered. The choir club. A bunch of phonies if I ever saw any. And you know why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you wanted me to. Because you said I should go to affairs like that, so the old ripes will come to you when they get a pain in their can. And another thing. Gladys? Don't you Gladys me, she yelled. I'm getting sick of it, do you hear? Just because you think it isn't right to live off my money and you want to be a lousy doctor, there's no reason for me to spend half my life playing stick in the mud with a bunch of old bags. All right, Gladys. Her husband turned away, went over to the fire and stirred it. Forget it. I'm sorry I imposed on you. Old bags, Gladys insisted. The only thing any of them are suffering from is lack of brains. Della placed the silverware on the table, but left the rolls covered. A fly stepped unhappily at the cellophane. Did I hear sounds of a rumpus? Ricky wanted to know, arriving with a tub of ice packed around cans of beer. Hamburgers rested precariously on top of the ice. Sounded like the Fighting Andersons to me. It was, Paul Anderson admitted. He grinned at his wife. She won again. Well, don't hold anything back, Ricky said, placing the tub on the end of the table. You can scream all you want to out here. Nobody will bother you. The night isn't over, his sister said, opening a can of beer. She lifted it and drank solely. Golly, that's good. She slapped her brother on the arm. Knock me out, kid. Ricky punched a hole in the can and left it aloft. To the drunken farlands, he proclaimed. Long may they stagger. Della made up the hamburgers and placed them on the rack. The others sat on the ground near the fire, and the doctor was starting on his second can of beer. After a while, they would eat, and then they would drink some more, either beer or liquor from the house, and by midnight, the place would be a mess. Oh, I must tell you, Della remembered suddenly. Sally phoned Ricky, wanted you to call on Mr. Adams about some job she's trying to get. That idiot, Ricky said, getting up. There's only one kind of job he'd want to give her. The doctor, now mellowed by the beer, snickered. Yes, who would it, he wanted to know. Men, Gladys said, glancing at Della. They all got their mind between their legs. I'll call her, Ricky said, starting for the house. Be right back. That must be why you call me feeble-minded, the doctor said to his wife. Oh, shut up, Gladys told him dispassionately. The night shadow slid in across the lake, and in the distance a loon cried. From the direction of Port Jervis could be heard the sounds of an airy freight train hammering its way through the mountains. Beer is nice and cold, Della said, opening a can. Never saw you drink so much, Paul Anderson observed. Della smiled. I can't. Icelanders are like the American Indians when it comes to drinking. We just go wild, the doctor leaned forward, squinting. How wild, he wanted to know. They all laughed. Ricky, returning, opened a can of beer and sat down next to Paul Anderson. Della took a long drink of her beer. Sally's coming up later, Ricky said, with that lowering fellow. Hell, I said to her, I don't know why you want to go and get a job. You got plenty of money. You know what she said to me? She said, I have to get a job because I can't find anything to do any other way. Isn't that rich? Anderson said, I wish I was just half of her old man's practice. That's what I wish. So do I, his wife agreed. Well, I guess it takes a while to get one built up, Anderson said. The guy's got to keep plugging year after year. We might as well eat, Della said. No point in waiting for Sally. You know it, Anderson said. That Loring fellow sounded like a bushman to me. 
The two may never get here. Not Sally, Ricky said. She's not that kind. Well, you ought to know, his sister said. You were engaged to her once, and you probably made enough tries at it. They sat down at the table and pawned through the food. Just as they were finishing, a car drove in, its headlights washing across them. Where's this Loring from? Gladys said. Nobody knows, Ricky told her. Very, very funny, brother. The man who came towards them was tall and dark and had lean hips. Della could remember the hard feel of his body, the sure touch of his hands. She wondered, rather hopefully, if he might want to dance again. Hello, you nice people, Ed Loring said. The girl with them was short and dark and wore white shorts in decided contrast to her brown legs. Her white halter was amply filled. Hello, she said. She had a pleasant voice, smooth and soft, and Della was forced to admit that Sally Berenger also had more than her share of poise. Ricky, she said, turning her attention to him. You got me all upset, Hung. What's this you said about Mr. Adams? He's a wolf. Ricky, he's old enough to be my father. Then he's an old wolf. I don't believe it. Then to Ed Lorraine. A tall, cool one, Ed. Coming up? The ice rattled in the tub. How about you, Mrs. Farland? Well, all right. She seldom drank anything, but Ricky was going to be away for a week, and she felt revealed, relieved about that. She had been wanting to have Helga Johnstoder come up from Newark for a few days, and this might be a good opportunity. She hadn't invited Helga while Ricky was home, because Ricky would only insult her about Iceland, and Helga wasn't a girl to kid around with much. Well, who wants to work anyways, Sally was saying, so I won't get my social security when I'm 65. Anderson opened several cans of beer, passing them around. Hey, Della, Ricky said. You're going to get crocked like you never crocked before. No, I won't. She's celebrating my departure, Ricky told everybody. Maybe she's got a lover who will take my place. Or a lover who already took it, Sally suggested. There was a moment's silence, broken only by the peepers along the lake. I'll read you a letter from home, Della told her solely. That's the first crack you've ever made like that, and it had better be the last. In case you'd like to know, this so-called iceberg has plenty of fire inside. Somebody laughed, but she couldn't tell who. She thought it might be Ed Loring. And she thought, too, though she hadn't been sure of it, that Loring's eyes had hardly left her since its arrival. I've just been briefed on an important point, Ricky said. My wife has a temper. Gladys pushed her beer cans aside and tactfully stood up. Hell, it's hot, she said. Who's for swimming? You just ate, Ricky reminded her. You're supposed to drink all the beer and relax for an hour. Ask the dough. You'll die when your time comes, not before, Anderson said, joining his wife. Besides, water is the cheapest way of doing away with yourself. There are no expenses. A gruesome bunch, Sally Berenger stated. But I'll join you anyways. Can I swim in my shorts? You could swim in nothing, Ricky said. He glanced at Della. That's the way they do it in Iceland, isn't it? Quite often. You ever? Anderson wanted to know. Of course. With men? Men and women. I'm taking the next plane out, swore Anderson. You coming, Della? asked Ricky, or staying? Staying. Loring? Not me, Ed Loring said. I wouldn't swim in the dark if you paid me diver's wages. Well then, that leaves you, Sally, Ricky said. You won't let me down, will you? Della saw 
her hand find Ricky's in the shadows. I'll never let you down, she said, and you know it. After they had gone, Della began cleaning up the table. Loring stood nearby watching her. Here, help me, he said, as he reached for the tub. They'll want more, Della told him. I was just going to fill it. Some cruel, Loring observed as they walked towards the house. Yes. I didn't mean anything disrespectful. No, but they're a wild bunch. That Behringer girl seems pretty steady. They entered the kitchen, and Della flipped on the light. Della put the silverware in the sink, and then showed Loring where the ice-making machine was, over in the corner past the deep-freeze unit. The muscles on Loring's arm rippled as he scooped out the ice and filled the tub. We won't bother with the beer, Della told him. That's down in the cellar, and Ricky will have to get it. Probably, they won't want any more beer anyways. Liquor? She nodded. I don't know how you stand it, he said. They went outside, returning to the picnic area. Lorraine had put a tub of ice on the end of the table and lit a cigarette. There's a couple of cold cans left. Want one? She felt unusually hot, the night closing in around her. She guessed it was the beer, because beer always made her feel this way, hot and lazy. All right, Della said. No sense letting it go to waste. You know, you speak our language very well, Mrs. Farland. I'd rather you called me Della. Okay, Della. I had two years of college in the States, she explained, inhaling the smoke. I won it in school in the contest. And of course, English is taught in the schools in Iceland. Then, too, there were many soldiers and civilians stationed at the airport at Klafalik. You couldn't help learning it. That's where you met your husband? Yes. She took her beer over to the glider swing and sat down. It was her favorite spot to sit in the evening because she could watch the moon coming up over the lake and she could hear the noises of the night all around her. Mind if I join you? Lorraine sat down beside her and the spring sagged. Sounds like they're having quite a ball down there, he said. Shouts and laughter floated up from the lake, followed by a tremendous splash. One thing, Della said, they're all very good swimmers. They sat silently for a few moments, smoking and drinking their beer. She felt Lorraine's arm close to her, brushing against her every time he lifted the cans to her, his mouth. Iceland must be quite the place, he said finally. I've never been there, but I've read about it. Was your husband in the service when you met him? No, he came up there with his father's construction company, but the job was called off. She remembered the first time she had met Ricky in front of the Macy Mess Hall in the airport. He had been standing in the rain dripping wet and had asked her about the bus schedule to the hotel. She told him that a bus ought to be along almost any minute and since that he was waiting for the transportation to the hotel, they stood there talking. He explained that he had just arrived from the States the night before, that the food was better than he had expected and that Iceland boasted the wettest rains of any place he'd ever been in. Finally, when the bus appeared, Ricky tried to get on in from the wrong side. In Iceland, he boarded a bus from the left side and they sat together and laughed about it all the way to the hotel. What kind of work does your husband do now, Della? She hated to tell him. She always hated to answer that question. Nothing. That's what Ricky did. Absolutely nothing. His father died shortly before his return to the States, leaving half of his cash and all of his construction company to Ricky. Della still couldn't recall the tears in, his eye, in the eyes of the men who had served the company so long and so well when Ricky had informed them that he didn't plan to continue. She doesn't do anything, she replied. Ricky is retired. Ed Loring whistled and leaned back. 
Boy, he exclaimed, it must be great to have that kind of money. Della didn't know how much money her husband had. Once in Iceland, he had talked about half a million dollars, but that had been the night they had visited his hut and he'd been drinking. That had also been the night when she had made it very clear to Ricky that he would never know what she was like until he put a wedding band on her finger. For a long time after that, she had thought Ricky was in love with him. But now, slightly more than a year later, she felt that he had only been lonely. Money isn't everything, Della told Ed Loring. You have to have some of it, but it isn't everything. You sound depressed. Maybe I am. Don't mind me, he said. I asked too damn many questions. But I'm new here, and I'm trying to find my way around. Oh, I thought you were a native. I don't know why, but I did. I'm from Upper New York. My sister went to college with Sally, and that's how come I'm tied up with her. Nothing serious. She's just showing me around. Della laughed and fell back against the cushions. She had been right about the beer. It made her feel hot and lazy and completely relaxed. And here I was thinking this was a big romance, she murmured. How wrong can I be? Ed Lorraine smiled and tossed his cigarette into the grass. Look, he said, moving closer to Della, I might as well be honest about it. I came to North Landing for just one purpose. Do you know what that is? No. Well, I've been here about two weeks. Sally has been nice enough to drag me over half the countryside, introduce me to a lot of people. I think I know now enough about North Landing and Port Jervis and the rest of this area to make my move and either close a deal with someone or catch the next train out. I'm sorry, Della said. I don't follow you. You wouldn't be expected to, Ed Lorraine's face came closer. She could see a slow smile in his white teeth. She could also feel his arms slide gently across her shoulders. But of all the people I've met here, Della, you're the one who looks like a prospect. Prospect? Yes. Please, she said, trying to move away from his arm. My husband will be back soon. Not from the sound he's making down there, he won't. Laughter and whistles and shouts filled the night. Ed Loring's arm tightened. Look, he went on quickly. You're a beautiful girl and all that. And I'm not here looking for romance. I'm a businessman trying to find someone who has a a select location, very private like yours, who happens to be interested in picking up a little money. She relaxed, staring at him. She didn't know whether to feel glad or sorry about his claim that his approach wasn't a personal one. There was something about the admiration of a handsome man that any girl liked, married or not. I don't need any money, she told Ed Loring. We'll talk about that later. All right. She thought about the balance of her checking account, and she wanted to laugh. She did. It isn't very funny. My apology, Mr. Loring. Call me Ed. All right, Ed. You're from Iceland. His voice was now earnest. Right? Right. And some of your customs up there are different from ours. Some of them, yes. Take men and women, for instance. They go swimming together up there, and they don't wear any suits. Am I correct? In some pools, they don't. In some, they do. He was quiet for a moment. Have you ever gone in swimming where they wore no suits? Of course. And did you feel ashamed? About what? His eyes moved over her smiling. That was a silly question. You haven't got anything to be ashamed of. What I meant is, did you think it wrong? Not if people wanted to do it. His head was closer now. Not if they wanted to do it in Iceland or here? Della smiled at him. Well, I'm not going to take off my clothes and go swimming with you, Ed. Oh, hell. He sounded almost angry. I didn't mean that. I'm just talking in general terms. 
See, some people want to do things like that in the States, not just swimming. They believe in going nude for their health. Know what I'm driving at? She nodded. In Iceland, great stress was laid upon the values of the rays of the sun. She remembered her father telling her as a child how the Icelanders had in times gone by began the process of drying cod in the sun. At the start, it hadn't been because the fish could be cured that way, but due to the belief that some of the health-giving emanations of the sun would be captured and imprisoned in the flesh. There's a lot of good in the sun, Delva admitted. Several months of the year, we hardly ever see the sun in Iceland. There's a great deal of tuberculosis there, and very few Icelanders have good teeth. And a, an American up there, well, if an American cuts himself, no matter how slightly, it usually takes weeks and weeks for him to heal. I've heard it's because of the lack of sun. There's no doubt about it, Ed assured her. And another thing, how many, well, sex crimes do you have in Iceland? Della told him she couldn't remember a single one committed by an Icelandic male. There had been two, however, involving Americans from the airbase. Right. And there's also the matter of juvenile delinquency, he said. There's hardly any record of delinquency or sex crimes among the people who practice nudism. Nudism? Yes. He took his arm away from her, fumbled for another cigarette, and offered her one. The match came up to life, and they both lit at the same time. I might as well be frank about it, Della. I'm not an advertising man. I said I was... Was, but only because that seemed to be the best way to get Sally to take me around. Actually, I'm employed by a nudist camp in South Jersey, a camp that wants to move farther north. There are several places around my house in Upper New York, but they wouldn't be any good. Al Smith thought of that. Who's Al Smith? He used to be governor of New York. It was during his time that they passed a law outlawing nudism within the state. That doesn't seem very fair. As long as people keep to themselves and don't bother others, I don't see what's wrong with it. I'm glad to hear you talk that way, Ed said. Well, that's the way I feel about it. But some legislators don't. However, here in New Jersey, it's okay to operate a nudist camp. Though you have to be careful about it. You have to be sure that you don't annoy other people. That's why it's so hard to find a place in which to locate. Also, there are lots of good spots that won't let you in. Either the people who own the land think you're crazy, or they're afraid of what their neighbors will say. The sound from the lake was beginning to diminish. Della could hear Ricky's loud voice calling to someone, followed by Sally's low musical laughter. And you think I wouldn't care, is that it? She wanted to know. You think it wouldn't bother me if people ran all over this place without any clothes on? And you think I wouldn't care what the neighbors said? Is that why you're talking to me about it? Ed Lorian was silent for a long moment. I guess you could say that, yes. Then what about my husband? Ed shrugged. He didn't answer. What about my husband? She persisted. What do you think he would say? Unless there were lots of pretty girls and he had a chance to chase every one of them, what do you think he would say about this? Believe something, Ed Lorraine's told her slowly. Believe me when I tell you that in all my 25 years of living, I never carry tales. I don't intend to start now, Della. All I say is that your husband won't enter into it. I indicated before that I thought you wouldn't be able to use the money. I'm sure you will. But I'm not going into that now. That is something for another time. All I wanted to do tonight is tell you about what I have in mind and ask you if you think about it. If it should fit in with your plans, all right. If it doesn't, that's all right, too. Something gripped her down inside, deep and cold. Money. She had never thought of it much before. Being married to Ricky, she had, had made it unnecessary to think about money. I don't know what you're trying to say, Della whispered unevenly. 
I don't know what you're trying to tell me. I think you do. Her eyes sought him in the darkness. Please tell me. I want to know. It wouldn't be right. It would be fair. His arm tightened across her shoulders, bringing her closer. Another thing you have to believe, he said. I didn't come here for intimacies. But you're very beautiful, Della. You know that. Men have told you that before. Your husband must have told you that many, many times. But I haven't. Not until now. And I want to. I want to tell you that I think you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. I wish you wouldn't say things like that. His free hand found his, her chin, tilting her face. His lips were very close, and she could smell the clean odor of shaving lotion. I'm not going to kiss you, he said. I'm not going to paw you. I'm just going to tell you a couple of, of things for sure, Della. A couple of things that have nothing to do with business. She tried to say something, but she was choked up inside. Her breath was coming deeply and irregularly, and she could feel her breasts hard and full pushing out against him. She wanted to cry out, to break away from him, but she couldn't. He had walked toward her out of the night just a short time before, and now she wanted to cling to him, to hold him close, because he was all that seemed to be real. It was a crazy, terrible, wonderful feeling. I'm no prince, Ed Lorraine told her, his clean breath washing across his face. And I've got no money. But I know what I like. I like you, Della. You're different. I don't know how the hell you got mixed up with a crowd like this. She said nothing. Her fingers touched his hair and moved away. It was too long a story, and it didn't concern Ed Loring. People do terrible things sometimes, Ed told her. Other people can do it to almost any of us any time. I've had them do it to me. I felt hurt, beaten, but I got over it. There's always something else. Somebody else, somewhere to turn. Don't forget that, Della. And you can count on me. You can turn on me. She nodded, not knowing what to say. You hardly know me, he went on. His lips brushed against her cheeks and moved off. And I hardly know you. But this you can be certain of. This camp thing I spoke to you about is a real opportunity. Nudism is a big movement. And the people who are in it are willing to pay top money. If you ever need a dollar, it could be one way of turning it. If she ever needed a dollar, the coldness possessed her again, burning with the pain of fire. Ed Loring knew something that he wasn't telling her. Was it about Ricky? Was it about herself or both of them? Ed, she whispered, Ed, please tell me whatever it is that you know. He hesitated an instant and then moved away from her. They're coming up from the lake, he said. His glance moved down across her face, swept across the jutting shelf of her breasts and back to her face again. I'll call you on the phone. She thought about Ricky and the fact that he would be away all next week. She thought, too, about how she had never looked at another man. Never thought of another man since her wedding day. She thought of some of the names Ricky had called her and that night in the bedroom when he had made her sick. She thought of the phone calls and the laughter of drunken women. She thought of these things and of something else, too. She was so alone, so very much alone, and she was so utterly frightened. There was no one she could talk to, no one who would listen, really, except this stranger, maybe, except Ed. Please do that, she said, her voice husky. Call me soon, Ed. In silence, they walked back to the fireplace, waiting for the others to come up from the lake. Chapter 3 It was very early in the morning when Ricky started banging on her bedroom door. Della sat up, blinking into the sun and stretched lazily. Go away, she told him. 
His foot banged against the door several times. Hell, I'm not after what you think, he told her. I'm looking for my camera. It isn't in here. There was a moment's silence. I gotta talk to you, baby. Just for a couple of minutes. She rolled over, closing her eyes. Don't bother me, she said, remembering last night, hating it and hating him. Go away, she repeated. I am. Ricky's laughter filled the house, drifting away. Hell, I've been packing all night. You're damned right I'm going away. Not just for a week. For good. You hear me? For good. That's why I have to talk to you, baby. For good, Della laughed. That would be too good to be true. She crawled from the bed and reached for her negligee. The rays of the sun washed over her pink and white skin, caressing her hair. Shrugging into the nylon garment, she crossed to the door. Come in, she said, unlocking it. Ricky entered the room. She was surprised to see that he was clean-shaven and appeared quite sober. His faded khaki pants and shirt were rumpled, but that wasn't unusual. He seldom worried about his appearance. I'm getting out of here right now, he told her, walking over to the window. The car's packed and I'm ready. To hell with you, baby. I'm never coming back. You don't have to shout. So, who's going to hear me? There's nobody here, not even Jeannie. She must have found what she needed last night. Della's eyes flashed. That's an awful thing to say, Ricky. Yeah? He came across the room toward her. Hell, just the other day, she comes to me and wants to borrow 200 bucks. Can you imagine that? Some guy gives it to her good and she wants money from me? You didn't come in here and talk to, to talk about Jeannie. No. He lit a cigarette and watched her through the smoke. About us. I want a divorce, baby. She nodded. She felt no surprise, whatever. They'd been running straight into it right from the start. Like two trains on one track. Gosh, I've gone through a lot of money, he explained unexpectedly. There was a dark concern in his eyes. You got no idea, baby. No idea. I never asked you to spend, she reminded him. You can have the place out here and the money you've got in the bank, he said, ignoring her remark. But that's all you get, baby. That... That's all that's left. I'm sorry, Della said. She meant it. And now she was feeling surprised enough. She had thought that Ricky, if nothing else, was quite well off. Ricky laughed. Don't worry about me. I'll make out all right. I'm going into business in town lumber or hardware. Nothing sensational, but pretty solid. Della waited a long moment before she said it. It's Sally, isn't it? He grinned. Sure. Poor damn fool, Della said. She's got a surprise waiting for her. Stop feeling sorry for us. I'm not, Della assured him. I'm just saying. Well, stop saying. His eyes moved over her body, opening the negligee, closing it again. You played me for a sucker, baby. A big one. Hell, you just wanted to get to the States. Isn't that why you married me? You lie, she flung at him angrily. I loved you. I thought you loved me. You just wanted a way to go stateside, he insisted. I paid high for you, baby, but after we got here, you backed down. You wouldn't stick by the bargain. Because you always came to me drunk. You reviled me, and, and you forced me, you... He turned and walked to the door. So there's nothing more to be said. If it's okay about the divorce, I'll get in touch with Tom Fielding. He's the lawyer. What can I say? She wanted to know. What more can any of us say that couldn't possibly do any good? Then I'll call Fielding. Yes... At the door, Ricky paused, not looking back. Good evening, baby. It was a word that meant goodbye in Icelandic. 
And then he was gone, and there was just the sound of his receding footsteps on the stairs to remind her that Ricky Farland had been her husband and had lived here in this house with her. Slowly, she went over to the window and stood there looking out. She watched him get into the green caddy, noted the piles of luggage in the back, and she waved to him as he drove down around the house. But he wasn't looking up, and he didn't see her, and in a couple of seconds he was gone out of sight. She returned to the bed and looked at the clock. Five minutes before eight. What an awful time of the day, she thought, to break up a marriage. She flung herself down upon the bed laughing. Her only feeling was one of relief. It had been a useless, unfortunate, silly marriage. It hadn't even paid to waste all that nice paper on the certificate. They might better have played house for a year and then called the whole thing off. Or had a trial marriage the way couples often did in Iceland. The sun burned across her back and she rolled over into the shadows, fighting against the sudden tears. Maybe it had been easy enough while he had been here with her to accept the fate that their union was actually ending. But now that he was gone, now that she knew that he was never coming back, she felt unaccountably desolate and lost. Lying there on the bed, she cried herself to sleep. Not until Jenny came in, shortly before noon, did she awaken. You sick, Miss Farland? Jenny asked. No, I'm all right. I'm sorry about being late, Jenny said. I'll make up the time, Mrs. Farland. Don't worry about it. She watched the girl over to fix the curtains, closing them. The room was filled with a soft yellow glow. Tell me something, Jenny. What did your young man say? He said, No, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. Perhaps I shouldn't have asked you. It's all right, Mrs. Farland. I'm glad you did. Before, well, I didn't have anyone to talk to, except Sammy. And Sammy kept getting mad all the time. I'm... Happy that you got things straightened out, Della said. When are you going to get married? The girl had been busy tucking the sheets under the mattress, but now she stopped looking up. Gee, I'm not going to get married, Miss Farland. At first I was. Even up to last night I was, because Sammy said it was the thing to do. But now, now that Sammy said he'll arrange things, why everything's going to be all right. I don't understand you, Jenny. The girl tucked the sheets in place and patted the bedland. Next week. All I have to do is stay overnight and then maybe take a couple of days off. But you won't have to pay me for the time I'm off, Jenny hastened to add. Of course, I could use the money, same as always, but I won't expect you to pay me, after all. Jenny! The girl jumped at the sharpness in Della's voice. It's the only thing to do, she said. I thought about it over and over, and there ain't any other way. Gee, Mrs. Farland, I'm not even 20 yet, and Sammy hasn't got a very good job. But it's... A big risk. Not as big as if I have a baby and can't take care of it. Well, I've never heard of such a thing, Della said, deeply disappointed in Jenny. Of course, you could take care of it. And that little fellow of yours, that's Sammy. What kind of man is he to let you do a thing like that? Jenny resumed her bed-making, saying nothing. You're lucky you're not going to marry a man like that. A man who would let you do away with his own child isn't much of a man at all. Why, you'd think... Don't you say anything about Sammy, Jenny flared. He's a very good boy. Gee, Mrs. Farland, Sammy loves me, and he isn't that kind of fellow at all. He's just a hard worker, and he wants to do what's right. He certainly has a funny way of showing it, Della observed. Jenny looked embarrassed. I'm sorry I got mad, Mrs. Farland. It's only that. Forget it, Jenny. No harm done. It would be another one of those hot June days outside, Della thought, selecting red shorts and a white halter. 
The shorts were short indeed, cutting high across her full thighs, and the halter was so tight that she had to exhale before she could fasten it. Sex magnets, Ricky had described the garment, designed to drive a man out of his mind. Mr. Farland told me about the $200, Della said casually. I'm glad you spoke to him about it. That's a relief, Jenny sighed. I thought you'd be mad. Why should I? After all, Mr. Farland does, a pretty, does pretty much as he pleases. A thought, or rather a suspicion, suddenly came to her. She tried to gauge her next words carefully, cunningly. I just hope that this trouble with Mr. Farland won't ruin things for you with your Sammy. Trouble? What trouble? Oh, come on. You can tell me. Mr. Farland is the father, isn't he? Jenny said nothing, but her eyes narrowed. She seemed to be thinking hard, and into her face came a somewhat crafty look. Well, isn't he? Della insisted. Isn't that why he gave you $200? If you say so, Mrs. Farland, Jenny hesitated, then blurted, Oh, he was awfully nice about it when I told him. At first I thought of coming to you, but I used to hear the two of you fighting, and, well, it seemed only sense that I go to Mr. Farland. He said he didn't want you to know, not at all, and that I've done just what I should, but I guess he must have thought it over and figured it best to tell you. Anyways, I'm glad he did. I wouldn't have known how to say anything to you about it, Mrs. Farland. I honest wouldn't. The poor, stupid little bitch, Della thought, walking over to the girl. Mr. Farland didn't tell me, Jenny. I just guessed it. You see, Mr. Farland left me this morning, and he isn't coming back. We're getting a divorce. Jenny shrank back until her knees caught the edge of the bed. Oh, gosh, I'm always talking too much, Mrs. Farland. Or doing something else too much, Della suggested. Jenny's face burned bright red, and she sat down on the bed. It wasn't anybody's fault, Mrs. Farland. Really, it just happened. I don't want to hear any more about it, Jenny. Della pulled the girl upright. And you aren't going to do away with that child, you hear? You're going to stay right here in this house and have the baby just as God meant you to. Tears streamed on Jenny's face. I'm scared, she whimpered. Scared. You got no reason to be. But I don't know what I'm going to do, Mrs. Farland. I'm just a kid myself. I get so worried. Honest, I do. I wake up in the night and I get scared all over. Because I know nobody will want me or give me a job afterwards. And everyone will say, I'm no good. Della grabbed the sobbing girl by her shoulders. You listen to me, Della told her, shaking her. Jenny lifted her fear-tilled eyes. Yes, Mrs. Farland? This is a terrible thing, Jenny. An awful thing that Ricky has done. But I don't want you to worry about the baby. There's nothing to worry about. You'll be here with me and I'll take care of you. Then, after the baby comes... If you see that you can't get along, I'll take the baby and take care of it for you. I'll take care of it for a day or a week or forever. You know what I'm saying, Jenny? You're mighty good to me, Jenny said haltingly. Della went to the dresser and impatiently lit a cigarette. I'll tell you something about your Mr. Farland, Jenny. You want to hear something? Jenny looked doubtful. All right, she said. Well, I'll tell you something, Jenny. I'm mad. I'm so mad that I could kill that man. The things he's done to me, slamming me around, sleeping with every damned woman who would have him, drinking everything that he could get his hands on. And then, because the rest isn't enough, he gets you pregnant and walks off and leaves me? Yes, Mrs. Farland? Della felt rage boiling in her. You're going to have that baby, Jenny. You're going to have it if I have to crawl into the bed with you and nurse it until it's old enough to go to school. And all this time, that traitor of a husband of mine is going to pay and pay and pay and pay until he's so sick of pain that he'll get down on his knees and pray to, that God will strike him dead. 
Please, Mrs. Farlin. Jenny ran towards the door, frightened. I'll do what you say, but please. I'll ruin him, Della promised herself, jerking a lamp from the night table. Jenny screamed as the lamp crashed to the floor. The dirty evil man. Jenny ran from the room whimpering, and Della, suddenly ashamed of her display of temper, ran to the bed. Good, she thought wildly. Why did Ricky have to go and do a thing like that? Hadn't he had enough already? Where was it all going to end, this crazy, twisted mess that they made of their lives? Presently, she heard somebody laughing, and she wondered who it was. She sat up and realized that she had been laughing. She laughed again. It was so funny that it deserved a lot of laughs. It wasn't even maids who got what their mistress wanted and then didn't have any use for it after it was given to her. Della had wanted a baby from the first. Ricky had insisted that they wait. The phone rang, but Della didn't bother answering. Pretty soon she heard Jenny coming up the stairs. Mrs. Farlin? Yes? Telephone. Thank you, Jenny. Jenny came to the door and peeked inside. Sorry I frightened you, Della said. I guess I lost my head. The girl smiled. You've got reasons to be mad, Mrs. Farlin. I don't blame you one bit. Thank you, Jenny. And listen, I'm going to ask you to sign a paper. I'll tell you about it later. She went to the telephone and lifted it. Yes? Hi. It was a man's voice. Ed Loring. Hope I didn't disturb you. Not at all. The phone wire hummed steadily. Anything new? Della smiled. Only that you were quite right, hinting there might be changes around here. I'm sorry. Don't cry in your gin about it, she told him. I'm not. In fact, I would have called you, but I didn't have your number. You mean about the camp? Yes. You're interested? She could just see the look on Ricky's face when he learned that she was operating a nudist camp, or that look on Gladys Anderson's face, or Sally's, or any of the other blue noses around North Landing and Port Jervis who liked to do what they shouldn't do when they were sure that nobody knew about it. We're practically in business, she told him. Ed Loring whistled. Great. And when can I see you? She glanced down at her shorts and halter, wondering if this business deal with Ed Loring might turn out to be as much fun as work. Any time, she said. Whenever you can make it. Well, get out your paper and pencil, because I'm on my horse. She laughed, told him goodbye, and hung up. On her way out of the room, she noticed Ricky's picture on the dresser. She crossed over and turned the picture about so that it faced the mirror. Chapter 4 Early Monday morning, Tom Fielding called her, and on Tuesday afternoon, Ed drove out and took her into town. Everything's going to be settled today, huh? Ed wanted to know. Well, not everything. Just the property, that's all. Ed glanced at her and winked. That's enough to put us in business. Della nodded, watching the green hill slide past the car. They had been over the proposition half a dozen times, figuring out the best place on the property for the reservation itself, matching the money she had and the initial expenses again and again. The car slowed, and Ed touched her elbow with the tip of, of his finger. Believe me, he said, you can't miss. It would be different if we were starting a new camp, because it would take time to get a following. But this group is already established. As soon as we can get the tents set up and the cops will be pulling in money. She asked him something then that she had never asked him before. Ed, are you a nudist? When I have to be. What do you mean by that? I mean, I don't practice nudism like the believers do. I just take my clothes off whenever I go to the reservation. There are two reasons for that. First, most nudists feel 
that if you want to come where they are, then you should act like them. And secondly, I found that when you wear clothes among a lot of naked people, you feel self-conscious. Sounds funny. Maybe, but it isn't. Wearing clothes on a nudist reservation is like going without them on the street. All concerned, feel mighty uncomfortable. They came down the long hill, approaching the landing. The Delaware River stretched to the south, winding through the valleys like a watery snake. As I told you before, Ed said, I'm honestly sorry about you and Ricky. It couldn't be helped. That was a secret I wanted to share with you the other night, but I knew you soon might be interested in making a little money. Sally told me that was going to happen. That girl's a little tiger, Della. She may look small and soft, but she's as hard as a keg of melted nails. I wish her luck. Oh, they'll do okay, Ed assured her. They'll make a go of it. Della had told Ed that she had $5,000 in the bank and that she was getting the property from Ricky. They both knew the $5,000 wouldn't last forever, even though she had cut down expenses by letting the gardener go and just keeping Jenny. How many people did you say were in this camp? What is it? Norcut. He lit two cigarettes and handed one to her. Norcut Health Camp. Only we won't call it that up here. We'll call it, say, Raven's Nest Health Resort. If that's all right with you, of course. I don't care. As long as the money comes in. She laughed, feeling gay. As long as the money comes in. His hand touched her arm, lingering, his fingers making a web of heat on her flesh. Let's go over the profit end of it again. I get 50%, Stella said. Yes. And I give you 20% of that as your share. Right again. And the people who operate the reservation itself, the Holdens, they get the other 50% and they give you 20 out of that? Correct. That suits me, Della said. And at my own house, if I want to keep people overnight, I keep all the receipts. Absolutely. That's your privilege. They entered North Landing and Ed slowed the car for a stoplight. Oh, you're going to like it, he assured her, his fingers tightening. You'll meet some great people. You know, some of the finest folks in this country are nudists. And the Holdens, well, both Arch and his wife Betty are pretty swell. He mentioned the daughter. Ada? Well, Ada's all right, but sort of nuts, if you ask me. There's also a brother, Mike, but he doesn't come around very often, so you won't be seeing much of him. Della could have moved away from Ed's hand, but she just looked down at it, smiling. You'll be able to call them as soon as I get through. At the lawyer's, she said. The place will be mine then, all mine. After all, I didn't want to order those tents and start spending money and then have Ricky back down on his word. Of course not. But Mr. Fielding and Ricky signed all the papers even before he told me. Sounds like he was anxious or very sure of himself. Traffic was getting heavier as they moved downtown and Eddie needed both hands for driving purposes. But when he stopped waiting for a car to back out of the parking spot, he looked at her and his dark eyes probed intimately. Ricky must be blind, he said, or crazy, or a little bit of both. Ed was looking directly into her face, but she was pretty sure that he was really watching the quick rise and fall of her breasts under the yellow sweater. The sweater was much too tight, for, them, and for this reason, she was, at the moment, wearing a brassiere. Not because she needed it for support, or because it made her comfortable, but because Jenny had told her that the sweater stretched apart and showed too much. You'd be better off stark naked, Jenny had said. Della was pleased that Jenny was now reconciled to the idea of having the baby. She acted like a different girl these days, joking at meals and singing as she went about her work in the house. 
Her Sammy, she said, was in complete accord with her new plans. Where's that office again? Ed asked. In the Palmer building. That's the third block down on this side. North Landing was a small town, by no means as large as nearby Port Jervis, but it was prosperous enough during the spring, summer, and fall months. In the spring, people came to fish in the lakes and streams, particularly for bass and trout. And in the summer, people just drove up to get out of the city. During the fall, there were plenty of hunting and drinking at the camps scattered throughout the hills. Of course, in the winter, it just died. The people who made money off the tourists spent the cold months in Florida, and the ones who worked for them and helped them make the money crawled away in the snowbanks and somehow suffered out the cold. That must be it down there, Ed said, nodding at the red brick building with the clock hanging over the sidewalk. There was a space near the corner, and Ed pulled the Pontiac into it. Don't bother with the meter, Della told him, getting out. That empty sign on the back plate is better in this town than a nickel. Ed grinned and stretched. Sally'd flip her lid if she knew what I was doing with her old man's car. Della went down the street, smiling. Ed was all right, she thought. Maybe he didn't have any money, and maybe he'd never make that much, but he was nice to be with. What was it, Ed had said? Oh, yes. Ed had told her that nudists felt that clothes gave people inferiority-superiority complexes that shouldn't exist. It was, she decided, pretty much the same with money. Money gave people inferiority-superiority complexes that were unfair and unreasonable. When a person got right down to it, right to the basic reason for living, a man and a woman didn't need a great deal of money. All they had to have were healthy bodies and a sane and sensible outlook. No, she thought money wasn't life. In fact, life might be very interesting with a man like Ed. Della climbed the stairs to the lawyer's office, scolding herself mentally. She'd have to stop thinking about Ed Loring in that sort of way. Of course, Ed was a nice guy, and she liked him. But that was as far as it ought to go. Once Ricky, too, had been a gentle and kind and times fumbling. It had been almost wonderful. But later, when he began drinking, and she knew that there had been other women, he had only disgusted her. She had felt like a shoddy piece of merchandise that no one wanted. Just an extra thrill in Ricky's life when she should have been the most important. She came from a country where people lived and loved. It wasn't something that could be shut off as easily or as quickly as a dripping faucet. Maybe even it was something that couldn't be shut off at all, she thought, as she paused at the lawyer's door. There was one thing she had made up her mind to right now. Perhaps she was different from other girls, and perhaps there had been the, that had been the cause of the, her troubles with Ricky. It was also possible that she was not frigid, but rather too warm. No, not that exactly, but possessed of some hidden desire that demanded more of a man than he was willing to give. Whatever the trouble was, whatever her difficulty, she must remember that this was a business arrangement with Ed Loring and nothing more. Ed Loring, she promised herself, would not be the first after Ricky. Going into the office, she felt better. She had made a decision about how she was going to handle Ed. She knew what she was going to do and how she was going to do it. May I help you? The girl who arose from behind the desk was tall and very thin. Her glance traveled up and down Della's voluptuous figure, lingering at the bus line. Della noted the end of envy, and she wondered, not really caring, if the poor thing had a man of her own. I'm Miss Farland. Oh, yes. Won't you go right in? Della passed through the open doorway and found herself in a rather dark office lined with hundreds of books. Mrs. Farland? Tom Fielding was short and fat and hopelessly bald. He filled the chair behind the desk to overflowing, and every time 
He moved. The chair squeaked. Yes. Won't you be seated, please? Fielding had a low, pleasant voice and a friendly smile. Della sat down and he regarded her with mildly curious blue eyes. Sorry to hear about you and Ricky, Mrs. Farland. These things are always unfortunate. Yes. Naturally, when he first approached me, just last week, I had quite a talk with him. A lawyer's job, you know, is to serve the wishes of his client, but it's also to help guide him. Often we make mistakes, mistakes we wouldn't make if we had the advice of an outside party. I understand. But Ricky seemed very definitely unhappy. He, I might say, Mrs. Farland, he was being very generous in view of the fact that he seems to blame you for any misunderstanding. I don't know, but sometimes... I'm in a hurry, Della interrupted. If you don't mind, I'd like to get this over with. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Fielding leaned forward, pushing a stack of papers and a pen towards her. Just sign where I made a little check marks. Four places only. It's your title to the property and the furniture within the house at Raven's Nest. She scanned the documents carefully. They seemed to be in order, and she signed them quickly. Two copies for you, the lawyer said, sorting out the papers, and two copies for me. All legal? All legal. As she rose to go, Fielding waved his hand. Just one more thing, Mrs. Farland, about the divorce. Your husband has retained me to handle that. That could be, well, rushed a bit if you are willing to take a trip to, let's say, Reno. I'm not taking any trips. Oh, I see. The fat face looked disappointed. Of course, if you don't want to, you can't be forced into it. Only thing is, it would speed matters a bit, Mrs. Durfarland seemed very anxious to get the situation cleared up as quickly as possible. I think that makes a great deal of sense if two people are going to part. They might as well get it over and done with. I'm not going anywhere, Della repeated firmly. Fielding shrugged and got to his feet. Very well. Once more he waved at her. One more thing. Quite frankly, I assume this to be an amicable divorce. No court fights or that sort of thing. On the other hand... One never knows, and therefore, I would like to have you sign this statement here before you leave, certifying that you won't contest the divorce. Della turned at the door and smiled at the lawyer. I'm not signing anything, she said sweetly. Tom Fielding seemed to lose his poise. But Mr. Farland called me Sunday and said that you had agreed. When I drew up the papers on the property, it was with the understanding, your husband was very emphatic about this, that the transfer was to take place only if you consented to the divorce. Then on Sunday, he phoned me from out of town, I think, and he said that I could go ahead. Well, tell him you didn't do your job right, Della suggested. Tell him you should have had me sign that other paper first. Frustrated, Fielding lumbered across the room towards her. But surely a gentleman's agreement. Perhaps you had forgotten, she told him, letting him get a good look at the yellow sweater. But I am a woman. A gentleman's agreement means nothing to me. Besides, I promise nothing. He just assumed I did, in his usual headstrong fashion. Good afternoon, Mr. Fielding, and thank you for having been so careless. She was still laughing when she reached the car. Ed Loring leaned across the seat, opening the door for her, his eyes questioning. Got it? Got it. He started the car. Now let me get a telephone. Just let me get one of those things. His excitement was contagious, and she felt it mounting within her. Now we can get the tents, Ed. And you know that big one we talked about? The one where they cook and eat? We can put it by the lake. The tires squealed as they went around a sharp corner. They broke out of the traffic, swept out of town. His right arm circled her shoulders, pulling her close to him. 
I'll call the order from the nest. The stuff will be here in a few days. So soon? And I'll get in touch with the Holdens tonight after dinner. They're never around until then. As soon as the tents arrive, they can start moving in. His arm grew tighter, and she could feel his hand stroking her. We'll be making money by the end of the week, Dalla. You hear that? It occurred to her that she would only have $2,400 left in the bank after paying for all the things they needed. I can hardly wait, she said truthfully. The muffler on the Pontiac snarled as they climbed the mountain. Della remembered her decision for a few moments before, and she moved away from Ed's arm. This was strictly a business proposition. That would have to be enough for both of them. When they reached the house, Jenny met them at the door. She had on a red bathing suit, and Della noted that the girl's condition hadn't yet begun to show. I thought I might go down to the lake, the girl said, if it's all right with you. You go ahead, Della said. Relax. The sun will do you good. Thanks, Miss Farland. It was cooler in the house, a lot more comfortable than outside. Ed asked if there were air, if there was air conditioning, and she said no. It was just insulated all the way through. They went on into the living room. It was a large room, very light, and the huge picture windows overlooked like sorrow. There was a fireplace at one end with a hand-hewn oaken mantle, but that was the only real aspect of the whole place. The furniture was strictly modern. Some of it real bamboo, and the rug was thick and soft and red. Fourteen tents, Ed said, sitting down by the phone. Isn't that what we figured? Not including the big one. No, but that comes from another place. And cots, how many of those? She tried to remember. Was it six times fourteen or eight times fourteen? And then they had added some for the house, in case there was an overflow. I don't know, she said. It's upstairs. I got it written down somewhere. I'll get it. Okay, but hurry. If we put the order in right away, they can start getting it out this afternoon. She ran up the stairs, her heels clattering. What the hell had she done with that paper? She must have left it on the dresser, or maybe it was still in the pocket of the jeans she'd been wearing. But she couldn't find it anywhere. Anxiously, she had kneeled and dug through the wastebasket. The windows were open, and the hot breeze drifted through the room. The more frantic her search, the hotter she felt. What in God's name had she done with it? And why didn't either she or Jenny remember to close the windows in the morning? It was so much cooler with the windows closed. She swore bitterly and kicked the waste basket aside. Ed would be furious. She should have put the thing where she could find it. She sat down on the bed and tried to remember what she had done with that stupid paper. She tried to remember what it looked like. A Kleenex? Hell no. Who'd be silly enough to write on a Kleenex? A napkin? Well, maybe a napkin. They'd been in the kitchen, and they had a couple of cans of beer, and it could have been a napkin, but somehow no. Now she remembered. Ricky had left the monthly bills piled neatly on the kitchen table, and they'd done their figuring on the back of the envelope from the telephone company. Damn! Della got up from her bed and started for the door. God, she thought, it was hot. And that sweater, anyone who wore a prickly thing like that in the summer ought to suffer. She pulled the sweater up over her head and threw it on the floor. Deciding that the skirt was quite unnecessary now that she was home, she slipped out of that too. As she moved towards the dresser, thinking that the pink shorts and the pink halter would be best, she unfastened her brassiere and sighed contentedly as her breasts pushed out naked and free. The thin net panties swung with the rhythmic roll of her hips, and she felt her body wildly alive and glowing. God, someone breathed. She wheeled quickly, feeling shame and panic, knowing that it was Ed. She folded her arms across her breasts, trying to cover them. You had no right to follow me. He stood in the doorway, his face almost white. You were gone so long, he said lamely, wetting his lips. 
His eyes moved away from her and then back again lingering. And I wanted to get that call in. That's all. Honest. I thought, well, you don't have to stand there, you know. His eyes wandered down over her body, drinking in all the softness, caressing her flat little belly, the outward flow of her hips. You're very beautiful, he whispered, not moving. Della smiled at him, now feeling neither shame nor fright. He was like a little boy who had followed teacher into the cloakroom and who ought to be scolded. And like a teacher, she was not alarmed. She would treat the incident lightly, making fun of it, and then it would never happen again. You told me that nudists believe all bodies are beautiful, she reminded Ed. You told me that it didn't make any difference if they were young or old bodies, that each was a temple in which the soul lived, and for that reason was always beautiful. Ed wet his lips again nervously. He took a cigarette from his shirt pocket, fumbled with it, and then put it away again. Sure, he admitted without much feeling. Sure, I said that. She continued to smile at him, to make him feel small, to make him want to leave her alone. He had followed her up the stairs and into her room, perhaps by accident or perhaps by design, but it made little difference why he came here. He was there, and she had to make him leave, feeling guilty, just the way the teacher would make the pupil leave the cloakroom. I guess you just don't make a very good nudist, Ed. His stare lifted to her face solely. What makes you say that? She moved her arms, keeping her breasts covered. Because you can't look at a nude woman the way you're looking at me. You'd have to be the way you say, Ed, you have to be disinterested, aloof. I think you told me. He continued to stand in the doorway, and she could see the sweat running down his face. I meant all of that, he insisted. Then remember it, she told him, still smiling. Remember, and not only when you're in this camp, but while you're here in my bedroom like this. You remember that, Ed, and we'll get along fine, because there won't be any chance of getting something else mixed in where only business belongs. Ed stepped into the room. His shirt was soaking wet, and his face was now fiery red. Well, he said huskily, I hadn't seen you when I said those things. He came towards her slowly, and you've changed them, Della. Whether you like it or not, you've changed all the rules for this guy. Ed! The heat from his approaching body reached out and washed over her. The back of her head began to pound, and hard pain crept into the breasts, and her legs hurt. Please, Della! She closed her eyes, trying to think, pleading with her mind to rip destiny from the wants and needs of her body. We'd better not, she whispered. Suddenly, she wanted to laugh, to cry, to scream, and she wanted to run. She wanted to run because in that moment of panic, she knew that she hungered for Ed Loring just as much as he craved her. His arms circled her, crushing her flesh into his chest, his lips seeking and finding her mouth and forcing it open. They stumbled to the bed and fell upon it, clinging together. You knew this would happen, he told her. She felt his hand savage and urgent, demanding every response that the fire inside her body could possibly bring forth. The world and the moment closed in on her, spinning, whirling, driving her up to a pinnacle of pain and beauty, and then down into a tunnel of blackness, in which she heard only his frantic pleas and her own happy sobs of fulfillment. Later, as she lay there upon the bed beside him, she knew that she had been right all along. Ed Loring was quite a man. Chapter 5 The Holdens arrived late Friday afternoon, dragging a huge red trailer behind their 
Buick Station Wagon. A very nice place you have here, Holden observed, nodding in the direction of the lake. I hope you like it, Della told him. Arch Holden was in his early 50s, so short that he appeared squat. He had thin gray hair and extremely high forehead. His wife, Betty, was small and slim, and her ageless face and long black hair gave her an illusion of youth. You're Mrs. Farland, aren't you? She had a soft, pleasing voice. Yes, but please call me Della. Well, thanks, and I'm Betty, she winked at her husband. Arch isn't very good at introducing me around. He likes to joke about it and say that he can't seem to recognize me with my clothes on. Arch Holden laughed and gave his wife a tender kiss on the cheek, then glancing around. Where's Ed? He's down on the reservation. They're getting the rest of the tent set up this afternoon. And where's the reservation? Della walked with them to the front of the car, pointing to the lane that twisted down through the field, skirted the lake, for a short distance and then plunged into the woods. Any field beyond those trees, Mrs. Farland? Yes, two. That's fine, Arch Holden said. One of the prime requirements for a nudist reservation is plenty of good outdoor sport. Of course, we won't be able to get very much started for a few days, but we do have badminton and croquet stuff down in the trailer. The grass would have to be mowed down quite good, though. It's already been cut, Dallas stated proudly. Where can we swim? Betty Holden wanted to know. The lake is private, Della told her. It belongs to me and no one else lives near it. We have another pond too, a small one down in the woods. But there's a lot of snapping turtles in it and we'd never use it. We'll stick to the lake, Arch Holden said. The Holdens got into their car, saying that they would see her later, and the big trailer began moving slowly forward. Della watched until it entered the woods, bobbing and weaving, and then she reached turned to the house. Jenny was in the kitchen, scraping cheese off the electric sandwich maker. That's the way to travel, Jenny said flatly. In a trailer. If you don't like what you see, you don't stop. You just keep on going. Maybe you're right. I'm surprised that Mr. Loring hasn't got one, that's for sure. He's a picker-up-and-goer, if I ever saw one. I know the kind. I seen them down in port. That one year I worked there, they're all nice, just like him. But it don't make a difference if they're selling magazines or working on a railroad. They're all the same. Pick up and go. That's what they do. There were times, Della thought, when Jenny could be most annoying. By the way, Della said to the girl, I have a paper made out for you. I'd like to have you sign it. Jenny began to scrape harder on the sandwich maker. You mean that one about Mr. Farland? Yes. Well, I haven't asked Sammy about it. Yes, Mrs. Farland. Oh, you haven't, Della demanded icily. And why haven't you? The girl looked at Della, her eyes pathetic. I will tonight, she promised. Honest. Look, Della said patiently, Sammy isn't the one to blame you for your condition. Mr. Farland is. Mr. Farland is the father of your child, Jenny. All I ask is that you sign a statement that says he is responsible. She'd written the paper out in longhand. She'd gone over it twice with Jenny already. She was getting a little sick of it. I know, Jenny admitted. Only it's just that I always... Talk things over with Sammy first, that's all. That's why, wait. There's one thing you didn't ask Sammy first, Jenny. You never asked him if it was all right for Mr. Farland to do what he did, did you? Now, Mrs. Farland, you listen to me, Della went over and stood very close to the girl. Supposing you do have this baby, and supposing something should happen to you. It could, you know. You could die. Oh, no. Well, it's happened before. Haven't you ever thought of that? You could die, and then, Jenny, who'd take care of your baby? Haven't you ever thought of that? 
Jenny pushed her sandwich maker aside and leaned up against the sink. Her face was alarmed, her body limp. No, I never thought about that, she said. You told me before that you'd make sure the baby, and I will, Jenny. I'll see that your baby will be cared for no matter what happens. But I want what you know on paper. And I want it signed by you. Then, if anything should happen to you or to me, Mr. Farland would have to take care of it, wouldn't he? And Jenny, tell me, Jenny, wouldn't that be the fair and right thing for Mr. Farland to do? Jenny hesitated. But it might cause trouble, Mrs. Farland. It won't. I mean, the trouble's already been caused, Della reminded her. I guess. Della reached in her pocket of her shorts, finding the neatly folded paper and pen. She shoved the pen into Jenny's trembling hands and put the paper on the countertop. You read it before, Jenny. Yes, Miss Farland. It's the truth? It's the truth. Then sign it. But, Mrs. Farland, sign it. A couple of tears dropped to the white sheet as Jenny slowly and carefully signed her name. Jenny Slater. Jenny Slater, Della thought. Age almost 20. Jenny Slater, an unfortunate little kid whose signature might yet prove as potent as that of a bank president. You won't be sorry, Jenny, Della said. I hope not. Della returned the paper and pen to her pocket. There's something else I want to talk to you about, Jenny. Yes, Mrs. Farland? Della went over to the kitchen table and sat down. She felt hot and tired. She guessed that she and Ed had been staying up two late nights together. She smiled. Maybe it was love and maybe it wasn't, but it was real and beautiful, no matter what it was. And even if she did feel tired. You know how to drive a car, Jenny? Yes. And you got a license? Yes. Well, we've got to get a car, Jenny. Nothing fancy, just something that will take us into town and back, or Port Jervis. A few of our guests might come up on the train and we have to meet them. I like to drive a car, Jenny said. Sammy lets me drive his sometimes. We can get Ed to take us in the afternoon and pick one out, Della said. Ed says that Sally Berenger's father wants the station wagon back, and I can't say that I blame him. We've been using it now most all week, and he's been pretty decent about it. Oh, that puts me in mind, Jenny exclaimed. That Miss Berenger called on the telephone a little while ago. She wanted Ed? No, you. I'll call her later, Della said, if I don't forget. She didn't say what she wanted. No, Della lit a cigarette and watched the smoke drift towards the car. Now about that car, Jenny. I can't afford a new one, but I would like to get one that you'd want to drive. I'm no good at driving myself. I used to drive back home. Those little English consoles and a real old Plymouth. But we drove out the left-handed side, and I'd kill myself if I ever got out on the road around here. You don't have to worry, none, Jenny promised. I'll do all the driving you want. I plan on paying you a little more money, Dallas said. Starting next week, you're going to have a lot more work to do, Jenny. We're opening a nudist camp, Della told her. Jenny's eyes were startled. Nudists, she repeated. That's people without clothes. Yes. Men or women? Both. Holy cow, Jenny exclaimed. Wait till Sammy hears about this. You can tell him. It isn't any secret. Jenny glanced out of the window and snickered. He'll flip his lid, Jenny decided. It'll be the last thing in the world he ever expected to hear. A lot of other people will probably feel the same way about it. A nudist camp, Jenny repeated. You're not kidding me, are you? Of course not. 
Well, I'm not taking my clothes off and running around stark naked, Jenny announced firmly. That's for sure, Mrs. Farland. You don't have to worry about that, Jenny. You'll just work here in the house, the way you do now, and drive the car. Of course, we'll have people staying up here off and on, and it'll be your job to see that the rooms are clean and they get something to eat. For a moment, she thought that Jenny was going to shrink into a corner and disappear through the woodwork. Not naked, Mrs. Farland. They ain't going to be up here in this house running all around without... No, Jenny. Everyone will be dressed up here. The only place where people can go nude is on the reservation, down past the woods. Jenny appeared to be somewhat relieved. Well, I'm never going down there, she vowed. I don't want to be seeing no naked men, and I don't want no men seeing me. All right, Jenny. Just don't let it upset you. Oh, it's okay, the girl said hastily. Long as I can stay up here and them down there. She returned to the sink, glancing back at Della. You ain't going down there without no clothes on, are you, Mrs. Farland? I suppose I may have to sometimes. The sandwich maker fell out of Jenny's hand, clattering in the sink. Honest? You can't be dressed when you go on the reservation, Della explained. They claim it makes the nudist self-conscious. Well, I declare, Jenny breathed. Then she smiled. I sure hope that Mr. Loring never catches you with your clothes off, Mrs. Farland. He ever finds you that way, there's a good chance of there being two of us like me. Jenny, sorry, Mrs. Farland, but I was just saying. Chimes suddenly sounded. Somebody's at the front door, Jenny said, drying her hands on a towel. I'll get it. Della said, rising from the table. A couple were standing at the front porch. Both were in their early twenties and very tanned. The girl had rich brown hair and soft gray eyes. Her companion was about the same median height with wide, powerful shoulders. I was looking for Mr. and Mrs. Holden, the man said. They're down on the reservation. Oh, fine. Just follow the road around the lake and then take the lane past the lake. Good enough. The man turned to go, but the girl lingered. You must be Mrs. Farland. Yes, that's right. I'm Audrey Potter. She pulled at the man's shirt sleeve. Butch, meet Mrs. Farland. Mrs. Farland, Butch. Hi, he said. Then in the directions of the car, a red and black convertible with the top up, which was parked on the roadway. Ada, say, Ada, come up and meet Mrs. Farland. The girl who got out of the car and came towards them was tall and slim. She had jet black hair, long and wavy over her shoulders, and her face was a creamy tan. Her legs beneath the tight-fitting black dress were long and bare and brown. She walked with a lazy, unrestrained motion that made her pelvis roll from side to side. As she came up the steps onto the porch, the dress dipped low in front, and Della could see the twin high mounds of her breasts. This is Ada Holden, Audrey Potter said. Ada, Mrs. Farland. Greetings, Ada said. The bright red lips parted in a smile. I guess the folks got here all right. They pulled the trailer down to the reservation. Fine. And did they go over the details of the arrivals with you? No, but Mrs. Loring did. I see. The red lips parted again, revealing small white teeth. Then, you know that you should have everyone register when they come in, and I suppose you have a book for that purpose. Yes, I picked up one in town. I suggest you register only couples, Ada said, or families if they come. We have to be careful about that, you know, because if we accept any unmarried men or women, the purpose of the camp might be misinterpreted. 
Mrs. Derlory explained that to me. Oh, well, I thought he had, but I wanted to be sure, that's all. At first, Della hadn't been in complete agreement with Ed's instructions. He'd said that engaged couples should be treated as married couples, that a couple simply meant a man and a woman. He'd pointed out that most of the people who came to them would be sincere, honestly interested in the nudist movement, and it would be easy enough to pick out the lone man or woman who should not be admitted. To question their guests too severely, he had pointed out, would prove offensive. The main thing was to be on the alert for undesirables and to safeguard the name of the camp at all times. Recognizing the logic of his views, Della had accepted them. One other thing, Ada Holden was saying, it might be a good idea if you put a gate out here by the house. That way, no one can get in without you knowing, and no one can get out without paying. I'll talk to Mr. Loring about it. I can hardly wait to get out of my clothes, Ada's smile flashed again. She lifted one hand and unfastened the two buttons on the top of her dress. The material fell away, exposing the dark wedge between her breasts and the pink brassiere. I hope everything will be ready, Mrs. Farland. We should have a good crowd this weekend. They're just about finished putting up the tents. We'll have at least a hundred people. Dollar's mind began running up the totals like an addy machine. A hundred people meant a hundred dollars a day ground charge. Fifty percent of that was fifty dollars, less ten for Ed, which would leave her forty. This didn't, of course, include the daily charge for meals, four dollars per person, of which she was to receive half and pay half of the food bills, or the three dollars a night bunk charge, of which she was also to receive fifty percent. Oh, come on, Ada, Butch pleaded. Let's go down there and get unpacked. You can register us if you will, Ada said, descending the stairs. Just Audrey Potter and Butch Kluver. You don't have to bother about me, not unless you want to, but don't expect any pay. We're all part of the overhead. They got into the car and drove off, waving back at Della. Mrs. Farland, Jenny was hollering from inside the house. Miss Berenger is calling you again. Della sighed and went into the living room. I'll take it in here, she said, picking up the phone. Then, hello, Sally, how are you? You're a bitch, Sally whispered brokenly. Calling me names won't do you any good. Bitch, Sally repeated. I saw Mr. Fielding last night, and he told me you wouldn't give Ricky his divorce. Della looked up at the ceiling, letting her wait. I simply said I wouldn't consent to it. She told Sally finally. He can have it if he wants to fight for it. That's up to him. You just wait until Ricky gets back. You just wait, you. You. I'll wait, Della said and hung up. She picked up the registration book, opening it, but Jenny yelled again. There's another car out back, Miss Farland. Some fellow acts like he don't know where he's going. Ask him what he wants. She heard Jenny shouting to somebody, followed by a brief silence. He wants a room. Jenny said. We don't take single people, Della advised her. Tell him we're sorry. Okay. Ricky, she thought, remembering the telephone call from Sally. How do you feel now? You and that sly little doctor's daughter. Della slammed the book shut savagely. She hates him. Who the hell did she think he was? And when you got right down to it, what good did it do for a girl to live right and try to make a home? People laughed at her. That's what people did. They laughed at her and poked fun at her and called her an iceberg. An iceberg? Who was she? Ed Loring didn't seem to think so. Maybe Ed could tell Ricky what his wife was like, what she was really like. That miserable Ricky and that little Sally Snip. Who they think they were. Am I intruding? 
A man stood in the doorway smiling at her. No, of course not. Come on in. He was a nondescript little man carrying several leather cases. I realize you don't rent out to single folks, he said, putting the bags on the floor. Just as the girl out there told me. However, I have a note from Mr. Holden, which I'm sure you'll find satisfactory. The man handed her a slip of paper and she glanced at it. It requested that the man be given a room and it was signed by Arch Holden. All right, Della agreed. Rooms are $7 a night. The man seemed surprised. That's a little high. Della ignored the protest and opened the large book. If you would register, please. Oh, oh yes. He came over and wrote in the book. It was impossible to read his name, almost as though he had deliberately obscured it. Pay in advance? If you please. Not taking any chances, are you? He smiled and handed her a ten and a five. I'll be here two nights. There's also a grounds charge of a dollar a day. He put another bill into her hand, a one. There's one thing I should like to ask, he said. I want to be absolutely certain that no strangers can go into my room. I wouldn't want anything to happen to my gear. You mean those bags? Della's guest looked offended. Those bags, he explained, happen to contain some very expensive photographic equipment, at least $1,500 worth. Well, nothing will happen to it, Della assured him. You can keep it in your room and lock the door when you go out. Thank you very much. Jenny, Della called in the direction of the kitchen. Jenny, would you be kind enough to show this gentleman to his room? You know the one I mean, Mr. Farland's old room. The lodger went upstairs with Jenny, and Della passed through the kitchen and on outside. Ed was just walking up the lane. His clothes were covered with cake mud and water stains and dust. Well, we got him up, he announced, grinning. Every last tent pole. You must be bushed. I'm on fire. How about a beer? Sounds good to me. They walked together towards the house. And what about the mess tent, Della wanted to know. Did you get that up too? Sure. Even got the stoves hooked up. Only we didn't put it anywhere near the lake. Somehow it didn't seem quite private enough. So we stuck it in that field, the one past where we put up the sleeping tents. I'd like to see the place, Della said. Must be like an army camp. We'll go down tomorrow, Ed told her. Together. She felt her face color. It'll seem funny, she decided. Real strange going into a nudist camp. Oh, you'll get used to it in no time at all. Inside, Ed got beer out of the refrigerator and opened two cans. Arch and his wife were very pleased, Ed reported. They said that this was one of the nicest spots they'd ever seen. And ate it too. She thought it was the greatest. That's good. The bitter taste of the beer filled her mouth. You know something, Ed? We gotta get into town this afternoon and get a car. Ed nodded. And guess what? She asked, remembering the money the man paid her. I rented one of the rooms already. I thought I recognized Ken's car out there. I think he's a photographer. That's right. But he won't take any pictures, will he? I mean, I wouldn't think anyone would want. He'll just snap those who want their pictures taken, Ed said, finishing his beer. And that'll be most of them, Della. People are odd that way. And since we don't allow any cameras to be brought into camp by those guests, Arch has Ken on the staff to accommodate those who are interested. I see. Ed crossed the kitchen and put the empty beer can on the sink. You know, that's a good idea about the car, because I got to take the dock ba docks back this afternoon. We could leave Jenny here to check on arrivals while we run down to the landing. I'd rather Jenny went with you, Della said. She'll be driving the car most of the time, and maybe it would be better if she picked it out. I'll stay here and check them in. 
Ed came over and kissed her full in the mouth. You're a good sport, he said. Her eyes found his and held. I want to be. We won't be long. We'll get hold of something. I'll give you a check, but don't spend more than 500. Hell, we ought to get something pretty good for that. Jenny came in and Della sent her up to change. Ed washed up in the sink and Della tried to brush off his clothes with a paper towel. I'll bring my clothes and stuff back from town, he said. Maybe I can use one of the rooms upstairs. You know you can. He kissed her hard and for a moment she clung to him. Jenny and Ed left for the landing shortly after that, and they had hardly gotten out of sight before the cars began to arrive in earnest. They were a strange assortment of men and women, old and young, short and tall, fat and thin. A few had children with them, laughing, shouting kids who tore through the house while their parents registered. In less than two hours, more than 80 people had disappeared down the lane, their cars bumping through the dust. Della wondered vaguely what they would all look like with their clothes off. By this time tomorrow, she would know. Chapter 6 The morning was hot and sticky, the red sun rolling up into the sky like a giant ball of flame. A white sail stood motionless at the far end of Lake Sorrow, and overhead a pair of hawks circled lazily. Everyone is taken by this setting, Ed said. It couldn't be more beautiful. They were walking down the lane towards the woods. Ed had wanted to start out earlier, but Della had been obliged to help Jenny with some of the work. All the bedrooms had been occupied the night before, and one arrival had even slept on the couch. Close to a hundred people here already, Ed said, and we'll have more by tonight. Tomorrow, though, some will check out, and then during the week it will fall to about fifty or sixty. But we'll still be making money, Della said. Ed grinned at her. That's what I like about you. You got a cash register for a mind. She felt his hands on her arm, a warm and hard and a capable hand. She needed that hand. Last night she had admitted to herself lying there in bed. She hadn't been able to sleep and she had wanted Ed so badly that her legs had ached. Once she had heard him coming around the hall and had thought he was going to knock but he had passed her door without touching it. It had been a long night, a lonely night, and she had kept asking herself if she was different after all. Maybe she wasn't like the other girls, normal girls who didn't think of a man in that way. Or did a normal girl, if there was such a thing, have the same thoughts and simply not divulge them to anyone else? What was so wrong anyways with wanting a man? If a person needed a drink of water, they took it. If they were hungry, they ate. And if they needed love, well... If they really had to have someone to love them, why shouldn't they satisfy that appetite too? Well, of course, she was still Ricky's wife, but it was just a word, a silly title. It didn't mean anything, not anymore. And it never had, really. Ricky, with his foul mouth, his beatings, his drinking, and his other women, how could that be love? How could any woman be satisfied with that kind of love? How could a woman keep herself happy without some kind of love? Ed, she said, I'm nervous. I don't know whether I can do this. Della? What, Ed? His hand slipped away from her arm, moving around her waist. They walked along very close, very slow. They were near the lake, and she could smell the water, fresh and clean. A bass broke the surface, chasing a bug, and thousands of tiny fish leaped in alarm. There's nothing to worry about, he said. Everything's going to be fine, but I'll admit that it's hard the first time. It always is, Della. Don't leave me. She was surprised to find herself, somehow, rather afraid, every nerve in her body tingling. Stay with me. His hand squeezed her. You don't have to tell me twice. 
She could now see the cook tent through the dark shadows of the tree, its tan top reflecting the bright sun. A deerfly buzzed close to her hair, and as she jerked her hand away, it kissed her on the cheek. Where do we undress? I knew that was bothering you, he laughed. Not in the open, I hope. No, he said. You have some privacy even in a nudist camp. You undress by yourself, dress by yourself, and you go to the john by yourself. In all else, though, it is one great big group movement. But where? He smiled. You mean undress? Of course, silly. Well, there's a tent for men visitors and a tent for the women. The more or less permanent population have their own tents. The heat of the woods was damp and oppressive, and the pine needles crunched under their feet. As they neared the clearing, she could see tents and wash hanging out on several lines. She could smell coffee, beef roasting in a pan over a charcoal fire, and she saw several people there in the clearing walking around as naked as the day they were born. They play games in the morning, Ed explained, kicking a marshmallow box out of the way. In the afternoon, they usually lie in the sun or go swimming, but you have to be careful on a day like this unless your skin is heavily tanned already. The sun can burn you, and if you get too much of it at first, it can make you very ill. People who who have been nudists for years, never have that trouble. They get so brown that the tan hangs over from one year to the next. I know nudists who look during January as though they just got back from Florida. And hell, the farthest south they've ever been was Staten Island Ferry. They had reached the clearing. He led her towards a pair of tents immediately to the right. Yours is the first one. That's for ladies. And I'll use the other. Just leave your shoes on, that's all. Some people don't, but it isn't very good walking around here barefooted. You'll find some hats inside. Bring one out. You'll need one to keep the sun out of your eyes. And besides, it's the only place you'll have to carry your cigarettes and matches. She stopped in front of the tent, her heart beating rapidly. I'll wait inside for you, Ed. Okay. He walked off and she entered the tent. It was very hot in there, and the only light was the rays of the sun, which seeped through the canvas. She noticed two ropes strung down on either side, holding clothes that were kept fastened with spring-type clothespins. Hello, girl. The woman who sat on a camp stool in one corner was old and fat and ugly. The extent of her wearing apparel was a pair of faded blue sneakers. Her breasts hung down like gourds on an aged vine, and the heavy flesh of her stomach folded down over her upper thighs like a sack. Della remembered seeing the woman when she registered, and had thought then that the visitor looked rather trim for her age. How much could a girdle lie? You're the lady from the house, aren't you? Yes, Della said. We were wondering if you'd come down. Well, I got this far, Della admitted, but the rest of the way looks pretty rugged. Oh, shucks. The woman stood up, the flesh of her body sagging all over. Look at me, girl. Look at damned ugly horse if you ever saw one. And does it bother me? Not in the least. I go out there and hell around with them just the same. You must be used to it, Della acknowledged, unfastening her halter. You never get used to it, girl. Them's one who says you do, and there's others like me who say you don't. You just never do. That's all. I don't care what that Holden says in his lectures or what anyone else says. There's something about some of the human bodies you see that gets you. Della placed a halter along the line and stretched, her breasts plunging forward and out and alive. The woman laughed and plodded over to her. Then there's that'll really be interesting in her body, girl. She flung and unfastened her shorts. They were tight across her buttocks and she had to tug on them. She could feel the woman's eyes watching her every movement as she pulled the shorts down over her legs and stepped out of them. You're a very beautiful girl. And 
Like I say, you'll have plenty of them standing on end. You'll go to one of Holden's lectures. He's going to have one in a couple of minutes, and half of the people there won't be listening to him. Some of the women will be looking at you and trying to find something wrong with you, trying to figure something that they have that you haven't got. And the men? Well, you know how men are. They can prattle all they want about a naked man looking at a naked woman and not having an idea in the world, but it just isn't so. The only time that people don't have ideas is after they are dead, girly. Della Pinter closed on the line and then went to the front of the tent, waiting for Ed. You make it sound dirty, she told the woman. And it isn't that way at all. Oh, no? No, Della flirted angrily, her full breast heaving. Of course it isn't. This isn't exactly new to me, you know. In my own country, in Iceland, boys and girls and men and women often went swimming together without any clothes. And we used to take sun baths together and go get the good out of the sun. Nothing wrong happened then, and nothing wrong is going to happen here. The fat woman sighed and slowly lit a cigarette. No hard feelings, the woman said. I was just testing you, that's all. You got the right spirit, and you'll have a good camp. A shadow moved across the front of the tent and stopped. Hey, Della, you ready? Close your eyes, she laughed nervously. You close yours and I'll close mine. All right. And she did close her eyes as she pulled back the tent flap and stepped outside, entering a new world. A world of starkly naked flesh. A world where people lived and breathed and talked and did as they pleased. A world that was a throwback to the age of primeval man. A world of sunlight and respect and clean fun. The world of the nudist. The world that would be part of her future from this moment on. Della! Ed's voice was husky. You are beautiful. She kept her eyes closed, smiling up at him, the sun burning down, remembering and not caring she had forgotten to bring the hat. Am I, Ed? Am I beautiful? For answer, he kissed her once on the cheek lightly. She felt his hands touch her shoulders and move away, touch and move away again. You can open your eyes now, Della. In a second, there was a short silence. I'm not wearing any clothes either, Della. She smiled again, and the sun blazed across her skin. She wasn't afraid now, not sorry, not anything. The warm air flowed around her body, not hot, just warm and filled with life, reaching every tiny secret cell. The rays of the sun drove into her skin, burying themselves in her flesh, pumping into her blood, a feeling of luxury and freedom that she had not known since leaving Iceland. She smiled again and opened her eyes. Ed was beautiful, too. Her eyes regarded him in frank speculation. Then she took his arm, and they walked away from the tent. They went over to the badminton court, where the two men and two women were playing up a storm. A rather large group of onlookers shouted instructions and good-natured insults. Everybody has fun, Ed told her. It was strange, she thought, but she had looked at Ed just that one time. There was a tent, and now she stood unself-consciously with Ed beside her, strong and brown, and that was all that seemed to matter. It was all out in the open. A few minutes later, while Ed was over talking to some short guest with a lot of hair in his chest, she remembered what the fat woman had told her. The woman, she decided, was looking at her with some display of jealousy, especially the older ones. Or was it admiration? She didn't know. And the men? Well, to be frank with herself, she would have been unhappy if the men hadn't looked at her. After all, she did have a young and beautiful body, didn't she? And what woman didn't yearn to be admired by the male of the species? Mrs. Farland. She turned and found herself facing a boy of about 12. I'm Sidney Barnes, Miss Farland. The boy's eyes were soft blue and very bright. My daddy, he's playing badminton over there. Said to tell you what a nice place you have. 
He said for Mimi to do that too, if she saw you. A sense of accomplishment swelled within Della's bosom. Thank you, she said. Thank you very much, Sydney. She watched the boy run off just as a shot went up from the crowd and the badminton match ended. Ed returned and stood beside her. It's a good crowd, he said, and they're enjoying themselves. Yes, and they all like you, which is a help. I think I like them, she said seriously. A whistle blew sharply, and Della jumped. Lecture time, Ed laughed. There's a lecture given every morning on the benefits of nudism. Of course, the old hands have heard it all before, but they like to hear it again. I guess it's a little bit like listening to your favorite political candidate. The men, women, and children began moving across the field towards one of the towering maples. You ought to hear one of the, these talks, Ed told her. Arch and his daughters can put on a spiel when they're in the mood. They followed the crowd. I really ought to be getting back to the house, Stella said. Getting cold feet? No, surprisingly, I just feel the other way about it. He smiled and got cigarettes out from under his hat. He lit two and handed one to her. I keep forgetting, he said. This isn't new to you. You probably saw more new bodies in Iceland than most of these people will ever see. Well, it isn't quite the same, Della told him thoughtfully. I don't know just how to say it, but in Iceland, Ed, it is quite a natural thing. While here in the States, it seems to be a challenge, something to do that others are afraid to do. They stopped under the shade of the big maple, Arch Holden not looking at all like he had in clothes, but more like a small brown bear stood in the middle of a large semicircle. To his left was his daughter, Ada, and when Della saw the girl, she let out a little gasp of astonishment. Ada, without any exaggeration, had the most perfectly formed body Della had ever seen. Her legs were long and delicately shaped, her hips wide and soft, her stomach was very narrow, with just the hint of a bulge at the navel, and her breasts were full, wide apart, and jutting. Long black hair hung down almost to her shoulders, blowing gently in the breeze, and her red lips were parted in a wet, provocative smile. She's lovely, Della breathed. You must mean Ada. Yes. Well, I'll give her credit for that, Ed agreed. She's got the shape of a Hollywood star. Della glanced at Ed sharply. She couldn't decide whether his voice had been edged with hate, distrust, or love. And his face, now smiling down at her, told her nothing. Arch Holden began to speak. He said he wished to welcome everyone to the new camp and to thank Della for her hospitality, then commented on the many new faces present. New faces are as welcome as the sun to a nudist, he said. New faces mean that more and more people are seeking the benefits of nudism. They mean that more and more people recognize the merits of our movement, want to assemble with us, and enjoy the great outdoors. He's a corker when he gets going, Ed whispered like a seven-day clock with a ten-year mainspring. The value of the sun, Holden went on, has long been recognized by the medical professions. Take the ray treatments used in hospital therapy, for example. Ultraviolet and infrared rays are used to help rebuild tired bodies, to bring new life to old cells, to make sick people well again. These rays are found in sunlight. Why then does the medical profession and the law often frown upon the practice of nudism? A hush had settled over the crowd. The law says, Holden continued, that it is not right for the human male to view the human female in the undressed state. Why then is it right for a male doctor to treat female patients? Why is it right for a female doctor to treat male patients? In both cases, the patient often must undress. You ask the law, folks. Don't ask me. I figured and figured and I'm damned if I know why it is. Makes sense to you? Ed wanted to know. Yes. Now take the sun. Holden was saying. 
There are seven colors in the rays of the sun, seven colors whose wavelengths the bodies of men and women need. And in clothes, we don't get them. We get barely enough to keep alive, and that's all. If you don't believe me, put a person in a totally dark room and keep him there. See how long he lives. It won't be long. He'll soon die. And why? I'll tell you why. Because he didn't get any sun. That's why. You ask any doctor, and he'll tell you it's so. He'll admit it. And then he'll tell you that a camp such as we have here is wrong. That it's immoral. You tell me who is nuts. You tell me, folks. The damn law, one man said. It ought to be changed. Of course it should be changed, Holden agreed. But I'm not going to keep you here all morning talking about it. All I do in these lectures is tell you a little more about nudism each time and ask you to think about it. I'm asking you to do that today. And I'm asking you to think about one thing in particular. Do you believe that in groups such as ours, everybody the same, no mysteries, that there could possibly be as many sex crimes as in a similarly sized group fully clothed? Of course not. And I say sex crimes. I did not say sex acts. The sexual act is the very foundation of the human race. And anyone who disputes it is disputing their right to live. If anyone believes that sex is degrading, that it is something that should be kept hidden, then they themselves should go into hiding, because they themselves are the result of the union of a man and a woman. Holden terminated his lecture with the same suddenness with which he had begun it. For a few moments, the people kept standing around, as though waiting for more, and then they started to drift away. Art should have been a politician, Ed said. He'd have had Congress sitting around in bare skins. Della burst out laughing. Just the thing in a democracy. They walked back across the field, and when they got to the dressing tents, Ed gave her a little kiss on the back of the neck. Go get your clothes on and run all along, he said. I've got some things to take care of, and I'll join you later. For lunch? Maybe. He kissed her again, and then she pushed the flap back and stepped inside the tent. She dressed with distaste. The clothes gave her a feeling of being bandaged from head to foot. A few minutes later, she left the tent, hurried through the woods and met Jenny coming down the road near the lake. I wasn't going to go all the way down there, Jenny, said hastily. Not me, Mrs. Farland, but I just had to find you. Why? What's wrong? It's Mr. McFarland. Jenny exclaimed breathlessly. He comes charging into the house and he wanted to know where you were. I never seen him so mad. Jenny clasped her hands firmly together and her eyes were frightened. That's why I just had to find you, Mrs. Farland to tell you to stay away from the house. The way he is? Well, it's hard to say what he'll do. Where is he now? In the kitchen, when I left. All right, Della said, her voice steady. I'll talk to Mr. Farland, if that's what he wants. Jenny tried to hold her, but she pushed the girl's hand away. He's awful mad. Honest, he is. If I were you, I wouldn't... I'm not afraid of him, Della said. I'm not afraid of him one little bit. She walked quickly up the road towards the house. Chapter 7 Ricky wasn't in the kitchen, but she heard him in the living room moving around. Ricky! He turned and faced her as she came into the room. He flung a magazine out of his hand and strode towards her. I see your reading habits have settled into the sewer, he said. The magazine had fallen face up. She saw it was a nudist monthly, which a man who had occupied the couch had been reading. She hadn't looked at the pictures or thought about the magazines. It hadn't meant anything to her one way or another. That isn't what you came here for, Della said. To criticize my reading? You're a damn poor sport, he told her. I called Tom Fielding the other night, and he told me what you said and how you acted. 
I, I couldn't believe it. Ricky's tone was angry, his eyes very dark. I hadn't taken a drink, not all week, and I hadn't had much luck with the fish, but I kept telling myself that I'd already drunk enough for two lives, that I had to cut it out, and that I had to pull myself together. Not for me, Della reminded him bitterly, for Sally. Well, Sally, sure, and for me, for my own sake. He turned away, shaking his head. But you don't care. Hell, you don't give a damn. When Tom told me, I, I couldn't believe it. Oh, I was sore at Tom, of course. I was. I'm still sore, but it isn't all his fault. You behaved dishonestly, baby. You backed down on an agreement. Ricky was different, she thought, now that he was sober. There was none of his drunken arrogance, none of the surness usually characterizing him. He looked fit, though, his eyes and skin both clear. She heard someone coming down the stairs, and she crossed the room. It was the photographer, dressed in swim trunks and sandals. Hi, member, he said to Ricky, then squinting at Della. You better be sure about that stuff being all right. I lose that equipment, and I might as well drop dead two minutes after. I told you it would be safe, didn't I? Stop worrying. Enjoy yourself. How could I do that? He wanted to know, pushing open a secret door. Half the fun in life is worrying. Who's that character? Ricky demanded. Uh, rumor? You must have a lot of rumors, baby. There's about nine million cars out back. Well, I've got a lot of uh, rumors. He came towards her, feet shuffling on the thick carpet. Della, what are you hiding? What's going on? You better tell me, or... She faced him squarely. She had determined how she was going to do this, how she was going to handle him. For the first time since she had known Ricky, she struck him. She slapped him across the face with her right hand. His hand snapped back, and she could feel the sting go all the way to her elbow. You have no right to ask questions of me anymore, she told him savagely. Her face was deeply white. This isn't your home, Ricky. It's mine. You gave up all your rights in it the day you walked out on me. So don't ask me who's here and who isn't or anything else. It's none of your business. The red marks on her fingers marred one side of her, his face. He sneered at her. You little bitch, he stormed. You damn hussy. She hit him again on the other side. And don't call me names. Don't ever call me names again, Ricky Farland. You've been cursing at me for a year, and I'm sick and tired of it. You called me every stinking rotten name you could think of, but I'm not going to listen to it anymore. What do you think you've been talking to anyway? The piece of furniture? You think I have no feelings? That those things don't hurt me? Surprise filled his eyes, and he backed away from her, fumbling for a cigarette, his shoulders slumping. Now, baby, look here. She tossed her hair out of her eyes and stepped closer to him. And don't call me baby ever again. You hear that, Ricky? Never again. You call me that name once more, and you'll wake up thinking you married a wildcat. He rubbed his face thoughtfully, staring at her. Maybe I did, he said. It started coming out then, all of it, all the pent-up hatred fostered by his abuse. She hadn't ever wanted to say it, to put into words. But he was there, and she hated him, and she couldn't help herself. So now I'm a wildcat. Is that it? Before, I was an iceberg or a fish head or a fishtail or a whore or some other terrible thing. The only difference was in how much you had to drink, whether you had fun with some other woman. You hear me, Ricky? Or how you wanted to humiliate me in front of other people. For God's sake, Della, Ricky's face was ashen. Knock it off. She could feel it inside of her swelling up, churning in her blood like flood waters in a river. She wanted to get it finished and over and done with, to cut the rope that had tied them, to 
cut it so clean, so certainly that no one, nobody would ever be able to slice it for them again. Knock it off, Della threw back her head laughing. Knock it off. Is that all you can think of? Knock it off? What about Sally? She demanded brutally. Did you ever knock that off? Della, I'm telling you. You're telling me nothing, she raged. I'm telling you. I'll give you the house, you said. I'll give you the money you've got in the bank, you said. Just a great big generous. You've got all that, Della. You know you did. Shut up. You know why you're so big hearted? I know. Nobody told me, but I know. You don't have to thank me for it, but Sally. You know what she said? Just what I would have said. You can't just kick her out, she said. What would people think? Yes. What would people think and gossip about? Ricky Farlin, the big shot, kicking out a girl he dragged more than 3,000 miles to marry. No, you couldn't just kick me out, Ricky, because some of the people you know, some of those who are important to you socially, might not buy that kind of treatment. Some people still believe in some sort of justice, and you're just smart enough to know it. So by giving me something, by being so big-hearted, you make yourself out a hero, and you turn your wife into a bum. Ricky wheeled and flung the cigarette into the fireplace. I never saw you like this before. Hell, I thought we could sit down and talk things over. I thought, there's nothing to talk about, Della assured him. You signed you'd give me the house and the money, and I use up the money, and I wouldn't know what to do. You know the Icelandic council here can't help anyone except to put them on one of those terrible fishing boats and send them back home. You know that, Ricky. You know it, and that's what you wanted to happen to me. But you won't, you hear me? It won't happen at all. Even if you hadn't given a dime, even if you'd kicked me out, it still wouldn't have happened because I work, Ricky. I'll work, and I'll earn money, and I'll never be the helpless fool you think I am. Look, he said, spreading his hands wide. Look. Why can't we talk this thing over? I tell you, there's nothing to talk over. You said it all before, Ricky. Listen to me, will you? He wandered over to the couch and sat down. You don't understand, Della. I've got to have this divorce. I've got to. Well, then go ahead and get it. You could make it easy for me, he insisted. You could go somewhere and get it quickly. No, thank you. Della, please. His tone was desperate. You don't understand. It's money. He hesitated, looking straight at her. I'm broke, Della. Broke. Broke? She was genuinely shocked. I don't understand. You... The taxes took a lot, Ricky explained wearily. And the business wasn't worth anything at all. I thought it was. But with half the equipment in Iceland and the other half on the way, the outfit wasn't worth a strong breath. Not when the work was canceled out and we didn't have any other jobs to do. Just an office. Not even worth the time to took to unlock the door and close it again. But you must have known, Della protested, all this time. You still don't understand, do you? You don't understand what it's like to have a lot of money and then find out you had nothing at all. It was hard for me to believe money wasn't there anymore. Oh, a little cash was around for a while, but now every cent is gone. You wasted enough of it. He stood up, his face coloring. Sure, this house and the cars, your bank account, your maid. You wanted at least that much out of this marriage, she flared. I wasn't getting anything else. And you were right about the woman, he said, ignoring her. There were a lot of them. But it was your fault, Della, just as much as it was mine. Don't blame me. But I do, partly. It was one of those things you read about and yet don't believe. You can't see how two people, a man and a woman, well, you get things about that in the mail sometimes. The psychologists call it a lack of adjustment or some other such silly thing. But maybe that's just as good a word as any other. 
I read once that just a change of climate could do it, create tension. I hadn't thought about it until this last week. Not at all. And then when the fish don't bite, I got to thinking. I wondered if maybe, but what the hell, what's the use of talking about it that now? None whatever, Della replied. Then just give me the divorce, he said. It isn't fair for you to stand in my way. What is fair then? That you give it to me. That you don't act like this. And let you go just like that, Della demanded. It doesn't matter. We don't mean anything to each other anymore. I don't argue that. Well, there's no sense in what you're doing. Not a bit. She turned her back on him deliberately. You want me to make it easy for you to marry Sally, is that it? That's part of it. And the other part? Della probed. She looked out the window, down across the lake. No sail was in sight, but you could see Jenny down along the shore, skipping rocks on the water. It's money, isn't it? You need money, and you can't get any of it until you get the Behringer name behind you. And you can't use the Behringer name until you use Sally, or have you already used her? She could hear only the sounds of Ricky's heavy breathing. He did not answer. That's the deal, isn't it, Ricky? I should have guessed before. I should have realized she was buying you. But if you needed money so badly, why don't you just go to your sister? Gladys has plenty. Won't she help you? He had stepped closer to her. She could hear his breathing. Won't she? Gladys would, Ricky said finally. But that husband of hers, he's a slob. To hear him talk, you'd think that being a doctor was the only important thing in life, even if you're unsuccessful at it. He keeps saying he doesn't want to live on his wife's money. But do you know what? He's living on it all the time. Why, he doesn't make enough even to pay for that fancy apartment he's bought. Not half enough. You think he'd let her lend me any dough? You think he'd take a chance on losing some of it? You're as nuts as they come if you think that. Ricky, she thought. Ricky, you're a fool. You've gone and loused things up. You've made a mess of things from start to finish. Only you haven't finished yet. As a matter of fact, you haven't even started yet, Ricky. Della, baby. His hands suddenly were on her shoulders, pulling her body close. Now don't get sore, he said quickly. Don't get angry at me. I don't call you baby to irritate you. It's just that, well, it's sort of natural. It's what I just naturally like to call you. I don't like it. I know that. His fingers gripped her shoulders. I know that. But you got to help me, Della. You can't let me down now. I was born in this town, brought up here. This is my home. Maybe it isn't your home, but it's my home. i got to make a living here, and I've got to have a chance to do that. All I'm asking for you is the divorce. I'm not asking you for one other thing. Hell, if you need some money, I'll even start giving you some as soon as I'm making it. I can't right now, but maybe later on I can. Whatever you want, I'll give you. So help me. God, I will, Della. But I've got to have that divorce. Do you understand? I've got to have it. I understand, she said. She raised her hands and loosened his fingers, moved away. She picked up a cigarette and lit it slowly. Only you're not getting it, Ricky. And another thing, she smiled. She would give it to him now. She would give it to him good. She would give it to him so much that he would never want to come back for more. She'd drive it into him like a spike. And every time he looked inside himself, he'd see the wound. He'd see the wound, and he'd know that she had put it there, and it would never, never heal. That man you saw coming down the stairs, she continued, he's a nudist. A what? A nudist. You know, a person who runs around without clothes on. The hell you say, Ricky breathed. And those cars out there, the ones parked in back, 
All the cars belong to uh, nudists. Ricky looks stunned, as though she had struck him with a claw hammer. The field past the woods is filled with them, darling. If you don't believe me, go and see for yourself. You might even find a woman down there that would appeal to you. There's one who's a real goddess. Holy cow, Ricky said finally, staring at her. Do you know what you're doing? Of course I know. Nudist? That's right. It's why it's against the law. Oh, no, it isn't. Not New Jersey. Not so long as they behave themselves and mind their own business. I don't believe you. She shrugged. You know I never lie. He took out a cigarette, but he didn't light it. What will people say? Who cares what they say? I don't. But I do. I'm sorry, she said, not sorry at all. That's too bad. He dropped the cold cigarette to the rug and kicked it aside. So that's it, he said. You're going to make as much muck as you can, and you're going to drag me through it. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, exactly. The hell you had it, his eyes challenged her. You got it all figured out, haven't you? You started this nudist camp or outdoor brothel or whatever it is. Ricky! And you know it'll kick up a stink. And you know that as long as I'm married to you, whether I want to be or not, there's a lot of people are going to think it's just as much my fault as yours. But it isn't going to work that way, baby. It isn't going to work that way at all. It isn't? His eyes toward her desperate. You're damned right it isn't. His voice rose to a shout. I'll drag you into court. I'll drag you into a hundred courts if I have to. And I'll get that divorce. And I'll get that divorce. You see if I don't. If it's a fight you want, it's a fight you're going to get. Because you're not going to stand in my way. I'll walk over you like you're so much dirt under my feet. A nudist camp. Why, you miserable slut. It's just the ticket for you. She waited a long while, just looking at him, her breast heaving before she spoke again. So it's a fight you're going to give me, she wondered. You know it. And what do you think your Sally will say to that? She wants my divorce as much as I do. Even if you have to fight me? His smile was crooked. Even to a fight. And what will she say about all the filthy things that will come out? Everyone will know about your nudist camp by then anyways. And the other things won't make any difference. I see. He moved towards her. It's up to you, he said, entirely. She looked up to his face and laughed. She would give it to him now, all the way. She'd open up the wound, and now she'd salt it. You said Sally wants the divorce as much as you do. That's right. Why? Why, if you're already married, you have to get a divorce before you can get married again, don't you? Only an idiot would ask a question like that. Oh, Della said demurely. I thought she might be in the same condition as Jenny. She might what? You heard me. You must be nuts, Ricky said. Absolutely nuts. Yes, she repeated, like Jenny. And you made her that way, Ricky. Only you're not going to get away with it. Not for any lousy $200. Not for a lot of dollars. You're never getting away with it. I have a paper that Jenny signed, and it says you're the father. You're going to pay, Ricky Farland. You're going to pay and pay and pay. You're going to... You crazy bitch! He was waving clenched fists. She backed away from him hastily. Take it to court, she dared him. Take the divorce to court and I'll wreck you. I'll drag out every bit of dirt that you followed yourself with. Bitch, he said between his teeth. I'll teach you, she promised, still backing away. You'll learn the hard way. His face was livid. She could see a giant pulse beating just beneath his chin, and he rubbed his hands across his eyes. Huge beats of sweat dripped from his face and disappeared into the carpet. 
He was moving towards her. You bitch, he kept repeating. You miserable bitch. And then, quite suddenly, Della felt a wave of terror sweep through her, twisting every jagged nerve. Something inside Ricky had torn loose. His mind was running wild. She could see it in his deadly, unblinking eyes, the knotted curl of his fingers. Get out of here, she screamed frantically. You bitch, he said again. He wasn't shouting now. He kept saying the word over and over as if he were memorizing it. He began to straighten, his shoulders squaring. A nerve twitched at one corner of his mouth. Ricky, for the love of God. She wanted to run, but she couldn't. Desperately, she looked away from him. Where was everyone? Where was Jenny and Ed? If Ed were only with her. But he wasn't. Nobody was. And she was scared. Ricky, please. God, Ricky. He hit her with his fist, full in the mouth, driving her backwards. She stumbled, not feeling any pain at all, and went sprawling to the couch. Bitch, he shouted, following her. No. She became aware of the salt taste of the blood, and her whole face began to ache. No, Ricky. He grabbed her, lifting her. She thought he was going to strike her again, and she closed her eyes, afraid of what she would see if she didn't. His face. She didn't want to look at his face. She couldn't. It was the face of a man gone mad, of a man struggling down a fearful and lonely road, or perhaps that of a man at the end of such a road. I'll teach you, Ricky promised bitterly. He grabbed the halter, ripping it loose. She could feel a thin line across her back, like a sting of a whip, where the material had buried itself before breaking. You want to be a nudist? He grated as her naked breast plunged into view. I'll make you a damn nudist. I'll kill you for that, she whispered furiously. Stand over there, he directed, and let's see what the other fellows are looking at these days. You'll pay for this, she thought. You'll pay big for this, Ricky. Get out of here, she told him. Her eyes were open now, and she could feel the swelling around the left one. Her mouth was sore and her nose ached. Not before I'm finished, baby. Again, he began stalking her. I hadn't even started yet. The cold stone of the fireplace pressed into her back, and she moved sideways quickly as he lunged. Her left hand sought and found the heavy iron log fork, and she whirled upon him as she raised the fork high over her head. I'll knock your brains out, she threatened. His glance raced to the waiting fork. Hey now, he said, retreating. Put that thing down. I'll put it through your skull. The fork made a hissing sound as it swept through the air and downward. Ricky let out a shout and bolted for the door. Keep moving, she advised as he lingered by the door. And don't come back, so help me God. I'll kill you if you do, Ricky. He stared at her, uncertain for a moment. I'll buy that, he said finally. I think maybe you would. He opened the door. You're wrong about one thing, he said, looking back at her. Jenny, I didn't have anything to do with Jenny. She told me she needed the money and I gave it to her. That's all there was to it. You're a liar. The hinge of the screen door squealed. You sure got a pair, he remarked and spat on the floor. The door slammed behind him and his footsteps were over and down off the porch. Slowly, her body shake and uncontrollably, she rested the fork against the side of the fireplace. She picked up the halter and looked at it, torn beyond repair. In disgust, she threw it on the floor. She turned, holding her head very high and fighting back the tears, and walked to the stairs. By the time she reached her room, she was sobbing. Chapter 8 The state police arrived early the following morning, Sunday. Ed had just gone down to the reservation and Jenny was in the kitchen worrying about carving four chickens for dinner. Honest, the girl said. With all this business going on, we should have to cook. We should. Della, 
had seen the police car pull around back and stop. She waited until the trooper got out, and then she went over to the kitchen door. We'll get a cook, Della promised. If we're still in business after this man leaves, that is. Jenny joined her at the door. Lordy, she gasped. I bet we won't be. I bet someone's going to get in a lot of trouble about all the naked people around. The trooper came up the porch. Mrs. Farland? Yes, I'm Mrs. Farland. I'll go upstairs and make the beds, Jenny said hastily. Della went out and leaned against the railing. The sun burned down hot against the white shorts and white halter. Her face was still sore from Ricky's blow, and it hurt when she smiled. May I help you? she said. The trooper stared at her from behind dark glasses. Well, I came up to investigate a complaint we received, he said. Frankly, I don't know if there's anything to it, but we've been told you're operating a nudist colony. <clears throat> Camp, Della corrected him. We're no, we no longer call them colonies. They are camps, health camps. Oh, the trooper seemed uncertain. Then you don't deny it? Of course not. She moved away from the railing and went down the steps. Naturally, if you wish to see the camp, you're welcome to do so at any time. The trooper removed his dark glasses and grinned. You mean that? Why, certainly. Well, I don't know anything about that, the trooper said. I was just sent up here to find out about it. It's up to you, Della said. We have nothing to hide. Well, I'm damned, the trooper said incredulously. A nudist camp? There's nothing wrong about having a nudist camp up here, Della explained carefully. I mean, there's no law against having one. Just against indecent exposure, officer. And there's none of that here. Not that I've seen, the trooper agreed. The reservation is beyond those trees, past the lake, and it's all private property. I see. It wouldn't seem as though we're violating any law, would it? The trooper shifted his weight from one foot to the other. No, I guess not. We mind our own business, and we expect other people to mind theirs. He came down and stood beside her. His glance was curious. Are you, Mrs. Farland, are you a nudist? I own the property, she explained, and I do practice it when I go on the reservation, but that is all. You mean, you have to take your clothes off when you go down there? Della nodded. Well, I'll be damned. The trooper took a deep breath and his gun belt creaked. We want to abide by the law, Della assured him. Oh, I think you're doing that all right. As you say, the law concerns itself with indecent exposure. And there doesn't appear to be any of that around here. Thank you, officer. It just sounds kind of crazy, that's all. What does? People running around with their clothes off, he shrugged. But everybody to their own way of doing things. The trooper turned abruptly and started towards the black and white ford. Officer? Yes, Mrs. Farland? May I ask you who put in the complaint about us? Somebody said it was your husband. I thought so. Ricky, she thought, you're a poor loser. I imagine somebody will be out here from the Board of Health to look at your camp, the trooper said, getting into the car. He closed the door and looked at her. Would a fellow, say this old doc, the one that goes around to the summer places, and who now says he wants to see the camp, would he have to take his clothes off too? He'd feel out of place if he didn't, the trooper nodded thoughtfully. Yeah, he decided. I guess I suppose he would. Then as he started the car, he laughed. Man, I can see it now. That poor old Doc Jurgens, a rack of bones if there ever was one, running around in his birthday suit and lugging his big black bag. Boy, that would be the day. The trooper, still laughing, backed the car around and drove off down the road. The trooper would have a lot of fun out of that, Della thought, returning to the house. Most likely he'd head straight back to his station and tell, so he could tell the boys about it. 
Maybe he'd tell them about the nudist camp and the naked woman and a lot of other things that he's never seen. And the boys would tell somebody else, and eventually the world would be around the whole countryside. By that time, the camp wouldn't be a nudist camp at all, but a serglio under the trees, and the stories would get bigger and nastier. After a while, the people would hear so many yarns that they'd get to believing them, and then the same people who had started the stories would be angry at the cops because the cops didn't enforce the law. It would still be the same clean camp for those who wanted to enjoy it, but it would be nothing but a sex farm as far as the gossips were concerned. Oh, Mrs. Farland, Mrs. Farland. A couple with two children were coming up the lane and Della waited for them, thinking of Ricky and how he had encouraged the very thing he feared. You fool, Ricky, you stupid fool, she thought. Now the rumors would start and the tongues would wag and filth would seep through the town. But in the end, it would be the worst for him because he'd be in town not knowing if it was true. And she'd be up there in the hills knowing that it was nothing but lies, all lies. Mrs. Farland, the woman said, I'm afraid we have to check out. The boy and girl ran down the house chasing a butterfly, and the husband stood to one side, his face very white. So soon? Della was surprised. I certainly hope that nothing happened to displease you. Now, don't you worry about that, the woman said, glancing at her husband. It's Mr. Niles and his terrible ulcer. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't be, Mr. Niles said. The thing raises hell all the time. And I thought the sun might help it, but it didn't. So I think I better get down to Trenton and see the doctor. But we'll be back, Mrs. Niles promised. You have a lovely place here, Mrs. Farland. So well run. Person feels safe. Thank you. It's more than you can save for some nudist camps, Mrs. Niles explained. Della was about to mention the bill when Mr. Niles handed her a pair of 20s and told her it was close enough and that she should keep the change. Then the mother went about rounding up the children, and Della waited until they drove off, waving after them. Let Ricky kick up all the fuss he wished to. Let the cops come every day, as long as the people enjoyed themselves and were happy. Take the Niles family, for instance. A man and a woman and two grown youngsters, and they had been pleased. Not only that, but it was obvious that the children had been satisfied, and that was the most important. Children, especially those of pre-teen age, were often dubious about nudism. This was partly due to the fact that they had reached the age of body curiosity. When age was speculation and doubt were often mistaken for the truth. Jenny somewhat breathlessly met Dell in the hall. I don't want you to think I was snooping, Jenny stated hurriedly. I wasn't. I was just changing his bed, like I always do. And I flopped the mattress over and whose bed? Why, I don't know. That Mr. What's-his-name? The man who, with all those things that we put in Mr. Farland's room? You mean the photographer? Jenny's face darkened and she laughed. If that's what he does, he sure as hell takes some dandies she said. And if he don't take any pictures, he must be in the collecting business. I never saw so many naked women in all my life. And men, men too. You'd hardly believe it, Mrs. Farland. That's his business, Della said, taking pictures. And it's none of yours. Jenny looked sullen. I know, Mrs. Farland. I just thought you ought to know. Well, I did know. Jenny turned and went back down the hall, Della following. She had to make certain that the girl hadn't disturbed any of the photographer's materials, or he'd be furious. Della entered the room. Photography cases were scattered all around. A shirt was thrown over the back of the chair, and a pair of pants lay on a heap on the floor. Evidently, the occupant had rinsed out a pair of socks, that were, and these were draped over the Venetian blinds drying in the breeze. But Della saw hardly any of these things, or the bottle on the dresser, or the cigarette butts on the floor. She couldn't lift her stare from the black springs of the bed. There must be a hundred or more of them, Jenny said. Dirty pictures, Mrs. Farland. 
Della bent forward and examined the pictures. Some were of individuals, men and women, while others were either of couples or small groups. She recognized a few as people she had seen on the reservation. The dirt is all in your mind, Della told the girl, dropping the mattress back into place. There's nothing wrong with these pictures. But they're all naked, Mrs. Farland. And so are you, Della told her on the way out of the room, twice a day, when you dress and when you get undressed. And if it's wrong for them, it's wrong for you. The only thing they did was have their pictures taken. Smiling, Della descended the stairs. People were funny, she thought. Really funny. To believe that a photo of a human body was immoral was to believe that every fiber and every muscle was a secret vice. Of course, she realized that her background and training were considerably different from those of an American, because in Iceland, even the magazines had a lot of nakedness in them. Not the types found in the States, not retouched stuff, but real natural nakedness. And the movies, well, a good movie in Iceland was the kind of movie that left extremely little to the imagination. Della sauntered into her own bedroom, walking over to the window and stood looking out. What a beautiful place, she thought, as her eyes caressed the wide green lawn, the silver saucer of the lake, the magnificent towering trees. How wonderful it was to look down there and know that at last she was putting her energy into something worthwhile, something that was real and vital. Gaily, she turned away from the window and lit a cigarette. It was such a glorious, satisfying thing to be aware that she would not have not only earn a nice income through helping the nudists in their movement, but that she might also be able to contribute something to a better understanding of their cause. Of course, Arch Holden and the others were nudists, but they were nudists by cultivation and had acquired conviction rather than by natural inclination. They had not been brought up as she had to accept the human body as a part of everyday living and to feel no shame in its necessary functions. True, they claimed to feel that way, and they said that they did, but it was a manufactured belief not a belief that came from deep inside. Hastily, she left the room and descended the stairs. She wanted to see Ed right away and talk to him about this. She felt that he would be pleased, that he would recognize her outlook, as she did, as a solid foundation upon which they could build the biggest and finest nudist camp in the States. A camp without mysteries, she thought. A camp that could get everyone the best in everything they might seek. Outside, the sun burned down hot and steady. The grass was very dry, crackling, and she could hear the grasshoppers leaping for safety as she moved quickly down the lane. Just as she reached the lake, a woodchuck whistled and scurried for cover, and from the safety of the deep woods, a blue jay scolded her soundingly. Hot, an unclothed man said as they met in the woods. Very. Great place you have here, Mrs. Farland. I'm glad you like it. She approached the clearing. Several people stood around a boy playing an accordion, and slightly beyond, a handful of onlookers cheered another badminton match. Della looked about for Ed, but she did not see him, nor did she see any of the Holdens. She paused only briefly, still searching, and then entered the woman's dressing tent. Oh, hi there. Della blinked, driving the brightness of the sun from her eyes. Oh, hello, she said. It was Ada Holden. Lovely day. Yes, Della agreed. Then, have you seen Ed? No, but he's around somewhere. Thanks. Della untied her halter and slipped out of it. There's one thing I meant to ask you, Mrs. Farland. Ada leaned forward and cupped her breasts into a sheer net bra. What do you think of the nudist camp business so far? I think it's fine. Honestly? Why, of course. Della's glance sought out the figure of the girl on the opposite side of the tent. I think it's wonderful that people can observe their beliefs. And I believe that it's healthy. I really do. Well, hell, Ada exclaimed. 
As the thin blue dress slid down over her body, clinging to every curve. It sure feels good to hide your belongings once in a while. Sometimes I get tired of running around with all of me showing. Della put the halter and shorts on the clothesline and fastened a pin in place. Anything you need from town? Ada wanted to know. I'm driving in. No, thanks. Jenny and Ed had brought up the groceries the night before. She recalled now how disgusted she had felt when she had first seen the second-hand station wagon. A 49 Ford with part of the woodwork rotted away. But she felt better about it when told that they had only paid 195 for it, that the tires were good and that the motor had been recently overhauled. I don't know how you feel about it, Ada said, but for my money, there isn't anything more disgusting than a naked man. I hadn't really thought an awful lot about it, Ada sighed and hooked her stockings into place. No one could ever say that about you, Mrs. Farland. Her smile flashed and lingered. You have a truly beautiful body, and I'm sure you're admired by both men and women. And yours is beautiful, too. Do you really think so? Yes. She let Ada alone in the tent and hurried over to where the lad was playing the accordion. No, Mrs. Loring isn't here, a woman with sagging, a sagging chest told her. Try the Holden's tent. Why don't you? That's the second one down, on the left. But Ed wasn't there either. Mrs. Holden, who was sitting at an upended trunk writing a letter on a portable typewriter, said it was too hot for anyone to be around very much anyways. Take a look at the fourth one down, Arch Holden suggested, sitting on an ancient army cot. Almost in the same motion, he yawned and stretched out wearily. Uh, maybe he's there. All of the tents were the same with the exception of the fourth one, and the only thing different about this one was the sign, Supplies, No Charge Accounts, stapled on the flap. Ed, Della called. Ed Loring. The flap moved, and beneath her hand and Ed's face appeared. He grinned and winked at her. Well, surprise, he said. His eyes slid down over her body. I thought you'd be up at the house. Ed, I just had to see you. His grin widened, and he pushed the flap aside. Well, come in. She slipped through the opening of the tent. There was a table in the middle, with boxes piled high all around, and a canvas partition about three-quarters of the way to the rear. Above the table, a huge mirror facing downward hung from the ridgepole. First, Della told him, the police were here. Ed looked startled. And what happened? Nothing. I think everything was all right. Fine. Ricky is the one who turned in the complaint, and I imagine there'll be others. Ed's face came very close and his voice was soft. Not getting chicken, are we? Della laughed. No. Ed kissed her full in the mouth, pulling her in tight. Their flesh touched, fused for a moment, and then she slipped away from him. I wanted to talk to you, Ed, she said seriously, about the camp and a couple of other things. He leaned up against a pile of cartons, watching her. Shoot, he said. Well, to begin with, Jenny's found a bunch of pictures in that photographer's room. She must have been snooping. Oh, she was. But the point is, Ed, I don't think we should have a photographer on the grounds. It seems to me that if we don't have one, and if we only take married couples or parents or children, well, there can't ever be any trouble. There isn't any trouble now. No, she admitted. There isn't, but look, Ed said, coming over to her. I know how you feel because I feel the same way. I wouldn't want my picture taken, and I'm sure you wouldn't. But we have to remember that a lot of people go for a thing like that. Ken is hired by Arch to render service to those who want it. Isn't it better to take a regular photographer on the staff than it is to take a chance on some nut sneaking a camera into the grounds? Della thought about that for a moment. Suppose you're right. Good. 
He put his hand under her chin and tilted her head back. As for the couples, you've seen the crowd we have here, Della. They're all nice folks. And some of them, maybe some of them aren't married. I don't know. All I know is that they behave themselves and that they act like ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what more you can ask from human beings. Not much, Della agreed. But we do have to be careful, Ed. Honestly. If we should have just one little thing happen, just one, it could cause us all kinds of trouble. And it would ruin something for both of us, something that can be very fine. He kissed her again harder this time, and she didn't try to get away. Don't you worry, he told her. Nothing's going to happen. I just want to be sure. I'll talk to Ken about those pictures. I'll ask him not to leave them around anymore. He ought to know better than that anyways. All right. You just leave it up to me. His lips moved against her mouth. You just leave everything to Ed Loring. You just do that, and you keep on belonging to me, and we'll both be happy. She pushed herself up on her toes, returning his kiss. Oh, Ed. She let out a little cry as his big hand caressed her. You're beautiful. She felt the rich strength of his body as he pulled her closer. You're pretty too, she said. Hell, a man can't be pretty. She kissed him again, clinging to him as her legs grew weak and filled with pain. Only to a woman, she whispered. He said something then, something wonderful and terrible and frightening. Fight me, he begged, fight me. But she couldn't fight him because she wanted him so very much. Her hungry body became a part of him, demanding all of his love. And the sweet ecstasy of boundless intimacy possessed her utterly. Time and the day stood still. Chapter 9 The first few days of the following week were very quiet ones. About 75 had checked out late Sunday afternoon, including the photographer, Ken Scholes, and the exodus had left but 50-odd people at the camp. Just like when I used to work at a boarding house, Jeannie remarked. Break your back until after Sunday dinner, and then it takes you until Wednesday to unwind. Ed had stayed on, of course, as had the Holdens. Della had given Ed the bedroom nearest her own. Her door was never locked against him, a fact which she took frequent advantage. Ed! She said to him Thursday morning, when he stopped in for a pre-breakfast kiss, Ed, you know I've been thinking about something. He yawned and sat down sleepily on her bed. Yeah? About us. His arm moved and comfortably circled her shoulders. Go on, he said. Tell me more. She patted his hand and sat up, her long, slim legs dangling briefly over the edge. Then she reached for the negligee at the foot of the bed, shrugged into it, and stood up. This isn't any good, she said, looking down at his tousled hair, and we both know it. His eyes were dark and serious. You mean enjoying each other? Loving each other? I mean living like this, you sneaking from your room in here and then sneaking back out again. It can't be what either of us wants. People just can't go on living this way forever, Ed. It doesn't make sense. Ed sat up and reached for a cigarette. I don't know why not, he said. I'm still a married woman, she reminded him. I know that. She walked to the dresser, looking at herself in the mirror. Her skin was radiant. Her eyes looked alive. She had not looked so well in years. Ed had done it for her. Ed had given her this beauty. She watched his face in the mirror. He frowned and said nothing. She turned, smiling at him finally. I don't know what the answer is, Ed. I wonder if you did. That's easy, he told her, rising from the rumpled bed. We could get married. But I am married. Ed found his shorts and stepped into them. You could get a divorce, he said, and, uh, and you'd marry me? I'd marry you. 
They had never talked about marriage before, not seriously, but the idea of it had been with her, haunting her every moment of the night and the day since the first time she had surrendered to him. She had accepted Ed Loring on a temporary basis, but she wanted something for tomorrow too. There was a fear in her, a fear that he might just be using her, that he might soon grow tired of her. I'd marry you any time, he told her now, coming close. All you have to do is be free. All you have to do is get a divorce, set the date, and I'll be there. An overpowering sensation of relief swelled up within her. Oh, Ed, she sobbed and pressed up against him. Oh, Ed, darling. He kissed her full and hard on the lips. You should have known that, Della. But you never said so. I said so just now. She clung to him, trembling. Ed, you don't know how much that means to me. Here, a little fool, hon. A stupid fool. A lovely fool, he amended. Kiss me. She kissed him on the mouth, her lips parted and hungry. I have been a fool, she told him. You don't know how big a one. And then, as they dressed, she in the bathroom and Ed in the bedroom, she told him about Ricky and how he had wanted a divorce and how she had fought with him about it. And he even told him about Jenny and the statement and how she held that, that as a club over Ricky's head. You're a hellcat, Ed told her earnestly. You get a guy right where you want him, and then you drive needles into him. She came out of the bathroom wearing a very light blue dress that fit her perfectly, feeling gloriously alive and vital. I fight for what's mine, she said. I wasn't criticizing, Ed told her, kissing her on the neck. You got plenty of guts, and I admire that. But I don't want to fight anymore, she confided, returning his kiss. I want to call it quits with Ricky. She felt so fine, so damn fine. It was a wonderful new feeling. I'll see him in the morning. I'll tell him he can have his divorce. Ed held her tight. We'll get married, he told her. As soon as you're free, we'll get married. She pressed her face against his chest. Oh, I'm so happy, Ed. For the first time, I'm really happy. He stroked her hair gently. I'm glad for both of us. They walked into the hall, his arms around her shoulders, her arms circling his waist. We'll build a marvelous camp together, Della said. We'll have the best anywhere, won't we, Ed? Sure. And we'll be happy. I know we will. Together they went down the stairs, walking slowly, holding each other affectionately. It was like stumbling over a pot of gold, Ed stated. With the kind of setting we have here, we won't be able to miss. Give us a couple of years, just two or three, and we'll have enough money to last us the rest of our lives. Della laughed, looking up at him. Oh, there isn't... That much profit in it, Ed. You'll see, he said. You'll see, dear. Jenny was in the kitchen, seated on a high red stool at the counter, reading the previous Sunday's edition of a New York tabloid. It beats the hell out of me, Jenny said, pushing the paper aside. Those Hollywood dames try one guy after another, and they still can't find the right one. You'd think they'd wait until they got a divorce before they went and got engaged. Variety, Ed reminded her. It's the spice of life. Jenny got down from her stool, patting her middle. A girl can stand only so much variety, she said. Della never had anything except coffee for breakfast, but Ed wanted bacon and four eggs. Big day coming up, Ed said, but we'll hit close to 200. Maybe Jenny better drive into town with me then. Ed stood up from the table and winked down at her. Good luck, he said. She smiled. I think I've already had my share, she told him soberly. Della helped Jenny with the dishes, and as soon as they were finished, Jenny went upstairs and changed into a cool-looking green uniform. One thing I like about these uniforms, Jenny said, climbing into the car, 
They'll stretch and stretch and stretch. And believe me, that's what I need. Something with a lot of stretch. Oh, you don't show any yet. The station wagon rattled and banged as he steered it down the driveway. Well, it's already two months, Jenny observed. And even if I don't show it, I feel it. And that's the way they say it happens most times. They say you go a long time and then all of a sudden you get up one morning and you look like you're going to have an elephant the next second. Tell me about Sammy, Dallas said as they started down the mountain. You haven't mentioned Sammy in a long time. I haven't been seeing Sammy, that's why. Oh, no. Sammy's a little angry with me. Della smiled and leaned back. Seems to me that your Sammy is angry at you most of the time, she said. The car slowed quickly. Look, Mrs. Farland, I hope you ain't going to get angry with at me too, Jenny began. But while Sammy didn't like it when I told him about the paper you had me sign, he said, sometimes I think Sammy is nuts. You know what he said? Well, he said, well, maybe this isn't just the way he said it. But what he meant was that it was all right about the paper if something happened to me the way you explained it. But supposing nothing did happen and it was a boy and it grew up to be a big shot or something like that, and then Mr. Farland could, well, you know. They rode a short distance in silence. You mean, Jenny, that Mr. Farland might take advantage of the boy because of the statement you signed? I guess that's it, Mrs. Farland. Della laughed. But I have the paper, Jenny. Mr. Farland doesn't have it. Honest, I don't know, Jenny said in desperation. I signed the thing because you thought it was right. And now Sammy says, your Sammy is a pretty smart boy, Jenny. Oh, you think so, Mrs. Farland? Yes, I do. Jenny let out a low whistle. Well, I'll be damned, she said. I always thought Sammy was a little dense, to tell you the truth. Not that it's anything bad, mind you, because none of us can help it if we're like that, I always say. The spring underneath the Ford walloped the frame as they went over the railroad tracks, and Della jerked upright. I can't promise you anything, Della said, but you might get that paper back after a while. Jenny's eyes grew large. Honest? Yes. If Mr. Farland is reasonable, and I think he will be, we'll know that in a little while. Oh, so that's where we're going, is it? Yes. I'm glad, Jenny said. The more I think about it, the more I think that Sammy is right. She concentrated on her driving, and soon they were in town. Where do you want to go, Mrs. Farland? The railroad station. I'll use the phone. Jenny let her off at the station, and Della told the girl that she'd meet her later at the Breakers, a small commercial hotel further uptown. It's all right if I wait at the bar? Jenny wanted to know. Sure, knock yourself out. The station in North Landing was typically eerie. It wasn't clean, it wasn't dirty, it wasn't old, and it wasn't very new. It was just a roof with a bunch of seats underneath. Della went inside and over to the phone booth. She tried calling the Andersons first, thinking that they would know where she could reach Ricky. The doctor answered the phone, and when he found out it was Della, he snickered a little and said, so, you're having quite a ball out there, hey? From what I hear. Have you seen Ricky? Della interrupted. Why, of course I've seen him. I mean, do you know where I can reach him? There was a moment's silence. Well, now, that's another thing. He was saying at the breakers. But I understand, well, it doesn't matter very much. He isn't there any longer. Then you don't know where he is. Nope. Or is it that you wouldn't tell me if you did? Certainly I'd tell you, Della. The doctor's voice lowered. Hell, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing out there, he said laughing. It's just a bit shocking, that's all. She hung up, her anger blazing. To hell with him, she thought. To hell with the whole damn bunch of them. 
She tried the breakers next, but the man on the desk told her that Mr. Farland had checked out and he didn't know where he could be reached. The man sounded glad that Mr. Farland wasn't with them any longer. Next, he tried Dr. Behringer's office. The girl who answered said she didn't even know Mr. Farland. And was he a patient? And should she have him call somebody if he came in? She dialed the Behringer residence last and Sally's voice came to her quickly. Sally, this is Della. The wires hummed steadily. Yes, Della. What can I do for you? There's no hate in Sally's tone. No feeling. No nothing. I wanted to get in touch with Ricky, Della said. I, I thought you might be able to help me. I haven't seen Ricky since the day before yesterday, Sally said quietly. Oh? No. Then, her voice rising, Della, why do you do it? Why did you have to be so terrible and awful and mean? She was close to hysteria. You brought me nothing but trouble, Della. Trouble. First you took Ricky, but that didn't satisfy you. You, you're not human, Della. You're not. I'm sorry, Della said, meaning it. Believe me, I'm very sorry. But things will be better now, Sally. You'll see that. They'll be a lot better if, if I can only talk to Ricky. I'm not sure where he is, Sally said. After last Saturday, well, it was perfectly awful, Della. He was at the breakers and he got drunk, stinking drunk. I tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen to me. He kept saying you were a bitch, a no good bitch, but of course he was right. You know he was right, Della. Only he was so drunk, disgusting, and the man down there called me. But I wasn't home, and he talked to Daddy. It was frightful. So now you've had it, Della thought. You've been a witness to Ricky Farland in action. She couldn't feel sorry for Sally. Tell me where I can find him, she said. The wires hummed again. He was at the Clover Motel last night, Sally answered finally. But I let him know I wouldn't have anything to do with him. Wouldn't talk to him again unless he came right over here and apologized to Daddy. Della couldn't help laughing. Ricky apologized? That was a good one. Ricky wouldn't apologize to his mother if he ran over her with a truck. I'll try there, Della said and hung up. She found the number of the Clover Motel in the directory and dialed. Yes, Mr. Farland was a guest at the motel. Did she wish him called on the phone? No, he hadn't gone out. His car was still in the front end, and as far as the woman knew, Mr. Farland was still sleeping. Very well. She would tell Mr. Farland that his wife had called and that she would be out in a few minutes. Della left the station and hailed the cab outside. The driver was a humpbacked little man who occasionally had driven her up to Raven's Nest in the past. They say there's a lot of traffic up your road these days, he said, swinging the yellow DeSoto into the main street. To hell with you, Della thought. To hell with you and all the rest of them with narrow, dirty minds. Together, she and Ed would show them. They'd show the people in the landing that a nudist camp could be a highly respectable and worthwhile venture. And they'd show Ricky Farland something very special. They'd show him what real love could mean, what it could accomplish. Hot, isn't it? The driver wanted to know. They rode a few minutes in silence, the tires of the cab hissing on the blacktop, the lush green fields of the countryside sliding past. The driver's eyes regarded her soberly in the mirror. Sorry if I offended you, Mrs. Farland. That's all right. But you know how it is. Some people can kid about things like that, and some can't. I suppose so. I guess you don't feel the way that way about it. No, Della agreed. I'm sure I don't. They pulled in at the motel, a rambling green and white structure against a high pine stubbed hill, and Della got out. Wait for me, she said. Driver grinned, his eyes fastened on the top of her dress. Don't worry, he assured her. 
I ain't been paid yet. She turned and walked away towards the green caddy convertible park close to one of the units. Looking at the car brought back memories of the day Ricky had bought it. She went up to the door and knocked. A car with a loud muffler buzzed up the highway and backed off as it started down the next hill. A television unit in one of the rooms emitted the tragic details of a soap opera, and from an open window farther down, sounds of a woman's laughter emerged and drifted away. Della knocked again, louder and louder. Hey! Ricky shouted. What the hell? I'm not up yet. Ricky, open the door. It's Della. She heard his feet moving across the floor. Hello, baby, he said and opened the door. He wore only shorts, a white pair she had bought on one of her trips to Newark. Hello, he said again. She smiled and stepped into the room. Hi, she told him. Both rear windows were open wide, but the room still smelled like somebody had washed a bed linen in a mixture of rye and gin. A few bottles in various stages of use stood on the dresser and a broken glass lay near one of the chairs. I refuse to apologize, Rick said, closing the door. You should have had a pretty good idea what it would look like anyways. He walked to the dresser and inspected one of the bottles. Drink? She shook her head. This calls for celebrations, he said, filling a shot glass. You coming to see me? I thought the old pot had lost her mind when she gave me the word. I had to see you, Ricky, Della said. He grinned at her and lifted the glasses. Obviously. She sat down in one of the chairs watching him. He was good looking, she thought. In a male doesn't give a damn so much my pants aren't pressed away. His blonde hair was more rumpled than usual, and he needed a haircut worse than ever. Could have gotten dressed, he said, lighting a cigarette, but cripes. I thought, what's the use of going to all that bother? In the first place, you're my wife. I've got nothing to hide that you don't know about already. And besides, since you run around in your skin half the time, there's little bare flesh more or less shouldn't bother you. Please, Ricky, I didn't come here to argue. He breathed deeply of the smoke. He had a good body, she thought. Wide, powerful shoulders. She had seen those innocent-looking fists of his ball up and almost crush a man in Iceland with two wallops. So, what did you come here for, he wanted to know. To gloat? No, I came to talk to you about the divorce. I see. I, I won't stand in your way, Ricky. You can have the divorce. He was quiet for such a long time that she thought he hadn't understood her. Then, filling the glass shot again, he smiled. Things have changed, is that it? Yes, she admitted. In fact, he asked her, now you'd even like the divorce, wouldn't you? Yes. Because of that Loring fellow? Yes. Somehow, she couldn't look at Ricky. Ed Loring, I'm in love with him. And he's in love with you? I'm sorry, Ricky. Sorry, he laughed and slammed the glass down on the dresser. Hell, you're not sorry. And you know it, and neither am I. You go your way and I'll go mine. What could be better? She stirred uneasily. There was something about Ricky that was different. Unreal. His voice? The way he looked at her? She didn't know. She just knew that she almost wished that she hadn't come and that she had talked with him by telephone. It's the only way, she said. He walked over to the bed and sat down, pushing his feet into his slippers. I'll tell you a shocker, Della. I'm sorry as hell for having to taken a poke at you Saturday. His eyes studied her. You may think that's a lot of crap, but it's the truth. He stood up again. Hell yes, I was mad at you. Same as you were mad at me. But, well, I guess you must have known it without me saying so. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Forget it, she said. That was a cute trick you pulled on me with the, with that Jenny, you know. 
A guy can't buck something like that, baby. Even if a guy wins in court, he's still finished. Yes, whether it's true or not. I hope you're not denying it, Ricky. She wished that she could shriek into the chair, crawl away as he came and stood over her. He looked so big, so strong, and a bitter sneer pulled his mouth out of shape. Did you come here to talk about who's the father of Jenny's kid? No. Or about us? The divorce, she said hurriedly. I wanted to tell you that it was all right. Then leave Jenny out of it, he said. She got up, and he didn't stop her. She felt better when she was on her feet. She didn't feel so helpless. I just thought you'd like to know that it would never cause you any trouble, she explained. I'll give the paper to Jenny, and she can destroy it. Why not give it to me, he wanted to know, and let me destroy it. I don't know why not, I guess so. Then that's that, he said, returning to the dresser. This time he mixed the drink with a little water. Now let's see. I get the divorce, right? Yes. He stared at her for a long time. And what else? I'd like a small drink, she said, suddenly nervous. Just a tiny one. All right. He didn't bother to see if the glass was clean or not. I asked you what else. There's nothing else, she told him lamely. I have nothing to say. He handed her the drink his eyes never leaving her face. Well, I have plenty to say. I'll tune you in, he told her softly. I'll bring you up with the news, baby. When I met you in Iceland, what were you? Some of the drinks spilled down the front of her dress, and he laughed, and she glanced towards the door. Don't worry about it, he advised. It's locked. You're going to listen to everything I got to say before you leave, baby, and you ought to listen real good, because I'm going to give it to you straight. First, I'll tell you what you were when you met me. You were a stateside hungry girl who'd give yourself to the first guy willing to give you a passport. Ricky! Oh, I'm not blaming you. I'm just telling you. Hell, if I had been you, I'd have done the same thing. I don't know why not. Who would want to spend the rest of their life on that stinking island? Ricky, she said again. Ricky, I'm trying to do what you want. I'm not fighting you. What do you mean you're not? He demanded angrily. You mean when you've had enough, you think I've had enough too? And that I ought to quit? You've been fighting me plenty, baby. You started in on the day when you went to the lawyers. Sure, you foxed Tom Fielding because the stupid so-and-so didn't know any better. But you did something else too, baby. Christ, I told you about that store, didn't I? I told you that I didn't have the money, didn't I? God damn it. What do you think we've been using for money since we've been married? She wished she could leave. She wished she had never come. Don't shout, Ricky. Don't shout? He sneered, moving around the room. Don't shout, she says. Well, I will shout. And you know why? I'll tell you why. You know what they say in town? They say Ricky Farland's married a whore and that she took him for all his money and kicked him out. They don't think I wasted it, baby. They think I'm smart. Most of them do. The way my old man was smart. They don't believe I went through it all because most of them think all is ten times more than it was in the first place. No, they don't think or believe those things. They just think I was took by a designing woman. Maybe you were, she admitted quietly, determined to fight back, struggling to keep her voice level. Even my sister thinks so, he went on, ignoring her. She knows I inherited the company, and she thinks I'm a liar when I say the business wasn't worth a dime. Oh, sure. She was glad enough to come out and drink my liquor and eat my food, but when it came time for me to ask her for a buck, you'd have thought I was a stranger. Outside, the cars drummed up the highway, streaming northward. It was only Thursday, but the weekend traffic had already begun. 
You tore it the other day, Ricky said. You tore it good, baby. When I left the house, I was so desperate to have a jug, so I got a jug. And I got drunk. I got so miserably drunk, and I got so broke that Sally had to bail me out of the hotel. By the time everyone in town was talking about your paradise under the trees, some of them said, Ricky, you old woman chaser, you. How do you get next to some of that stuff? And some of them said, Ricky, it isn't any of my business, but if your father were only alive. It's the, it isn't any of my business, boys that slay you, baby. They're the people who run the banks, the lawyers and the doctors and everyone else who can make you or break you in a small town. They're people like Sally's old man, and I guess Sally herself. They get down on you for something like that, for crossing the moral line, they call it. And you might just as well slip your throat and let your blood run out. Ricky poured another pair of drinks. I'll give you a handful of roses for one thing, though, he said. When you slapped it to me, baby, you slapped it to me good. Even the day I left that house, knowing what I knew, I didn't believe it could be so bad. He looked down at his hands, shaking his head. But a man learns. A man learns. And then sometimes he changes. I'm honestly sorry, Della told him. She felt more certain of herself now that he had given her an opportunity to understand his resentment. I was wrong, Ricky. If we couldn't get along, we couldn't get along. You were good to me in a lot of ways. Thanks for nothing. But I mean it, Ricky. You are wrong about the state's hungry bit. I married you because I loved you, or thought I did. Nuts! He went over to the bed and lay down, stretching out to his full length. He folded his arms and placed them behind his head, staring up at the ceiling. I'm not going to keep you much longer, he said, and I'm not going to hit you. As soon as I'm finished, you can leave. The door, by the way, isn't locked. I left it unlocked because I didn't know what I might do when I saw you. I think I hate you, Della, but I don't want to kill you. You don't have to say any more, Ricky. But I do, baby. I do. I have to tell you a very funny story. Remember our, when we left Iceland? How good it seemed? How happy we were? At least I was happy? Yes. It was barely a whisper. And remember? It was that night when we flew past the southern tip of Greenland, and the sky was all red, fire, and the clouds below were white, and the hostess was sore because it was the first flight in two years that she hadn't brought along colored film for a camera? Yes, Ricky. She sank into her chair, remembering. It's almost like yesterday. It was yesterday, he reminded her, but I never forgot it because it was the happiest day of my life. I wanted to tell you, but the sunset interrupted me and I never found the words again. I'd rather not talk about it now. He rolled his head from side to side. You're right, he said. It wouldn't do any good. No good at all. That was yesterday, she reminded him. Sure, yesterday, or maybe the day before yesterday. The room got very quiet and outside a horn honked impatiently. Coming back to the divorce, Ricky said finally, I told you I wanted something. I wasn't kidding. I do. I want the one thing I should have kept and the one thing that doesn't belong to you. Baby, I want a clear title to the property at Raven's Nest. Della sat there stunned, unable to speak, unable to move. And I'm going to have it, Ricky promised solemnly. I'm going to have it if I have to hang your filthy linens from the window of every house between North Landing and Kefalovic. Slowly, she arose from her chair. She could feel her heart leaping against her breast, pounding in her eyes. Her legs were weak and heavy. It's all I have, Ricky, she protested. There's nothing else. He waved her aside. You're forgetting about the stunt you played on my lawyer, aren't you? You're forgetting that you could have given me an easy divorce and you'd have had the place. 
And you're forgetting something else too. You're forgetting that I've gotten myself all bad all around town and that this is the only way I can get out of it. The place means money to me, baby. And money means tomorrow. I'm betting all the way through on this one, baby. All the way or nothing at all. Ricky. He sat up quickly. I told you what I wanted, he reminded her. There's nothing else to say. Do I get it or don't I? She closed her eyes, thinking of Ed and of the plans they had made together. But she thought of something else, too, something that gave her an inward strength to open her eyes and smile at Ricky. All right, she whispered. I'll take the trade. Ed and she could always go somewhere else, she thought. They could always start again. As long as they were together, as long as they loved each other, nothing else was of great importance. Raven's Nest was nice, but it wasn't the only place in the world. If this was the price Ricky demanded, then it was the price she would have to pay. She didn't want any messy court trials or fighting or anything like that. All she wanted was to settle matters once and for all, one way or another. Sometimes she knew a person had to lose before they could gain. This Ed Loring must be quite a guy, Ricky said. She looked straight at him. He is. He went to the door and it opened under a touch. I'll have the papers drawn up in the next couple of days, Ricky said. And don't try going back on your word about it this time. Don't worry, I won't. His lips twisted into a smile. A person would almost think that you want to get rid of me. You don't know how much. She turned, happy that it was over at last and left. Ricky's laughter followed her all the way out to the waiting taxi. Chapter 10 Dark clouds rolled low over the mountains and flashes of lightning ripped through the sky. Thunder boomed through the valleys and across the highlands, shaking the late afternoon with spasmodic, heavy crashers. Outside, a windswept rain began to fall in torrents. Della stood at the window watching Ed Loring coming up the lane towards the house, his head lowered against the storm. In one hand, he clutches the remains of a once-good umbrella, and just as he reached the porch, he threw it away. Hey! he yelled, entering the kitchen. Anybody here? In the living room, Ed. Man, but it's really pouring. He came through the archway, pushing the wet hair up from his forehead. You just got back? A little while ago. He fumbled in his shirt looking for cigarettes. What? he said disgustedly. There's some on the table. He found a pack of Winston's and lit one. You see your husband? Yes. Ed sighed and sat down on the couch, and a puddle of water began to form on the rug. How'd you make out? She walked around the room, trying to think, trying to find the words with which to answer. For a few moments after she left Ricky, she felt so sure, so positive that she was doing the right thing. But on the way home, she had been driven along in the car, and the old fear came back, the fear that Ricky had never been able to understand. And no one, she thought now, not even Ed, would ever be able to understand it. This anxiety had churned within her. Not unless she had been raised on an island where the summer air was filled with the stink of drying codfish. Not unless they knew what it was like to pay a week's wages for a pair of nylon stockings or a day's salary for a package of American cigarettes. And they would have had to live along the seawall to hear the angry waves of those North Atlantic pounding upon the door every night. To have had their father go to sea in one of those whalers and never come back. They'd have to have had a mother die of tuberculosis because the winter nights were so endless and the food was so terrible and money so scarce. Or they would have to have been 14 as she had been 14 and given a jar of peanut butter only to listen to the hilarious laughter of the Americans afterwards when she'd taken it out of the oven nicely baked simply because she'd been so ignorant 
that she hadn't known any better. They've had to have lived in a country where the male of the species could own you for a night or a day or a week or a month, where you got on a darkened bus and quite suddenly found an American's hands under your dress, like you were a tramp or a whore or a public sex machine. No, not until a person had known such things, not until they had struggled with and mastered the strange phrases of the English language, could he know why those from the island had to be able to see what they owned had to be able to touch it with a possessive care and to be sure deep down inside that it would always be there and always belong to them. This wasn't, Della knew, just a part of her life. This desire, this constant yearning for security, this almost fanatic urge to know that the future would be sound and safe. It was, she knew, all of life. Ed, she had heard herself saying, not listening to the thunder, not seeing the lightning flashes over the lake. Ed, Ricky says I have to turn this place over to him or he won't give me a divorce. She could feel the tightening of her throat, feel the rising panic in her voice. Ed, I didn't want to. I didn't. But there was no other way. None. It's for us, Ed, and it has to be right because it's for us. Ed returned to the table and carefully picked up another cigarette. I thought it was the other way around, he said slowly. I thought you were giving him something. Ricky's changed. It would seem so, Eddie said. He's desperate. That's what I think. I think he's so far down that he'll move heaven and earth to get this property away from me. I'm sure he'll fight me, Ed. I know he will. And anyway, a court would probably say that I'd backed down on my word, that I had done the wrong thing. I thought you never signed anything. I didn't. It was just an understanding. Ed put down the cigarette and came over to her. He put his arms around her and kissed her on the mouth. Then what are you worrying about? Just tell him to go to hell. She shook her head. I can't, Ed. I can't. Don't you see? Maybe it would be best to give him what he wants so that we could be together and I wouldn't have to fight with him anymore. Isn't it worth giving up something, Ed, so that we can be happy? The wetness of his clothes seeped through her dress, touching her skin. She felt herself shiver. What about the camp? He'd never let it stay. Once he had the place in his hands, you know that. Ed kissed her on the forehead. Her lips pressed against his wet shirt, moved away. But he doesn't have anything to say about it, not yet. We'll find another place, she told him confidently. You'll see. We'll find a place that will beat Raven's Nest all hollow. Not easily, we won't. Well, one just as good. I doubt it. Or you can go into advertising, Della said. Isn't that what you used to do? You can get a job in advertising, and we can get a little apartment somewhere. I still got a few dollars left, not much, but enough to get furniture and things. And we've got the station wagon. It isn't as though we didn't have anything or were stone broke. Della, he said, we aren't losing everything, she insisted, holding him tight. We aren't losing anything at all. We'll have each other, won't we? We don't need any more than that. We'll never need more than that. Della? She felt his body tense, his strong brown hands seeking her arms, shoving them aside. Della! He said again, facing her. Something earnest and powerful crowded up into his dark eyes, washing over her. This isn't kid stuff, he said bluntly. This camp is big business, Della. I know that, Ed. But you don't. You don't know the first thing about it. All you know is that you earned a couple hundred bucks last week, right? She nodded. $218.75, to be exact. That's peanuts, Ed said. He went to the table and picked up another cigarette. Peanuts. I only want to do what's right for us, Della said. And what about the people? Ed demanded. The Holdens and the rest of them, the ones I dragged up here. 
Things have changed. Have they? He shook his head. Not that much they haven't. But Ed, you want me to go down there and tell them to get out. You want me to tell Arch Holden that he has been just a one-week stand. Ed, we have to. There's no other way. Ricky, Ricky this and Ricky that, he said irritably. Stop thinking about the guy for a minute, won't you? Get interested in me and some of the others who had put money in your pocket. I am interested in you, Della said truthfully. I'm in love with you, Ed. You're not showing it. But I am, Ed. I am. Then don't go around throwing a lot of money down the drain. He flung his cigarette into the fireplace. Hell, do you know how hard it is to find a spot like this, Della? Of course you don't. You don't know because you never looked for one. But I have, and I know. And I know where money can be made, right here. In less than two years, we can walk away with a bundle. Just remember that. She moved towards him, breathing deeply, her legs heavy. I think you're forgetting that I put up quite a bit of money, Ed. I'll lose most of that, and I know it. He stared at her. For someone who's almost as flat as rain on a roof, you're sure careless with a dollar, he said. She stopped very still, looking at him. Ed, she said lamely, Ed, tell me. Tell you what? That it's all right between us, I mean. It is if you stick with this place, Della. Suddenly, she had to know, had to be sure. Those moments that she remembered. Moments of unrestrained passion and tender promises. No longer were they enough. There had to be something more, something deeper. Ed, do you love me? His glance was thoughtful. Physically, you mean? No, not just that way. I don't know any other way, he said, if there is one. He might as well have slapped her across the face. It hurt that much. Oh, Ed. It's time you stop being a kid, he told her savagely. It's time that we both stop playing games. You might just as well know that right now, Della, that you're not going to turn this property over to your husband and that we're not going to get out. She looked away from him, her breath choking against the ball of pain in her chest. I hoped that everything would go smoothly and you wouldn't have to know the hard facts, he told her. But I guess it isn't going to be that way. You had to go and louse things up with this deal with your husband. Della gasped. She couldn't believe her ears. This is a big game we're playing here, Della, for big stakes. Remember those pictures of Ken that you found? Della nodded mutely. Nothing wrong with them? She shook her head. But suppose a person didn't want them taken. Suppose you had a guest who's worth a lot of money or has a good job and doesn't want his picture taken. But you take it anyways. What then? It's worth money, isn't it? I mean... To the person in the pictures, if he can buy the prints and the negatives, that's blackmail. No, it isn't. You wouldn't say a girl who takes pictures in a nightclub was a blackmailer, would you? Oh, Ed. She stared at him, shocked, trying to reconcile him with a man who had made love to her. The man she had permitted to know every secret glory of her body. She couldn't reconcile anything. He was gone, washed away the way the dust has been washed away by the rain. She began to cry. I'm telling you all of this because I want you to know the worst of it right now, he said. Once you're a part of it, and once you know that you're a part of it, I think you'll see things in a different light. You never cared, Della whispered, almost to herself. I never meant anything to you. He grinned at her. But you did. You don't act as though I did. All right, he said simply. You're, you meant, and I still mean exactly this. You're one of the best girls I ever had, and one of the easiest. You take it from there. She went over to him and slapped him hard across the face. He laughed, and she slapped him again. I've been a fool, she moaned. Outside, the storm had drifted away, and the sun had emerged. 
A clean, damp breeze blew up from the lake, rattling the Venetian blinds. I believe you'll be happier if you don't do that again, Ed was saying. In fact, if you just settle down, continue taking in money the way you have been, and keep that pretty little mouth of yours shut, you might even get to be real happy. Della's temper mounted, blazing furiously. Get out of here. Now, is that any way to talk? He was laughing at her. Maybe you wouldn't make the same deal with me again, but you might make it and you're stuck with it. At first, I thought you were just a little bit stupid, but hell, this nudist thing was right up your alley. In a way, being an Icelander, you were used to nudity and you had none of the reservations that an American girl might have had. But blackmail, she returned heatedly. That has no place in this at all, Ed. Not for me. And you know it as well as I do. Again, he laughed at her. Get one thing straight, he said. We are in this to clean up a fat profit. And you can't do that with nudist camps if you run them according to the book. Oh, some do all right when they get around to taking casuals or when they let all the barriers down so that a certain type of girls and boys can have a ball. That's petty stuff. And before long, you have the cops on your neck. Our operation is different. We sell the pictures to the peoples if they want them. And if they don't want them, they can just keep on wondering what we might do with them. It's all pretty simple, really. How could it have happened, she asked herself. He'd been a stranger, a man she liked. And now he had plunged her into something that seemed so dirty. Ed, she supposed, was right. She had been easy. It was like cutting yourself with a razor blade. You couldn't believe a little thing like that could do such big damage. We might even put on some parties at the camp, Ed was saying. You know, discreet little affairs at which those who enjoy such things could have some fun. I'm not interested. Well, I could make you interested. You're the landowner. If things get a bit out of line and the law hears about it, you might be construed an accessory. Her eyes flashed. Are you threatening me? I'm just saying the cops could be tipped off. They'd make trouble for you. Not if I got to them first, they wouldn't. But you're not going to get to them first or last. A blind, breathless fury flooded through her. She felt herself moving to the phone, felt her hand lift the receiver, her fingers searching for the dial. I don't want to do this, she said huskily, but I have to. Ed came and stood beside her. She could see him smiling, shaking his hand. He placed something in her hand. Go ahead, he said. But you'll have trouble explaining this. Her glance lowered slowly. Her eyes found the photo, lingered for an agonizing moment, and then her sight blurred, refusing to accept what she saw. From way down inside, so deep that it seemed to be past any human limit, she screamed just once. I think you're inclined to agree with me, Ed said calmly. Her stare returned to the photo, drawn there as though by some hideous but irresistible force. Oh, God! Of course, you didn't pose for this nude picture, he admitted. I know that, and so do you. But do you want it circulated? She wished that tears would come, that sh they would blind her forever. Filth, she shuddered. Then, Ed, how could you? It was easy, he told her. Nothing to it. Ken sneaked a shot through a peephole in the dressing tent. And I suppose that's how you make those pictures you, you sell. Sometimes, not always. How could you do this to anybody? She crumpled the picture in her tiny fist. How could you? Go ahead, tear it up. We have more prints, he said. She got up and walked away from him. Her mouth, her hands, and every part of her body felt numb. I may have seemed easy to you, Bella said, and I guess I was, but I didn't deserve this.
It's the only protection we have. I see. And definitely, you were easy. She took a deep breath facing him. All right. Ricky will fight me, she reminded him. He'll fight me every inch of the way for this property. I doubt it, Ed said. We had you both figured in on this, you know. We have to stay here at least until fall. Hell, it's too late in the season to go moving around, so we put Ada onto your husband. It wasn't hard, you might like to know. She just walked up to the bar, sat down next to him, and that was all there was to it. Ada, she thought. Ada and Ricky. Yes, that would have been easy for Ada to tempt Ricky. Easy for any pretty girl. We gotta get this straightened out once and for all, Ed was saying. The thing for you to do is to get on that phone and tell that husband of yours to get out here tonight. Then we'll see what's what. No, I'm telling you, Della, this is big stuff. A big weekend coming up, and I'm not playing with fire. I want the fire out, period. She looked out of the window at the lake and the fields and the green hills beyond. It was such a lovely place, she thought, but people insisted on spoiling it. He won't come, she said. I know he won't. Ed pointed to the phone. Call him. God, she thought. She had to think this over. She was going at it all wrong. She had to figure out what she could do and just how to do it. Call him, I said. She walked over to the phone book and found the number of the motel. Dialing the number, she smiled at Ed. She had made up her mind. She would play it his way. All his way. I'm sorry, Ed, she said. He lit a cigarette and watched her through the smoke. Well, that's better. Things move too fast for me, I guess. Sure. She gave Ricky's name to the woman who answered in the motel office. He'll be madder than hops, Della said. Ed laughed and walked around the room. Hello? It was Ricky's voice, finally, on the line. Who's this? Della. Oh? About the trade we talked about this afternoon. Ricky, well, I'd like to have you come out tonight, if you will. I'd like to go over it with you again. Change your mind, huh? His voice was cold. I thought you would. She glanced at Ed to see if he might have heard. She was pretty sure he hadn't. No, she said. It isn't that. It's something else. There was a moment silent. You sure? We'll talk about it when you get here. All right, he said finally. I'll try to make it. Ricky, she thought as she hung up. We've been a couple of utter fools. Maybe there isn't anything between us and maybe there never was anything. But we have to lick this one together if we really do. Okay, Ed demanded. She tossed her hair, blonde and full, and forced a laugh. Okay, she said. This was the way to handle Ed, she thought. The only way that gave her any chance of coming out of it. But I still think you're a louse, she said, smiling again. You could have told me before. He stopped and stared at the rumpled picture. Hell, I don't know if I follow you, he said cautiously, dropping the picture into a shirt pocket. A couple of minutes ago, you were going to yell for the cops. Why the big switch? I told you, things move too fast for me, she said, lighting a cigarette. They did, and I'm just a little Icelander, you know? She came over close to him. It's all right, Ed, she told him. No hard feelings. His eyes moved from her face down over her curves of her body, drinking them in. She stood like a statue while he kissed her on the mouth. You're quite the girl, he said. It was only after he was gone that she cried. Chapter 11 Ricky phoned shortly before 7. He said he had a flat on his car and they hadn't been able to get it changed. Well, get a cab, she told him. I'm waiting for you. She hoped he wouldn't want to pull it off. 
She'd been thinking about this mess for hours, and she knew that they had to do something about it quickly or it might be too late. No, you get somebody to drive you in, Ricky said. I'd rather not. Look, he said impatiently. I got to see you. And Christ Almighty, I'm not going to walk over there, Della. Grab a cab, she said again. Jenny had borrowed the station wagon to drive down to the landing to look for Sammy. I'll pay for it with what? Ricky queried. Then more gently, hell, I don't blame you for being sore. I guess I was a little hard on you today. I, I apologize, Della. This was something new, she thought. Ricky apologizing? Go on. After you left, I did some footwork. And what I came up with doesn't look so good for you or me. What I find out about Raven's Nest, and I'm not blaming you either. It's big enough to cancel both of us out if we aren't damn careful. He was talking now like the Ricky she had known in Iceland. A man who faced things as they came, with courage and energy. A lot of things had ha been happening, he continued. You know this fellow, Ed Loring? Well, he was a friend of Sally's, or Sally's was a friend of his sister's, I guess. And now she says, I'm the one that put Ed Loring onto her. Can you tie that, for heaven's sake? How stupid can she get? Hell, I never saw the guy more than two or three times in my life. I guess that's true, Della said. Ricky's laugh was short and sober. I told her to go to hell. That's what I told her. And her old man. And she calls me blazing mad. And I told him to drop dead. Then, that's brother-in-law of mine. I'm talking to him. And he says it's hurt his practice, this nudist stuff. And I tell the bastard, he's never had a practice to hurt. Ricky was boiling mad, flooding with rage like a river gone wild. That's what I wanted to talk to you about, Della. That's why I got to see you. This Loring guy is one of the biggest leeches who ever crawled up out of the sewer. It's time, baby, that you and I quit our fighting for a spell and try to lick this thing together. You there, baby? Of course I'm here. Ricky, she thought. You fool, Ricky. You must have sobered up at last. I'll cue you in on another thing, Ricky said. There isn't much time. Saturday night is going to be their big night. They only need one sucker night to haul in a big fortune. And the next day, if the cops come, you're up to be there all by yourself with the evidence. Enough evidence to send you to jail for ten years. She had thought of that, too, this afternoon, after Ed had left. She had thought of prison and what it would be like. And her thoughts had gone beyond prison to something else. To the things they did to a person who killed another. This is our problem, Ricky told her. It's up to us to lick it. You really feel that way? I wouldn't say so if I didn't. Her eyes grew moist. I'm glad, Ricky, glad. She was. This was the way it should be. For the moment, she had to forget about Ricky's mistakes and his, he had to overlook some of hers. It was the only way they could crawl up over the edge. Get a cab and come down, Della. She didn't hesitate. Right away. We'll work this thing out. Don't you worry, baby. They said goodbye and she hung up. A moment later, she dialed the cab number at the railroad station. Yes, she was told. A cab could be out in a few minutes. Hurriedly, she ascended the stairs and walked into her bedroom. She slipped out of the shorts and halter, tossed them on the foot of her bed, and got a pair of black panties from a dresser and stepped into them. She picked up a bra, threw it down again, and struggled into a pink, tight-fitting sweater. For a skirt, she chose a white thing that hugged her middle and accentuated her hips. The white sandals were all right, she decided. So, she left them on. Back downstairs, she turned out the light in the kitchen, locked the doors, and went out on the front porch to wait. Mid-evening shadows fell across the hills, and the sounds of the night crept in through the trees. A whippoorwill cried for its mate, and the answer came moments later, from far away. A distant train whistle moaned twice, and the shadows on the ground grew longer, darker. It was a beautiful place, she thought. Beautiful. 
This wonderful house Ricky had built for her, it had been such a dream at first. She remembered when they used to drive up during the time the foundations were being poured, and how they would stand on the high ground of dirt, looking down into the ugly hole in the ground, planning the way they would place the furniture, the colors of the paint they would use. She remembered, too, their first night in the house, just the two of them, and how Ricky carried her all the way upstairs. Beautiful. And then she remembered the empty bottles, the long hours of drinking and dancing, the curses that followed these hours, and the slaps and the blows that came upon the heels of the curses. Beyond this, she didn't want to remember, because beyond this, there was just now, this past week. The cab arrived around eight, its headlights cutting a wide path through the heavy dusk. Hi, said the hunchback driver. Hi, yourself. She got in, smiling, forcing herself to look carefree and placid. Take me to that motel, she told him. Where I went this morning. The driver put the car in gear and shook his head sadly. That way you cried after we left there? I didn't think you'd ever go back again. It was funny enough, she thought. He was right. People are nuts, Bella informed the driver. Partway down the mountain, a car came up close behind them, and its lights high and bright, and it dropped back, and the lights lowered. Ain't seen Mr. Farland around in quite a while, the driver said. He been away? Sort of. You little snoop, she thought. No wonder you've got a crooked back. Somebody must have broken it for you. She settled back in the seat and thought about herself and Ricky. People were not only were funny but also so stubborn, so foolish. Why hadn't she helped Ricky when he'd been hitting the booze? Why hadn't she tried to understand him a little bit better? You crying again? The driver wanted to know. No. Damn you, Ricky, she thought. Damn you. Why did it have to be Jenny? Why did it have to be anyone at all? Damn you. That ended it, she decided. If it wasn't ended already. She could forgive Ricky almost anything, but not that, not Jenny. The cab rolled on down the highway, and she closed her eyes. That Ed Loring, she thought bitterly, there was one guy who should have been born with four legs and a fur coat. And he had seemed so nice at first, so gentle. She laughed bitterly. It was a question as to whether he had been nice to her or she had been nice to him. The easiest, he said, one of the easiest he'd ever had. Well, he'd find out. He'd find out that he would have to pay a big price after all. Almost there, Mrs. Farland. Fine, she said. She felt dirty, unclean, both mentally and physically. Her hands passed down over her breasts, her hips. Was this the same skin that Ed Loring had touched? Was this the body she had given to him? The same body that she had wanted him to own? Her hands moved up to her face. The same face she had seen in the photograph. How low could a man get? To what depths could he go? How could a woman? She broke off the thought and shook her head, disgusted with all mankind, including herself. The cab stopped in front of the motel. Wait for you, Mrs. Farland. She gave him a five and got out. Not tonight, she said. He leered back at her. Have fun. She walked towards Ricky's unit. Well, she made the cab driver's night complete. He had something to talk about now. Just took Mrs. Farland down to the motel, he'd tell his friends. Took her down and she's going to stay all night. And then they would laugh annoyingly. But there was no light in Ricky's room, but the caddy was still at front. The car sat level enough, she noticed. Not the way it should with a flat. She knocked on the door. It opened quickly. Come on in, Ricky invited. She entered the darkened room. The door snapped shut from behind him, and then Ricky's figure moved away from her. I wondered if you'd come, he said. She stepped forward and bumped into a chair. Why aren't the lights on, Ricky? He fumbled with something in the darkness. Be patient, he said. A breeze came through one of the open windows, soft and gentle. It carried with it the order of perfume. 
a heady, thick smell that swept up into her nostrils. Ricky! Her voice broke like glass shattering. She stumbled again, turning to the door, her hand fumbling for the knob in the darkness. Save your strength, he told her. This time it's locked. She twisted the knob, jerking at the door, but it wouldn't move. You lied to me, Ricky, her voice rose. This is a trick, a damn trick. Who's here with you? Shut up, Ricky said. This ain't out in the nest. We got neighbors here, baby, and I don't want them disturbed. She thought she saw something against the further wall over the bed, like a sheet somehow hanging there. Ricky, she pleaded. I came here in good faith and... Sit down, he advised her shortly. Sit down, or what you're going to see will knock you down. Della remained still, not moving, waiting. The odor of the perfume wheeled around her again, stronger this time. But Ricky, shut up. I know why you wanted to see me. You think I'm a fool? You wanted to back out of our little deal, didn't you? Well, you're not going to. Not this time. This time. Oh, Ricky, no, I wasn't. But then a square of light flashed over the bed, reflecting from the sheet. Good evening, Mrs. Farland, Ada Holden said. She was behind a movie projector that rested on a night table. Her skin in the shadows was very white, her hair blacker than the clouds of night. Shall I let it roll, Ricky? Just a second, he said. He moved towards Della, his shoulders hulking, his hand way down at her sides. Don't worry, I'm not going to hit you. After a preview of what you're going to see, I wouldn't touch you with a ten-foot pole in someone else's hand. Della leaned against the door, weak and frightened. Haven't you done enough, Ricky? Haven't we both done enough? Ricky, don't shout! His face loomed above her, very white. Just watch the show, if you can. When it's over, I got a little paper for you to sign. A transfer of property back to me. And that's all. You don't have to do one other thing, baby. You sign that paper, and we'll be shut of each other for keeps. She didn't know what it was she was going to see, why he had asked her to come here, or what he might do. She knew only one thing, knew it with every throbbing nerve within her. She would defy him. And she told him clearly, bluntly, so there could be no misunderstanding. Go to hell, Ricky. For an instant, she thought that he was going to strike her, her body tensed, ready for it, waiting. But then he laughed, the whiskey on his breath, washing over her face. Show her the movie star, Ada, he said. The light on the sheet faded, becoming gray. A few black lines appeared and slid into oblivion. The motor of the projector hummed steadily. I'm afraid the pictures aren't very good, Ada explained. You see, the lighting wasn't the best at the time they were taken, and even a top-notch photographer can only do so much. However... She continued, as the ridge pole of the tent came into view, I believe you will recognize the scene, the characters, and, have no doubt, the action. Too bad there isn't any sound, Ricky said. Ada laughed and laid her head against his shoulder. The angle of the camera shifted suddenly, showing a pile of boxes against one side of the tent. Then it went up the ridge pole, following that to the front of the tent, crossing the narrow opening of the flap, descending slowly. And there you are, baby, Ricky said softly. There could be no doubt about it this time. There she was in the arms of Ed Loring, both of them naked, two people who owned four hands that had gone suddenly berserk. Just a couple of toys of a thing called sex, Ada described it. Two happy people with nothing on their minds or backs. Della looked away, down at the dark floor, wishing that she could go somewhere and lie down on the ground and be sick, so sick that she'd die of it. Was there no limit? to the vicious schemes people could devise, and Ricky, Ricky, her husband, the man she had loved. Where would it all end for him, for her, for all of them? Turn it off, she whispered. Ricky coughed. You seen enough? She nodded, and he repeated the question. Yes, she shouted. Yes, yes, yes. I've seen enough. Stop it. 
The projector droned on. Turn it off, Ada. Ricky came across the room. You'll get the films after you sign the paper, he told Della. Her tears rolled silently down her cheeks. I guess it was a rough way to do it, he admitted. He wanted to scream at her, to call him every vile name, but she could not get a word out. I guess you got nothing to say. He seemed almost unhappy that she hadn't fought against it, called it a lie. Ada Holden laughed. That sure is one hell of a movie, she said. Della clung to the door, her elbows tight against her sides. Then abruptly there was a sharp sound in the room, as though the sheet had been ripped into shreds. Della jerked up her head just as the light blazed from one of the rooms, blinding her, filling the room with brightness. Ricky swore violently, and the projector wavered precariously as Ada leapt to her feet. Say, Ada demanded, what do you think? The voice from the window was low, muffled. Take the film out of the machine and hand it to me. Then as Ricky took a step, don't anybody get wise. I got one gun here and I'll put a hole through the first one who gives me any trouble. Della tried to recognize the voice, but she couldn't. It was strange and heavy, as though, the sp- though spoken by a big man. There was nothing hurried in the way the man spoke. He seemed confident enough, only his hands poking through the window into the door, holding the flashlight steady was visible. Beyond the hand, there was nothing except the night. Ricky stormed. This is a hell of a note. One of her men friends, Ada said, nodding at Della. She must have a million. The ball of light moved to Ada's face, held it in a gleaming white circle. I told you, lady, give me the film. Ada handed the twin reels to Ricky. And stiff leg, he approached the window. The flashlight was withdrawn from the room, poised at a safe distance. Just put them through the hole, mister, Ricky did as he was told. Now, go back to the bed and sit down. The hand with the light crept back inside, focusing once again upon Ada Holden. You too, girly. The light lingered upon the bed. Ricky was wiping his face with a corner of one of the sheets, and Ada's body seemed to swell inside her black dress, threatening to burst free. Miss Farland? Yes. Unlock the door and go outside. She didn't know what to expect out there, but anything was better than being in this room. I haven't any key. Give it to her, the voice commanded Ricky. Ricky threw the key and it landed on the floor. Della picked it up, unlocked the door. You can go now, the voice told Della. Addressing Ada and Ricky, it was less gentle. Don't try to follow her, either one of you. In fact, don't leave the room for an hour. Della stepped out of the cabin, closing the door after her. The night was clear and cool, and the moon hung low over the tops of the trees. A milk tanker boomed up the highway, slowed at the hill as its gears ground. A couple of hobnobbers went by, motors churning. They're straight through Hollywood mufflers, drowning out the sound of the truck. Della walked across the yard, the shale crunching under her feet. She came to the end of a long line of darkened cars and lighted windows. When she reached the office, she turned to enter, intending to call a taxi. A car, running without lights, drifting across the parking lot. It came alongside her and stopped. Get in, the driver said. It was Ed Loring. I'm not that crazy, Della said. I know what you're thinking, he said earnestly. You got it figured that I had the movie taken of us, haven't you? Well, you're way off in left field on that one. I didn't know Ken had a camera on us. If I'd have known, I'd kill that bastard right there. Della swung away from the car. Look, Ed persisted. I didn't come here to bring those pictures. I came to take them back. They're right here on the front seat. Ella turned and faced him, her eyes wide. Ed, then that was you? He laughed. The man in the window? Oh, Ed. Sure, she hated him, she told herself. He was a human dog, and worse than that. But 
what he had just done wiped out a lot of the past. She ran to the car, half crying, half sobbing. Ed, I can't thank you enough. He reached across the seat and opened the door. Come around and get in. We got to get out of here. She did as she was told. But your voice, she said as they swung out of the driveway. It sounded so different. Lucky I learned something in a school play once, he told her, peeking the motor before letting it drop into high. I was supposed to be a ship's captain talking off stage, and I disguised my voice by talking into a water glass. Only thing I learned in school that did me any good. But maybe it's a big dividend. That bitch Ada would have had me hunting a headstone if she knew. They drove a while in silence. Funny thing, Ed said finally. When that came, cab came up to the house and you went out alone, I thought you were up to something. That's why I followed you. She remembered the car that had trailed them down the mountain. So you've been watching me, she said. He shook his head. No, I was on my way up to the house. I tried the kitchen door, found it locked, and then I saw this cab. When that happened, I just grabbed the first car with a key in it and took off. And the gun? He swung off the highway and the big car swept up the hill road. Hell, I didn't have any gun. A bluff, that's all. He's not afraid, she thought. Not afraid of anything. He's like an animal that way. And in other ways. First thing we do is we burn the film, he said. Thank the Lord for that, Della sighed and leaned back against the cushion. What a sucker I was to go down and meet Ricky. It's better this way, Ed reasoned. At least we've got the film and you know where it is. And you're under no illusions about that husband of yours. Yes, that's all true. She rolled down the window and let the night air rush in against her. Ricky had played his big hand and lost everything, including his thumb and fingers. She, she was thoroughly finished with him. I thank you again, she breathed deeply, very much. This play with your husband tonight stumps me, he said. You see, Arch thought maybe that you two were separated, that it might cause trouble. That's why Ada's been working on Ricky. Though my guess is that she wasn't supposed to go so far. Unless, unless, unless what? His hands tightened on the wheel and the car swayed. Unless you're trying to take me, he explained. Then he rushed on excitedly. Yeah, that must be it. If you had signed that transfer title, I'd have been out. Don't you see? Their only hold on the place has been through me because of you. Take you out and I'm out. Put your husband in and they're in. Simple, isn't it? I don't know. I just can't picture Ricky. He needs money, doesn't he? Well, yes, but... And it wouldn't be just that, Ed said knowingly. It would have been more than that. With Ada working on him, she'd get him drunk. That wouldn't be very hard, would it? And then, please, Della said, let's not talk about it. They rode a short distance in silence. I can't see why they'd want to cut you out, Della said finally. You've done a lot for the Holdens, haven't you? He nodded, lighting a cigarette, the flare of the match outlined in his face. It's the girl, he said. That Ada, she hates me. I wouldn't have thought so. Ed shrugged and dimmed his lights for an approaching car. If you want to know, I threw in with the Holdens three years ago because I thought I was in love with Ada. It was like being in love with a stick of wood, something that wasn't even alive. But I held on, thinking that it would be different, hoping that it would change. But all that happened was she came to resent me. She's jealous of everything I do for the Holdens. She regards me as a rival, an interloper. She feels that I have too much influence. Ed's foot pressed the gas pedal and the car roared up the mountain. Chapter 12 Friday was a busy day. The horde of sun lovers began to arrive shortly before noon in caddies and Chryslers and other big cars of the carriage trade. 
The parking lot behind the house overflowed and spilled down the field almost to the lake. Look at them, Ed said once. Just look at them. Men and women, old and young, many of them important people with low numbers on their license plates and full figure amounts on their paychecks, all crawling up the mountain to live it up under the sun. On Monday, they would be back at their desks or in their fancy homes, and the hunger would be satisfied for a little while, only to appear again in a few days. There's something to this nudist thing, Della said. She realized that a deep and yearning for freedom and health was what drove these people to the camp. And they came, she knew, because they considered the camp the real thing, a legitimate moral establishment where they could pursue their hobby in peace and privacy. You have to get them to feel that the place is safe, Ed had told her. Take a banker, for instance. You have to sell him on the idea that once he goes to the reservation, his identity is lost. You have to assure him that his participation will never plague him in his business life. Can you imagine what it would do to the bank president if it got around that he was a nudist? Stella watched them come, smiling men and pleasant-faced women, happy couples mostly, and plenty of children. Ada Holden stopped at the house once during the day, but she gave no indication that she was even remotely aware of the incident the night before. She's a sharp one, Ed said as she left. She'll play this all the way out to the end, though she's lost that reel of film. You think so? Yeah. Only my guess is that she'll try something on Sunday night. Not tonight, not tomorrow night. I'm banking on that. But you're not sure. No, I'm not sure. Still, this is the way I have it figured. Tonight is no good, because Ken isn't here yet, and nobody has taken any pictures. He'll take them tomorrow during the day, and some more on Sunday. I got a hunch that Ada will be wanting all of them. But why, Della asked. Why this weekend, Ed? He smiled. There are a lot of reasons, he said. I think she knows that I was the man at the window last night. Next, there. How could she know? I said she was smart, didn't I? Hell, you know what she did when she got back. I know, because I sat on the porch watching. She went over every one of those cars, putting her hand on the hood, seeing if there was only one that was warm. And she found it. Not only that, she's been asking everyone down at the reservation if they saw me last night. Bella nodded. Tomorrow night, she'll want to wait for more pictures on Sunday. Ed went on. She'll want to collect as many pictures as possible for a little blackmail racket, because she may not have another chance here. With you and your husband fighting about title to the place, anything can happen. Ed lowered his voice and spoke earnestly. I'm telling you all this for just one reason. I want you to help me upset whatever pl her plan is. To tip it over. It's either them or me now, and I want it to be me. But I need your help. Will you give it to me? He was a fool, she thought. A hungry, stupid fool. Yes, she said, I'll help you. Now, I don't want to have to kick any more suspicion than I already have, I told her. So listen carefully to what I say. They were interrupted by the arrival of a man and a woman. Hello, the man said to Ed. Remember me? Ed shook his hand. I think you're from Red Bank. That's right. He nodded at the woman and winked. My wife? Ed smiled at the woman. How do you do? He asked. The man registered. Asked directions to the reservation, and the couple departed. He's a trap, Ed said. He gets two or three every year. A trap? Yes, he works on a 50-50 split. He picks a dame, a good sucker, and then runs her into the camp. The one with him is a pretty high in New Jersey politics. She'll play, pay plenty to get the negative of her picture, and she won't let out a peep. 
Filthy, Ed shrugged. Ed went over to the window, stood there looking out. This is the last time, Ed told her solemnly. There'll be no more after this. Give me tomorrow night and a month to pick up the loot, and I'm out of this racket for good. He turned around facing her, his eyes serious. You know what? I'm going to buy myself a little restaurant somewhere. Nothing fancy, just a little place. Then I'm going to do it over. Put in some good food and live like a fellow ought to live. You'll never be able to wash it off, she warned him. Wash what off? The filth. For a moment, he looked tired, older. You could help me, Della. We'll see, she said, not meaning it. But you'll help me. I said I would. He walked away from the window, coming over to her quickly. Listen to me now, he said. You got a watch? Upstairs? Fine. Wear it tomorrow. Wear it all day so you don't forget it. At 8.30 tomorrow night, you come down to the reservation, find Ken Scholes, and tell him he's got a New York call from Clifton Bradstreet. Can you remember that name? I guess so. Well, he's one of the biggest outlets Scholes has for girly pictures. If you remember that, it'll be all right. But the watch is important. As soon as you have told Scholes and he has left the tent. Which tent? Oh, the one where we were that day. He kissed her lightly on the cheek. I guess you know where that one is, all right. Now, Scholes does his work behind the partition in the rear. You may have to yell for him, but he'll be there because he'll be getting his flash equipment ready to work on couples. Ada will steer to him. I'll be watching for you from the other side of the field. After Scholes leaves the tent to answer the phone, you walk straight across the clearing. The reason for this is that I may not be able to recognize him at that distance, but I'll be able to spot your blonde hair. As soon as you do this, I'll go over to the tent Scholes just left. Another man and woman came in, registered, and left. By this time, it'll be getting close to dark, Ed went on. Wait until Scholes has started for the house. Then get your clothes from the woman's tent. Carry them with you and go back to the tent Scholes was working in. Go inside and put on your clothes. Hide behind some of the boxes if you want, but keep your eyes on your watch. At a quarter of nine, you'll hear someone yell, Fire! When you hear that, Go to the back of the tent and pick up the green hatback sitting on the ground, right in the middle of his equipment. Go out the back way, into the woods, and keep going. Circle the field and come back to the house. Hide the box where it can't be found and wait for me. I'll join you as soon as I can. It sounded easy, Della thought. Nothing to it. And the fire? She inquired. Oh, hell. It'll just be a little blaze that I'll start. I'll burn a handful of film. And after it's over, nobody will be hurt, and nobody will know what cost it. It sounds all right, she said. Solid. Only one weak point, Ed. Yeah? Me, she smiled at him. I'll have the box. How do you know you can trust me? He lowered his head and brushed her lips across her mouth. I think I can. I have to trust somebody. But you're not sure. No, he admitted. I'm not sure. He reached into his pocket, brought out an envelope. I forgot to add something, Della. No matter what happens afterwards... Between you and me, even if I don't ever see you again, when I get the box, we make an exchange. You get the negative of that picture. Thank you, she said as the car drove up. Now I know the deal. We both know. Another car rumbled up the driveway. Until tomorrow night, Ed said. She walked to the door. Until tomorrow night, she said. At six, Della and Jenny had supper in the kitchen. Fish, Della said. Cod, I used to help dry this stuff back in Iceland. It's good, Jenny said. You wouldn't think so, Della decided. Not if you lived near the fields where they hung out like tobacco in the sun. Sometimes at night the wind would shift and you'd have to put 
your window down or you'd get so sick you wouldn't be able to eat for a week. You can have tomorrow night off, Della told the girl. Say, from seven on. Thanks, Mrs. Farland, but I want the car left here. The smile disappeared from Jenny's face. Gee, Mrs. Farland, I don't know. Sammy works until I'll pay your cab fare. Don't worry about that. Jenny piled the dishes near the sink, got the rinse out and started the water. You've sure changed that Mr. Farland hadn't been around, Jenny observed. Della hesitated in the doorway, considered the statement. I believe I have, she admitted. The last car arrived around nine, but she waited another half hour before leaving the porch and going inside. The sound of music and laughter drifted up from the reservation, filling the night. In a few days, peop- a few hours, perhaps tears of desperation would replace the laughs of some of these people. It was a bitter, hard world. She had just turned on the cellar light when someone knocked on the kitchen door. It was Ken Scholes. Only giving the word, he said. I'm staying down below. I got a feeling my equipment will be safer down there. She nodded and watched his back disappear into the darkness. She wondered without caring if he enjoyed his work. The cellar was as modern as the rest of the house, though she hadn't used it very much. Ricky had explained once, laughingly, that the cellar belonged to him and that she could have the balance of the place. She supposed at the time that this was because he kept his liquor down there. The walls were finished off in knotty pine, and at the far end in one corner was a serving bar. Behind this stood a huge three-cornered cabinet where Ricky had kept his golf clubs, fishing equipment, and guns. She hoped that he hadn't cleared everything out. The fishing equipment, she soon discovered, was gone. So were the golf clubs and the hunting bow with the 60-pound pole, and the rifles and the shotguns, they had been taken away, too. Tella swore and jerked the drawers open, one after the other. Nothing. She swore again. Then in the shallow walnut case, she found what she wanted, the gun. So he had not bothered to take it. Good. She lifted it out of the case, a thirty-two Smith & Wesson. Deadly, Ricky had once explained to her. Small and deadly. Her hand broke the gun open and spun the cylinder. Loaded. Six bullets. When she got back to the bedroom, she tried the gun on for size. It wouldn't work with the white halter, but if she wore the red one, the one with the wire and fringes on the top, she could carry the gun in that between her breasts. She stood before the mirror, turning slowly. The bulge was noticeable, but in the late hours of evening, no one would see it. No one would see it unless she took it out and pointed it at them. She hid the gun in one of the bureau drawers and undressed for bed. As she crossed the room to open the window, she paused in front of the mirror. She glanced at herself. Beautiful, she thought. A truly beautiful body. The naked body of a woman. No artist could capture it, Ricky had told her once long ago. They could put it on a canvas, but they couldn't make it live, make it glow. Not the way you glow. A sob came to her throat as she stood remembering. The easiest, Ed Loring had told her. The easiest I had ever had. She wanted to be sick. She wanted to throw something at the mirror and smash it. In bed with the lights out, she cried. She was being weak when she should be strong, displaying fear when she should be courageous. She rolled over, closing her eyes. It was a good thing that she found the gun. She'd have gotten drunk or gotten out of her mind or done something terrible if she hadn't. She hadn't been thinking of it, not actually, but the night before was still with her. Those movements in Ricky's motel room were still haunting her. There was nothing for them now, never again, not for her and Ricky and Ed. Ed was worse. Ed wasn't fighting for anything that belonged to him, just for money to steal. Sounds of the music floated up from the lake. It was an old song, I'm in the mood for love.
Della turned over again, twisting her sheet around her, pulling her pillow over her head. Chapter 13 825, 825, Della thought, since Saturday this side of hell. She walked across the field, through the gathering dusk, her body naked except for her shoes and the cap. The shoes were comfortable, but the cap hurt. Underneath the cap was the gun. Nakedness was everywhere. Men and women talking, laughing, joking. A radio blared, giving the lineup of the Dodgers for the night game. Then the radio faded, and a battery of violins took up a Viennese waltz. Wonderful place, a fat man said. It stinks, Della thought. A paradise, another man said. Real outdoors. Della reached the tent and stopped. Mr. Scholes? She pulled the flap aside. Mr. Scholes? Yeah? The tent was lighted with a small yellow bulb. The voice came from beyond the canvas partition. There's a phone call for you, long distance. Some man by the name of Bradstreet wants to talk to you. The partition parted, and Ken Scholes stepped out. He, too, was naked, and he looked a lot worse with his clothes off than he did with them on. Oh, for gosh shakes, he complained. I wonder what he wants. Della managed to smile. He said he wanted you. Ken Scholes turned away. Tell him I'll call him back. She waited a second and then gave him the hook. He's hanging on, Della said. I'm sure it's important. The photographer hesitated a moment, then made his way towards her. Hell, he said. Most likely, a lot of bother over nothing. He came out of the tent and stood looking at her. You got some shape, he told her. Nice, he laughed, walking away. She followed him across the clearing and hurried into the woman's tent. She was grateful for the fact that no one else was there. Quickly, she pulled on her shorts tied the halter in place, and pushed the gun down in the front. Then she went outside and waited, the metal of the gun digging into her breasts. It was so dark now that no one could tell whether she was dressed or not. Ken Scholes appeared in a few moments and walked to the trees, disappearing into the darkness. Deliberately, she turned and walked across the field again. There was a dry roar in her head, and her mouth was parched and dry. She glanced at the watch as he reached the tent. It was 20 minutes before 9. Inside, she tied the straps of the flap securely before going through past the partition. Another yellow light burned in there. The green box was not in the middle of the floor. She moved around the tiny space, hunting. There were photos and film all over. She found a box and started to gather them up. Almost instantly, she stopped and threw the box down. This was no mistake. This was deliberate. Ed had gotten the pictures he wanted, and Ed was gone. Ed had used her as a decoy to get Ken Scholes away from the tent. Somehow she was not surprised, nor was she angry. It was part of the fast and deadly game they were playing. She found a piece of newspaper and rumpled it, laying it close to a pile of the film. Then she took a book of matches from her pocket, struck one, and held it. Maybe she wouldn't be able to burn them all, as she had intended doing. But she would get some of them. There were a lot of faces in those pictures, a lot of faces of people who wouldn't have to pay. She touched the match to the paper. Moving quickly, she slipped through the opening at the rear of the tent, stumbled over a stake, recovered, and started running through the woods. Once in the woods, she stopped and looked back. Fire! Somebody was shouting. Fire! Fire! She looked at the tent. An orange glow had appeared inside, wavering, but as yet, it was the only visible sign of fire. Glancing to the right, she saw the red blaze of flames leaping skyward and the naked figures moving around it. Damn! She swung further away from the clearing, deeper into the woods. 
Something had gone wrong. Maybe Ed hadn't gotten to the tent. Maybe there weren't any other pictures. She hoped there weren't. But there was at least one more, the one Ed had, the photo of herself. She had to find Ed. The gun was in her hand, small and deadly. She began running again. The scrub oaks dug into her legs, and small stinging branches whipped her across the face. Once she struck a tree and fell down, she got up, gasping for breath. She didn't care. Nothing mattered except one thing. She had to find Ed. Wild shouts went up from the clearing. She glanced back. Red flames were shooting into the sky. She laughed and kept on running. Minutes later, she came out of the woods. Her breast ached, and she was so exhausted that she wanted to lie down. But she couldn't. She had to go on. She had to get to the house. Had to be there when Ed arrived. If he would arrive. She reached the house, but she didn't go inside. She clung to the railing on the back steps, fighting for breath, conscious now of the pain in her legs, the awful howl ache in her chest. Every breath was an effort preceded by a thought. She remembered something that Ricky had told her one time when they'd been swimming. Don't think about it, he said. Don't think about breathing, and you can stay underwater twice as long. Think about something else, he said. Yes, think about Ed and the pictures and what was happening down there. She sat down on the steps, waiting, a gun in her hand. The shouts were still coming up from the reservation, but they subsided somewhat. The fire no longer lit the sky. She continued to wait, breathing steadily now, feeling sore all over. A figure moved up the road, coming fast. The white shirt appeared as though it were a ghost, walking on top of nothing. She waited until he was close to the porch. Ed? Tala! Christ! What happened? She stood up, the gun leveled at his shirt. I burned your pretty pictures, she told him. Aren't I awful? The shirt stood still briefly, then moved towards her. You lousy bitch. I have a gun here, Della said. She was surprised that her voice was so calm. If you come one step closer, I'll kill you, Ed. You must be crazy, he said, but he remained motionless. Crazy enough to kill you, yes. Bitch, he said. I should have known better. She laughed at him. You have my pictures and I have a gun. I'll make a trade with you, Ed. I'll save one of my bullets if you give me the picture. And if I don't? She laughed at him again. I'll just need one shot. The shirt moved as he shifted his weight from one foot to the other. She could barely see the outline of his face. You could have brought the box, he said in disgust. That was the deal. It wasn't there. Like hell it wasn't. But I'm telling you it wasn't. The night came in around them, bringing them very close for a hushed instant. It must have been Ada, he whispered in disbelief. She guessed what we were up to. Damn her. Shut up, Ed, and give me the picture. But it was Ada. I don't care who it was. Give me the picture. He came slowly towards her, stopped. Here it is, Ed said. It's yours. Nothing went right, but I'll admit you earned it. She reached for a white envelope in his hand. Thanks, Ed. He moved fast, cursing savagely, and she had no time to shoot. He twisted her arm up high into the rear, toppling her to the stairs. Then he was on top of her, his knees punching her in the stomach, the pain going all the way to her back. You got the picture, yelled at her. Give me the gun. All I want is the gun. No. He twisted her arm again, down along her side. She tried to lift her leg to kick him, but she couldn't. Her free hand went to his face, digging the nails into his skin, cutting him. The gun kept going down and down. She screamed once, and as he turned and bit her on the hand, the gun went off. Christ, he said. He got up. The gun rattled down the steps, and he grabbed it. Ah, bitch, he said. I'll kill her. Ed? 
I'll kill her. She sat up. A sharp pain shot through her right leg. No, Ed. But he was already gone, running down the road, cursing violently. The envelope was there on the bottom step. She picked it up and tore it into tiny pieces. When she looked at her hands, she saw that they were covered with blood. She stood up trembling. She felt of her right leg moving down from the top, and when she reached the calf, there was blood and there was a hole. She limped slowly towards the car. If she could get started, she thought, climbing in. How did you get one of those things going? She closed her eyes, remembering how Jenny did it. Her hand found the key and she turned it. The other hand found the starter button and pressed hard. The engine roared and she took a deep breath. The lights! Where in the hell were the lights? She pulled on one knob and the car almost stalled. She pulled on another and the lights came on. The gears ground and the car began to move forward. She tried to think. There were a lot of things that she had to do. The police, she had to get to them. She should have called the police from the house, but she had it. She supposed it didn't make much difference. Ed would do what he had set out to do. It was too late to stop him. She came to a turn in the road and almost lost control of the car before she found the brake. The tire squealed and the wooden body creaked. When she reached the highway, she turned right towards the landing, driving as fast as she dared. Hell, she thought, there's nothing to handle in a car in the States. She should have been doing it a long time ago. She came to the bridge, crossed it, and started up a short steep hill. The headlights of an approaching car probed the night. Partway up the hill, the car broke into view, moving fast. For a moment, the lights blinded her, and her left foot sought the dimmer switch. And it was then that she knew, knew with terrifying certainty, that there would be an accident, that she was driving the Ford on the wrong side of the road. The onrushing car lurched, its tires screeched on the macadam. She felt the Ford sway drunkenly as she spun the wheel, heard the scrape of metal on stone as the car plowed into the bank. Her foot slammed down hard on the brake, slipped off and slammed down again. She was thrown forward against the steering wheel, then back against the seat as the station wagon jolted to a halt. God, she whispered. She looked out and down. The road seemed far below. The other car was down there, far over on the shoulder of the highway, its motor running. In the distance, a siren wailed. Hey, up there, you okay? It was Ricky. I'm all right, she said. He got out of the car, stood there in the road laughing at her. I should have known it, he said. Only a dumb Mojack would be driving on the wrong side of the road. This is the States, baby. You drive on the right-hand side down here. She was furious with him. Never mind, she told him as he stepped up the bank. She pushed the door open and got out of the car. I can manage by myself. Her leg pained when she put her weight on it, and there was so much drying blood in her sandal that it felt as though she was standing in wet sand. Just a minute, Ricky told her. A police car came into view, sirens screaming. It slowed coming down the hill and stopped near Ricky. The police and Ricky talked for a moment, and then the police car moved on, gathering speed. I said to wait, didn't I? Ricky demurred. I never saw anybody so stubborn as an Icelander. She was by the side of the road now, barely able to stand her legs throbbing. Cripes, Ricky exclaimed, coming closer. Look at your leg, baby. She tried to smile. You look at it, she said weakly. I'm sick of it already. He picked her up, lifting her on his strong arms, and it seemed so good not to have to stand anymore. What happened, baby? I had a gun and it went off. He carried her over to the caddy. Accidentally, I was fighting with Ed Loring. He opened the door with one hand and placed her gently on the seat. And what happened to him? He took the gun away from me. She felt so tired and she wanted to forget all about it. 
I think he was going to kill Ada Holden. Ricky closed the door and crossed the wheel of the headlights and got in behind the wheel. I wish him good hunting, Ricky said. The engine of the caddy roared and he swung the car around quickly, heading back towards the landing. He kills her and he'll burn, Ricky assured her. The cops will have him before he can get to the main road. They'll both get what they ought to get. She held her leg out straight, half sitting on the seat. There was less discomfort that way. The police, Della said. I don't understand about them. They came to a sharp curve, but Ricky never slowed the big car. I went and got them. You? Yes. He glanced at her, smiling a little. After Thursday night, say, was that Ed Loring at the window? She nodded. Well, I didn't know, but I guessed as much. Anyway, after Thursday night, after you'd gone, I had quite a talk with Ada. She was upset. I got the idea that it wasn't so much that they wanted to stay out at the nest forever as it was to have something so conclusive on the owner that the owner would never talk about their blackmail racket. Ricky, let me finish, will you? I'm only trying to say that after you left, I sort of gave her the idea that I'd get the property away from you anyhow. You see, when I first met her down at the hotel bar, that was the thing she wanted to talk to me about, whether you own the nest or I owned it. At first, I thought it was pretty silly. What difference did it make? They were there, weren't they? But later, the other night, she told me that she wanted to cut out this Ed Loring. She wanted a permanent location. She was tired of jumping around all over. When I couldn't convince her that I'd get it away from you, and she got the idea I might go to the police, she showed me a little picture. Della shut her eyes. Of me? No. Ricky Farland. Me. Me and her. She must have taken it the first night she was out to the motel. But I'm sorry, Ricky. It must have been an awful mess. He lit two cigarettes and handed her one. Ada made the mistake when she came up with that picture of me. Oh, I got that one from her, all right. I just took it. But of course, there was a negative. The next day, I went to the police. They did some checking and found out that this crew is vicious. When Ada told me that you were going to hang onto the property, she said she had a film that would make you change your mind. The cops told me to let her use it, to use you as bait. But when Ed got there before they did and took the film, well, that ruined things. I told them I'd keep on things and let them know when to hit the camp. The lights of the landing showed in the distance. Ricky grinned and puffed on a cigarette. Now I'll tell you something else. I was there, he said. I was smelling around and I confiscated a green box. In a way, she wasn't surprised. I followed you, he explained. I followed you when you left the house. When you went in that tent to take off your clothes, I took off mine in the woods. When you walked over to tell that fellow about the phone call, I kept about 25 feet in back of you. After you had both gone, I went into that tent, not to look for anything exactly, but to have some place to hide and study out the situation. I saw a green box in plain sight, a box filled with pictures, and I decided then that something was up. So I dumped out the box looking for the negatives of my own pictures, but I didn't find it. When I heard someone coming, I shoved most of the photos back into the box and went out of the back. A couple of minutes later, someone yelled fire, and I decided it was time to move. I got over to my clothes, put them on, and ran back to the house. The police were waiting along the road, back there a ways, and I came down for them. Ricky, she thought, you foolhardy idiot. You could have been killed. Well, what happened to the pictures? I gave them to the police. They'll be used as evidence, but none of them will be made public. The people who are guests will not be injured in any way, and their names will not be used. From now on, they may have sense enough to only go to those nudist camps that are approved. She told him then about Ed Loring's plans. 
what she had done and what had happened. Never mind. We got to get you to a doctor, Ricky said. The light of the town moved closer, and up ahead, a red light blinker poked its finger into the night. We got off on the wrong foot, baby, Ricky said. Too much of nothing and not enough of the things that counted. Too much booze at the start because I was scared of losing you, and too much of it later on because I thought I had. Della closed his eyes. Let's not fight, she whispered. She felt the car slow, his arm go around her shoulders. I'm not fighting, I'm talking. I'm trying to say that we've both been wrong, that we've both made mistakes. I'm trying to say that I thought I hated you, but I don't anymore. I don't know if I love you or if I don't, but I do know some other things. I know that I hadn't got a dime. I know we've both done a lot of harm to ourselves and that we lost a lot of friends. She opened her eyes watching him. Yes, Ricky? His hands tightened on her shoulder. What I'm trying to say is this. I've got nobody and you've got nobody. We were happy once. Why don't we try to be that way again? Ricky, she thought. Ricky, you're trying to start it all over again. There's Jenny, she reminded him. We have to think of her. All right, we'll think of her. At least the baby. Yes. We could help her. And well, if it's too much for her later on, if she feels... We could adopt it, Ricky suggested. Della closed her eyes again, closed them against the tears. Yes, she said. We could adopt it. They stopped at a traffic light and the motor idled smoothly. You won't hold it against me, baby? No. She couldn't be sure. He leaned over and kissed her on the mouth as the light changed. I think I love you, Della, he said. But ease your mind. That baby isn't mine. Probably it belongs to that Sammy of hers. Jeannie lied, she gasped. Is that what you're telling me? I don't blame her, he said. Possibly you made the opening. You were only too ready to believe the worst of me. So you went along with the gag out of some vague notion of pleasing you or improving the lot of her child, safeguarding its future. The car stopped and she went into his arms, her legs paining fiercely. Ricky, oh, Ricky, forgive me. He kissed her. We haven't got a dime, he said, not a dime. Don't worry about it, Ricky, we'll get by. He stroked her hair and looked down into her eyes. I thought it was something really crazy, he said. We got the tents up there. And we've done a good turn for the nudists by getting rid of the those those crumbs. The nudists will respect us after this. Why don't we run a real camp for them, an honest one? She kissed him on the lips. I'd liked it fine, she said. They'll gossip about us anyways. I know. But what do we care? Her arms went around him, and she told him it didn't matter. didn't matter at all. Where are we? She wanted to know. At Doc Anderson's, he said. He got out and walked around the car. It's about the only place we can charge a medical bill at this time of the night. He picked her up and carried her towards the house. When he reached the door, he hesitated, grinned, and then kissed her good and hard. We'll get over it, he promised her. Della Farland nodded and clung to her husband. It was a chance they had to take. The End Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about Nudist Camp by Ori Hitt. Uh, 1957 paperback original that Evan narrated for us. And uh, I, I want to say before we start, I really enjoy your falsetto. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a fun one to read. <laughs> There's a, well, it's mostly female point of view, right? Yeah. Um, um, so. Yeah, so this author is a, a pretty interesting guy. He wrote a bunch of books. 150 um, or so is what... Yeah, something. Says. And he wrote them. Well, 
I think they're mostly public domain because yeah. uh, he wrote for a company and the, like he just wrote for they're a disposable. Like a, yeah. And that company is no longer with us. And I think they didn't like bother renewing any of the copyrights or anything. So right. They're all um, available to be read or put on archive.org or wherever. Narrated. So I might do some more. Yeah. I mean, there's so um, many good ones. But they all look title wise. Pick which one, you know, you want to do. Like, there's one, Never Cheat Alone. I think <laughs> I want to check out that one. Or here, just this, this uh, uh, blog you sent me uh-huh. has a. As a cover, Torrid Wench. Yeah. What's this one? Pushover. Gloria, Madeline, Sandy. Each was easy pickings. <laughs> a torrid tale of a town more wicked than Peyton Place. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's through but, a keyhole we're seeing a couple lovers kissing. Yeah. There's. Um, what would you call them? They're like they're crime novel adjacent, but they're like smut. The they're reason, like smut the reason I sent you this particular one, other than it was well written and interesting, is I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to send this to Evan um, because it quoted it, it has a name for this. And it's so funny. It's Sleaze Core. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's the name. For it, it's what it should be if it's not. Because, um, yeah, what's funny is this is like a science fiction novel, except, um, the genre is different. It's a, uh, sleazecore novel. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's stupid. It's stupid, interesting entertainment. I can't imagine reading this if I was a kid at the time or. I don't know. I guess an adult at the time. I go into the drugstore and I see this book on the spinner rack, although probably wasn't on the spinner rack. Probably have to ask for it behind the counter. Um, I can't imagine reading it and saying, this is going to be my entertainment. Um, because even though it's, it was pretty well written, um, it's also supposed to be disposable fiction. And it feels like that largely, like it's kind of fluffy. Um, there's a plot. It makes sense, but uh, it its fetish is for sex. Um, whereas I'm like, no, I, I like have ideas in my science fiction. Um, so this would be more like uh, you know rocket ships with lots of fin talking about the fins, <laughs> or there's a kind of sex book uh, fetish book uh, for men, um, and it's like. Uh, it's like romance novels for men, uh, where they talk about guns. Like, uh, there's books called like Executioner and, uh, Deathlands. And usually they're like yeah. post apocalyptic novels where some hard man is walking through the Mad Max world and he pulls out his Sig Sauer with modified <laughs> scope and laser sight and it's got an extended mag, right? Like, it's it's books for dumb people basically, um, which is funny because you're not a dumb guy, but you like this book, and I I thought it was um, pretty fun. I I do think there's some interesting things in this book. Oh yeah, uh, really interesting. But I think it's, if I was reading it at the time, I wouldn't find it so interesting. But you know, maybe I would. when I read the the Westlake one, was yeah. his brother and sister, mm-hmm. and there it was like real estate, and here again it's like it's real estate. Real estate. It was weird. It's, it's like, I don't know if this is just like an 
something people in the 50s were like obsessed with? It might be because it's like it's interesting time right? of like Levitt towns and, you know, you mm-hmm. have this rising middle class. So maybe there is this focus on and pro- um, property. Who owns property? Yeah. But or if it's just like an easy go to plot to talk about, you know, I don't know. That's something that you got a marriage. Mm-hmm. Break it up. You're going to fight over the property. Right. Um, it, the so. plots are very similar. It, it's really odd. You know, the differences yeah. are. But like, think about how similar they are. They both have uh, people who were overseas, uh, mm-hmm. men who went overseas uh, to Europe. Uh, this one up, was Iceland, right? Yeah, Iceland versus Germany. Bella's from Iceland, a poor girl from Iceland. So this idea of Iceland being like a poor backwater of Europe, which is how I never thought of it. I never uh, – In the 50s, that's what it was. I learned a lot about Iceland, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I assume these are all facts. Near the end, there's a, uh, a Iceland slur I couldn't. It was it was like Bojack or something. Yeah, it wasn't Bohunk, but it was like that. There was some sort of Iceland slur. I didn't write it down. I should have. Um, but just the how the culture uh, was like. I assume that he he knows what he's talking about. He's not just making up Iceland like an alien planet. Because <laughs> I know so little about it. Other, you know, it's a hundred thousand people. It's got a capital named Reykjavik. There's volcanoes there, but the mm-hmm. cultural stuff. Uh, where women aren't so worried about who the hus- uh, the father of their baby is. Um, that'd be interesting if true. Am I learning yeah. something about Iceland? Or well, the the nudism? Yeah, I've being a part of Iceland sense. Like, makes yeah, sense. Maybe the hot springs and all that. Maybe it makes sense, right? For the brief summers. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, and it, it being poor. Um, which, you know, I didn't think about, but it makes sense. Um, but uh, notice that the, Maybe it's like some Viking culture that somehow survived. It's, from the it's interesting. 10th century. Oh, well, it's a, it's a very small population, right? A hundred thousand people. It's not like, um, mm-hmm. it's not like a major Europe. It's probably one of the smallest European countries by population. Um, I know a lot about like its military history, like how it was, it, taken over by the British to prevent the Nazis from taking it. And then the British handed it over to the Americans. And then after the war, the American says, yeah, yeah, you're free now, but we're going to keep our military here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like Iceland's like, I guess what can we do? <laughs> Except that's not their accent. Apparently they don't have an accent. Um, it's not a Swedish accent. So, um, I, uh, Paul didn't want to do this one because uh, of nudity, I guess. Um, but I think he would have been more upset by the uh, all the violence, a lot of wife hitting. Oh yeah, and yeah, and- there's there's a lot of that. And then I think that's of course the most troublesome part of the book for readers of today. Mm-hmm. I think is that uh, the husband is made up to be the bad guy for he's. A, wife beater and yep. drunk and abusive and cheating on her and everything. He's just a horrible husband, but, um, they get back together at the end. And yep. He sort of saves the day. They so, reconcile. Um, it's, I don't know if Ori hit was thinking that much about it. I, he probably just, you know, wanted this. What was that guy's name? The, the bad guy. Um, don't know. <laughs> Ed? 
It sounds good. It sounds right. We'll go yeah. with it. Ed's, Ed's the bad guy, right? He's the one who's just kind of conning her to get the get the nudist colony, and then they're scamming people, right? So they're they're. I, taking, I learned they're, a lot about nudism. Like fo- yeah, they're taking the photos uh, and then blackmailing people for for pay, right? So yeah. that's the scam. And so Ed's just sort of seducing her for that, and then and he's got his like troops. He's got all those people helping him, and there's a nice little plot where it's a. Uh, you know, where he basically, how does that go? Uh, what's with the, the hotel room and the video and the film, all that. Yeah. It's, he's trying to get that. He's basically trying to get the property from her, right? That's yeah. The scheme, you know, under his name. And then the, the, the ex-husband comes and saves the day. Yeah. Gets out, gets off his drunk. Um, it, it is kind of weird, uh, ending. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess they're more about selling the book at the beginning than it is uh, about you know quality output at the end because it doesn't it doesn't come off as a classic. But I can no. I, I I can tell you that I find it very interesting. I I, mm-hmm. I guess this is sort of always my story is I find any old really old book quite interesting um because it is like an archaeological stratum even if yeah. it's not a castle it, there's something mm-hmm. interesting there and this fossil has things that make me think things about ooh i wonder what other fossils are under there you know in a similar from the same period because i am struck by the fact how sim- similar the two books are uh mm-hmm. brother and sister and uh and this one and is it because those are the things floating around in people's minds. So, uh, well, one of the, one of the, uh, I think the first time I learned about nudism, maybe not, maybe the, maybe that's the second time I learned about nudism. Uh, I think the first time I learned about nudism, probably there was some nude people, um, on one of the granola crunching islands that I grew up around. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of, col- there was lots of religious colonies, like, um, uh, summer camps for various church organizations, and I was not a church goer or church member, so I I found them to be strange, and f- I was fearful of of falling under their religion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably probably more fearful than I should have been, but um, I was young and foolish then. Anyways, um, there was also like uh, yeah, weird festival uh, people and. All sorts of that. So there's that. And then uh, after a real-life experience of weird nudists, um, I think the next time I heard about them was with MASH. Uh, Alan Alda's character, Hawkeye, mm-hmm. he was always yeah. get, he was always getting nudist magazines. Nudism or they were like – there was euphemisms so that they wouldn't be confiscated or whatever. Photographer magazine or whatever it was. Um, and so we just knew he liked women, right? I don't, I don't know. There was not a lot of sexual tension, uh, for homosexuality on the show, I guess, other than Corporal Klinger or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, the, but there was this, um, it, a lot of fifties aesthetic, right? Is because it's set in the fifties. They have to do fifties things. And by the time the sixties roll around, I don't think of the fifties people as the same people, but, the other book that I'm reminded of, we did not that long ago, was um, 
The Door into Summer, which is also set at a nudist camp. Oh, yeah, that is nudist. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a scene, uh, like um, just one part. And we get to spend time with a nudist yeah. and their philosophy. Because uh, he yeah, shows. Yeah, I think, I, I know it was a thing like in Germany in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, the, it's, it is a, still a thing, according to uh, Cora. Yeah. Um, um, and actually, we get a chapter here where the whole theory of nudism is laid out, mm-hmm. and it, and that's where Ori Hit is like almost. He doesn't get more serious in the whole book, where he's trying to separate nudism from sex. Because mm-hmm. when you buy this book, you pick it up off the shelf, or you yep. ask for it, or you subscribe to this publisher, or whatever. However, you're getting it, you're attracted to the cover the title it's supposed to titillate right nature the in the raw of the book the opening scenes of the book reinforce this mm-hmm. uh where you see her taking off her clothes and she looks uh, at herself in a full-length mirror she, so yeah she does this all the time actually she's mm-hmm. like obsessed with her own body yeah it's a little narcissistic i suppose <laughs> but it's, well you know it's, women my friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to uh, titillate, right? Yeah, and you're supposed to think you're getting a smut book. It is a smut like, book, but even a, a pretty weird one because it is so educational. Pretty, <laughs> maybe because it's it's in the 50s, it seems kind of tame. Um, yeah, there's very little kind of tame too. There's very little penetration, right? Like, it, yeah, there's very little. Um, I don't know pearl necklaces or whatever. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> it, like that. No, but then you get this chapter where. The the head of the nudist camp or whatever, like the, one of the organizers, the good organizer, not the ones who scam and everyone. He's the one who's serious about nudism. Mm-hmm. gives gives the speech, gives the the, class the lecture where, yeah. where he explains the theory behind nudism, and he's like, it's not about sex. It's it's about um, health and and our natural state and and not being ashamed of our bodies. It's body positivity almost. Mm-hmm. It's it's. Um, that's as serious, I think, as Orihe gets in this, but it, it under, I don't know if that's like to take that one step away from being a pure smut book. It's not, it's like, not pure smut. Educational, yeah, to make it educational. It's really interesting. Right? Remember, or, there's a scene in there that should turn you off where, uh, our heroine meets, uh, ugly, ugly, you know, flabby lady with, uh, yeah. gut, falling over her thighs and her boobs hanging down like pendulums or whatever. Um, And they have a little conversation where uh, she says, oh, that was a test. Is this about sex? Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what to make about uh, of that because I think that it, it, it's not identical with being a swinger, right? Yeah, it's not at all. It's not identical with being a swinger. I think, Swinging might be related, but it's not identical. Well, Heinlein did both, right? He That's right. And Swinger. That's right. And so, um, was Heinlein. But I think your average it? person picking up the book yeah. somehow will, will think nudism and swinging are, are connected, right? Right. Like, or he had also wrote that book, Don't Cheat Alone. Right, right. Which seemed to be about swinging. I'm not sure. I'm sure a lot of them are about swinging. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because it's told from the uh woman's point of view. I think brother and sister is uh both. Uh it's both the brother and the sister point of view yeah. going from memory. This one is yeah. pretty much um our our um Icelandic 
uh, gorgeous lady and her abusive husband gets a little bit of screen time. Um, there's also the, uh, the, it's funny cause we think they're rich and they are in land, but she has a, uh, I want to say she's not a nurse with a maid and there's a gardener, right? So they're living oh, yeah, large. The guy, she's, and then, well, that's another interesting subplot, right? With the baby the pregnancy, right? Yeah. And all that. So, and that's again, it's it's kind of a like a an ethical gloss on this book. It, it feels right. like it was written quickly. I think he was. What's it say on on this? Um, what's it? It's called. Sometimes the whole world stinks. Or he hit the king of tri-state sleaze. Um. Uh, this whoever wrote this article um, is on a website called apocalypse-confidential.com. Um, did really nice job of ruminating on these books. And one of the things he was he was well, I assume it's a he was uh, saying about um, Ori Hit is that he he develops his own mythos. I think the word mythos yeah. is actually used in here. Um, and I'm like. That's amazing, but it makes sense. Um, like if you read a lot of, uh, uh, Lawrence Block, he, one, he'll do like sort of Easter eggs. He sticks something in every, every book, you know, saying it's always the same movie that's playing in the movie theater, something like that. Um, here it sounds like, you know, you're, you're getting, a secret history of the United States just by <laughs> from the fifties and the sixties of all the sex shops. And he, the writer is Twitter handle is Punani, <laughs> Punani mm-hmm. train fan. Um, oh, this is from February 21. So, uh, February 2021. So this, that Wikipedia entry is pretty new, I guess. Or he hits on them on the rise, Evan. His his name is uh, back in. It's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, don't you really want to read more of these? I do. I want to literally read some more of these. Yeah, and I want you to literally read it aloud. Because yeah, I'm working on a different audiobook right now. But good, good. It's not Ori Hit. It's uh, it's a book that's about a thousand years old. I'll take it. (laughs) Hi, Ibn Yaktan. I don't know that one. What's that? It's a it's a work of philosophy, but it apparently influenced Defoe's and, and Robinson Crusoe. Really? And it's it's basically a, f- a philosophical story. Now we're off topic, but it's it's interesting. Okay. Um, he's someone who just like is created out of nothingness, or he says there's two ways to tell the story in the book. He's like it doesn't matter. One is he's created from nothing. And it's on this planet, raised by a uh, a gazelle, <laughs> or or his mother abandoned him for whatever reason. Either way, it doesn't matter. He's on an island without any inf- any connection to the outside world, raised by a gazelle. The gazelle dies when he's old enough to Sounds survive, and then he uh, basically figures out like an Aristotelian, Neoplatonic, synthetic kind of system. Basically, I think it's Aristotelianism, essentially. Um, but it's it's filtered through the Arabic worldview. Nice. Maybe Avicennin, you know, yeah. kind of 
uh, Aristotelianism, but basically he gets there. That's the point. The point is like you can build the whole system from scratch. Same way Robinson Crusoe right. builds civilization sort of from scratch. <laughs> he builds so, capitalism from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on now. Nice. So it's not very long. It'll probably only be two hours. Well, that's great. It's a pretty short book, but I couldn't find an audio book version of that. No, that's even that's though great. the translation is public public domain. But um, yeah, I got a few things I'm finishing up working on. Um, I got to get into the Mark Twain. But Looking forward to that too. But I think this diet, this diet gives me a lot of time. This diet I'm on gives me a lot of time. At you hinted at Heinlein too, or are you just teasing me? Yeah, I'm just teasing you. God damn it! God, damn maybe someday. He's a big project, dude. Mark Twain's yeah. a bigger project, but you, you can just you can excuse yourself with the uh, Library of America only. Mark Twain, right? They don't have everything by him, do they? They have like seven volumes. That's a lot, but n- not probably, probably not every little piece of writing, but every novel for sure. There's a lot of high every every book I think uh, is in there. But there might be some. There's two volumes of the of the shorter pieces. I think you'll take it to. You got to take it in doses. Timeline's not meant to be taken in back to back. Timeline. It's too. Uh, would be definitely be fun. Oh, I would do that very as interesting. A, a Robert A. Heinlein book club. Yeah. The way I did the Philip Dick and Love Just do it slow. And I would. And I would do it with with a Hugo in mind. <laughs> I've owed one for that. The Philip Dick he threw. <laughs> Hey, did you read my, I hope you did and, or maybe you didn't and that's why you haven't commented because, or you did and you, you think it's not worthy, in which case, fuck you. My, um, my Tom Godwin cold equations, uh, as told as a Star Trek episode. Uh, oh yeah. With, uh, uh, Ferengi, um, it's actually what I did was I took the, um, the plot of Mud's women. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a Bajoran slave girl, um, with no name, and uh, <laughs> it could be a joke that they tell at Quark's bar, right? Or some other, you know. I guess they wouldn't do that on a Federation ship, right? They wouldn't tell uh, race jokes. <laughs> Frankie is on is on a on a cold equation ship. This is what happens. Because it is a joke, right? But it mm-hmm. also follows through with the logic. It's pretty awesome, I think. It deserves a Hugo. And a Nebula. Yeah. And uh, a Master Fantasy Award or uh, the Seiyun yeah. Award. All, and it deserves all the awards. I did respond to you because I nominated you for the Atom Award. Which is what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Is that it's a, a real one? Science fiction, oh, it's a okay. new science fiction award. All right, good. The Atom Award. And Does it come with a rocket ship, like Cora has? Yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a carbon atom. The carbon, it's the one, just one carbon, carbon atom. atom. Wow, it's a three-dimensional carbon. Well, I guess all atoms are three-dimensional. <laughs> this one's larger than a real carbon. Atom. Oh, I see. It's a model. So of it'll carbon. fit on a table. All right, all right. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing. I, <laughs> I think, I think I don't want to have a rocket because I have, I have. A couple of awards, and I di- I can't feel like I feel like I shouldn't throw them in the garbage, but I don't want to like think about them ever. I don't I don't like throwing things in the garbage. I guess is what it is. They're like from a long time ago, and they're not good. But yeah, I don't have too many awards. 
you can get them. You just have to play the games, bud. Put your pronouns in your bio. <laughs> Say the puppies I, are I bad. Think, <laughs> I think the popular fan casts, they, they tend to sound like they have a laugh track. So it's good you're laughing. That's yeah. why I'm surprised you haven't got more nominations. I, there is a lot of laughing on this podcast. There's no laughing I, on mine. Except sometimes I Well, you're by like yourself. psychopath laughing at myself. Yeah, you're by yourself. That's different. But that's the other thing. I need, like, more guests. I need, well, or I need a partner. If you want, if you want a, uh, a Hugo, you have a couple strikes against you. One is you're too pale. Another is you're male. But you do have, you know, content. But is content important? Like, really, I, I'm looking at the lists and I'm not impressed, right? Because I, I listen to uh, a Hugo winning podcast and it is consistently poorly researched. There's a lot of poorly researched podcasts. And I, I when I'm listening to one, I, I wanna, I wanna learn something. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. It's not just entertainment. It's not just like entertainment for me. I don't know. Or if it is, it's a that's my kind of entertainment being. Well, I think it is entertainment for. I clearly people like it, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, see. Is there anything? uh, Oh, it's back to Ori hit. Yeah, talked Um, about Ori Ori hit um, nudist camp. What what do you think about this idea of? uh, They're not called nudist colonies anymore. They're called nudist camps. Did nudist colonies get a bad name? Well, well, a colony makes it sound like they're really a counterculture, right? They're like right. a separate entity, almost like a separate state. You know, that's like, like the colony is a bad term for it because it really is a camp. It's you go for a week and do that. And it, it, it's like going out to camp. So that is a better term for it. Or the summer, more importantly, right? Like, yeah. Because a nudist colony in the winter is probably pretty pretty non-nudist but uh well, that's isn't that well, that's why they like the location too right it's good weather it's in new, it's, set in new jersey yeah but the weather's nice apparently mm-hmm. in the summer it's got a nice setting it's hidden away right so you're not gonna get bothered by the by the locals so the the geography of it matters mm-hmm. but I, I, I really, but yeah, obviously it's not going to happen on the winter. So it's, I was thinking yeah, about the, in Florida. I want it in Florida. I want the news camp. In Florida. Ooh, it sounds, sounds dangerous. I mean, I guess if it's on the beach, it's okay. But, uh, I, 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 th- I think it was kind of like educational because thinking about like, what do they do? Right. They don't just stand around eating hot dogs nude. Right. They, there, there is that. But there's also the croquet, <laughs> the swimming, and not in the snapping turtle pond. But uh, it is it is more like a uh, what do you do for your two week summer vacation thing? Is yeah. let's go to the nudist camp. Uh, you meet a, a bunch of like minded people who are body positive, right? And they're not hung up in the same way. Um. What's funny is that this co- this book could be written. Uh, I guess it wouldn't sell, <laughs> but it could be written just as n- a non-sex book because the sex stuff in it 
is some of it's related. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's designed to allow people to hook up. Um, but they're also pushing against that, right? By saying have only couples come together. Um, you don't take singles. And then mm-hmm. we've got the, the subplot of we're going to blackmail these people, but it's not really blackmail. It might be just a way to get them to keep coming to the camp. Um, it, it is kind of, well, I think you're right that it, it could be, I actually not sure this is much of a sex book. It's not a very it's, good sex book. If it, it's a sex if, book, cause it's trying to, cause Ori hit here is always def- seems to care enough to defend himself from that accusation and the way he writes the book. So he's got that subplot with the, the maid, mm-hmm. the servant girl and her boyfriend. And that's Sam. a very chaste, proper, right. That's meant to be the good relationship, right? That's mm-hmm. where they're supposed to behave, and they're warned about that, right? So they got the fifty moralities in that, and she's the kind of person who is, you know, keeps that top button buttoned up, right? Yep. And there is that. that there is the thing with the, you know, isn't there, is that the is this? Am I mixing up two books or something? Is it, there's something with like giving like she gets pregnant or something, right? Yeah, she's pregnant. Yeah, yep. she does. Yeah, so. That's almost like a morality tale mm-hmm. fit into there. And then uh, Della, you know, yeah, she has this new boyfriend and they have sex. But it's like after she breaks up with her husband, her, her husband's the bad one who cheats on her. Mm-hmm. So she's not really ethically suspect in any, in any way. She's not, you know. We're titillated, but this she is behaves. very yeah, little we're sex. titillated. Like she shows off her, her body to yeah. herself. Yeah. And then she, where she becomes she the, talks about she, putting she, her bra on and feel, and then she does go to the nudist camp, but it's like only because you you have to fit in with the crowd, right? <laughs> it's not that she really wants to be a nudist, really. She's I said there was no it. penetration in this book, but that's technically not true. She gets shot in the leg. <laughs> that's about uh, it. Right near the end, um, she <laughs> you have, shoots but then herself you also in the have leg. The whole lecture with where nudism is defended as mm-hmm. something that's not about sex and, and it's about health. I'm half buying it. It's, but yeah, but I'm, I don't think this is really a, if it, if it, it, it I think on the cover, it's a sex book. It's being marketed as a sex book, but mm-hmm. it's not. Yeah. I guess you could say it's not a good sex book, but it's, I don't want to say this is a bad book either. Uh, how, how, compared compared to the amount of it's sex, it's kind of a crime novel. I think it's a crime it is a crime novel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It doesn't start off that way. We don't think about it that way. But I have but to say, is. I was genuinely surprised the way it goes. Like, I agree. The camera guy, I knew he was blackmailing people. With I thought. I, I think we're supposed to be suspicious of him. But I wasn't suspicious of. I thought they were going to make pornography. Is what it was. Is what I thought. Yeah, which I wasn't is suspicious not really of what they do. Although I of guess the they guy, you know, the guy who comes in and says, "Uh, you know, let's make this in the news camp." He seemed legit to me until he wasn't. So I was surprised by him. It's yeah. Well, I didn't think he was the villain. I, I thought the yeah. husband has to be the villain. Well, we were surprised. He did trick me. Yeah, and, uh, and the getting back together at the end. Do you blame her for getting back together with him? Do you think that she made a mistake? Well, it, it, it kind of wraps up the plot nicely. It wraps up the plot nicely, but if this was your With friend. With real estate and everything. And she just calls you from the car. She says, well, that's why I'm I getting think back together readers with today Jim. are going to be 
triggered. Like definitely Stephen King would not like that. He would never have. I don't think know, he could write this him. book. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of abusive. No, I just because he has so many abusive. Well, husbands. he has drunk people. He has uh, but it's always, abusive people. The woman has to escape almost always. Yeah. Or it's a disaster. He's got too many hangups for this book. Right? Yeah. Like he, yeah. like if, if you, if you said, Mr. King, you're a young writer, you need to write me a sex book. Uh, here's the title, Nudist Camp, write it for me. <laughs> I think we'd be, Maybe uh, Bachman could try. I don't know I mean, how. Bachman could do it. Even Bachman couldn't do it. His traumas are the wrong kind of traumas for this. I, uh, I come out of this thinking Ori Hit would be like a very, uh, Nice person. <laughs> He's very sympathetic. And uh, honestly, as an immigrant story, it's quite interesting too. Like thinking oh, yeah. about that. Uh, I, I was thinking a lot about how in brother and sister, the brother had almost gotten tricked into marrying, uh, or maybe he did marry a uh, German. Yeah. He whore. did marry her. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was all a scam to get him to take her to, America. Well, Della's got that kind of cloud over her where right. she was this poor Icelandic uh, waif, married the American. Yeah. And then it's kind of like people see her as a gold digger, someone who's. There's a lot. There's someone. a lot about the community, even though we never actually go yeah. out into the community. His reputation in the community matters, uh, even though we never really leave the farm, right? Or it's not even a farm. The, uh, yeah, well, the there's property. that one scene at the hotel, right? With, uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Where you do get the pro- pornographic film, right? Right. But it's destroyed by, that's the husband destroys it, right? Mm-hmm. There's, so, uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's, I think you, you go to town a few times. Like, doesn't she have to go to the lawyer or the bank or something? Possibly. Yeah, um, she goes to the bank. There's the to, cop shows up, but that's on her property, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, visits from the house but it is very uh i guess it's brief it's a brief book it's three three and a half hours something like that right four hours maybe yeah um but uh it feels like like i actually learned a lot about the 1950s <laughs> like um up and it, and it's not like i was ignorant of of it but i just never thought about nudist camps before <laughs> <laughs> other than you know what i was saying with uh experiencing that on the periphery and and thinking about um why uh, hawkeye likes nudist magazines mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it never occurred to me to think that the reason he liked nudist magazines is because he might be into the nudist philosophy as opposed to like just wanting to see naked people right or naked women, I guess. Because that's something most women and men <laughs> are interested in, is seeing naked people, right? But that's not the same as nudism. Uh, what the, yeah, already hits very clear about that. Well, no, I like, I, I think it's a legit claim as well, because, uh, the idea of you're, you are born nude and then we decide to put on clothes and then you look at some cultures where they are practically naked. You know, um, my, myself, I really like shorts and short mm-hmm. sleeves. I like to not be, you know, overclad. Um, part of it is I think about, uh, you know, getting vitamin D <laughs> because if I'm indoors a lot and then I don't 
go outdoors a lot, I need to get more vitamin D. It's uh, process it through your skin. Um, having a tan um, probably makes you feel mentally better. Um, I have not done the experiments, but I, I know that, you know, some people get seasonal affective disorder and I know people who do, and it's caused by not enough sun. And if we're outdoors less than we naturally would be given our species, uh, previous history, we need to have more. Yeah. I'm, I'm sold on that idea. I think it's legit. We probably get too little sun. Yeah. So, uh, and w- w- there's this funny, um, phenomenon that happened in American magazines, uh, which was, you know, you're not allowed to show boobs unless they're natives from whatever. And it's not just, not yeah. just, uh, American, they're also British magazines. So you could go to some culture where people are unclad or mostly unclad. Um, and you would be able to take photographs of those nude women and that'd be fine to put in your magazine, but you never see a British woman or Irish woman or whatever. Except then there was those newspapers, like in the U- in the UK, there's like a page three girl phenomenon, where it would just be, here's the news for the day, <laughs> weather, and then nude lady and her name and what city she lives in, right? So how do we explain this phenomenon where it's just fine? And like the people, people thought of it as a racy thing, but what makes it really racy is the sort of prudery, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's creepy to see a creeper <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's creepy to see uh scary old bodies. They're floppy and, you know, hemorrhaging or <laughs> I guess not hemorrhaging. Uh, um, what's that? thing where you your your gut comes out of your your groin what's that problem they always advertise it in the back of magazines um hernia herniated oh yeah herniated bodies not great to look at right but it's funny because this is a this is a book all about bodies uh but mostly what we get as readers is their experience through their heads right and, you know, her even talking about the injury to her leg, um, it, it's a, it's a body experience and get, getting pregnant and thinking about that. And it is very interesting to think about, like, why is she saying these things about this baby and how to take care of it? You don't need to get an abortion. Uh, because, uh, we, we, I think we talked a little bit about, abortion in brother and sister but in most of the sleaze books that i think i've read which is not that many um pornography uh not pornography sex isn't necessarily lead to uh the worries about um pregnancy whereas in here i think it's fairly clear that it does and also yeah she's begging for a baby from her husband and he won't give it to her yeah, and that's why she's so terrified that he's the one who got the maid girl pregnant, right? Right. Giving to her something that she wanted. Um, yeah, I think the, I got to read more of these these kind of smut books from this period. Sleazecore books. Sleaze Use the proper books. term, sir. Because um, I do, th- I'm getting the idea. 
that there's more to them than just sex. Like that idea, like there's all these moral clouds and brother and sister, obviously, mm-hmm. and they're here too. They're all over the place. And I don't know if that's just the time where they have to, it's kind of some self-censorship. So I don't think there was. It's kind of uh, hard to imagine, right? The, 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 there by this point, the, the, well, I guess that it's not till the mid sixties that. They'd start putting doctor that, labels on and stuff. That like you that. start getting like, is it the naked lunch thing? I think that's the Could Supreme be. Court case. Could be where where they finally say the government, at least the federal government, can't censor books or can't ban the publication of books on these kind of moral reasons. So that might be part of what's. I guess they know they're overall in, this, in worried. They're a little bit worried because they don't want to lose their business. <clears throat> It's uh, like the comics, you know, what happened to comics, neutered comics in a very large way, right? It became a... But it it leads to interesting conversations, though. It does. <coughs> Excuse me. If it's... I mean, if they just wanted to write a sex book, you know, that's not what we have here. It, you know, they could do that, presumably, but that's not what they do. And there seems to be conversations about morality and pregnancy and what about defending it to your wife though right you you come home yeah. with this nudist book right and, you, so you and she said what are you buying how dare you this is about sex and he says like, well no, i'm just a... trying to understand the neighbors my dear yeah it's because uh, like that's no, how like, a lot like, of them are treated right, later on right lesbianism is a study a study mm-hmm. of women who the strange women who do strange things right how, how do we so understand thinking, like, these people? Our first nudity we get in the book is Dello yeah. observing her own body. And she's, in the shower. She's, yeah. she's super hot, right? She is. So, But then we get, when we actually the nudist camp, we get all these kind of old people bodies, and mm-hmm. fat bodies, and the non-pleasant ones. So he's, you buy this book, you're like, oh, there's going to be all these naked Hot chicks, ladies. Be lots of sex. Yeah. But that's not what you get at the nudist camp. Nope. The, the nudist camp stuff itself is pretty disappointing. If you're reading this book just to be titillated. So it's like another kind of bait and switch. That's, that's what fascinates mm-hmm. about, about mm-hmm. these. Same thing with brother and sister. Mm-hmm. It's like, you want an incest book, you pick that up for the incest, and you don't get that much. Nope. Instead you get... And, and you know, it ends a horribly. A pretty horrible... Yeah. A, a horrible ending. Suicide and insanity. <laughs> <laughs> and real estate. Yep. You know, shenanigans. Calculations, and, yeah. And you get that here too. It is it, it is remarkably similar for, I mean, I guess they're both Americans and both this and both that, but there's a lot of plot similarities too, uh, going on in the background. The the mm-hmm. the, the shame is different. Yeah. Um, and this is not a book of shame, which is interesting. Whereas I think the other one starts off as a shame book and continues that way, or maybe it doesn't start off that way, but it becomes about that well it's only in the case of the maid that that girl she's ashamed of her pregnancy yeah yes but she's talked out of it yeah um and uh i have some sympathy for that it's also interesting to go from being she's a poor girl right and uh, her talking about um what essentially sounds like she was raped in iceland um, yeah, people sticking hands up her clothes, and um, so for a traumatized person, she's pretty strong. And eventually, she's like, 
she's hitting back. Which probably is not why. I don't know. It's not. I guess it works out in the end. It's pretty fucking terrible. Um, that's that. I I think Paul would not like how this book ends because she gets back together with him. But it sort of also speaks to what are her options, right? Yeah. She's. Uh, I mean, there's at this point highly no educated, up, right? If she wants to keep the, the the estate, I think this is the only way, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it in it in it, it's what we think marriage is so popular for is real estate. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Determining who gets what uh, land, and I guess that's what we get here. But they, she starts well, that's off big as in a, China. Like, if you want to get yeah. married, you. You better have a house. She starts off as uh, essentially dirt poor, except I don't think they have dirt in Iceland. They mostly have rocks. She's rock poor. She uh, marries a not wealthy, but um, you know, solidly middle class guy who then thinks that he's going to inherit wealth, and he spends all the money. Yeah, he kind of squanders it. Yeah. Um, he's cheating on her all the time. So yeah, it's not like she has great prospects. It ends on a happy note, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I don't see their future together being solid unless, you know, he gives her a baby and he becomes a doting father. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and even then it might not be so great, but it, it ends on a, ha- in a happy place. Or well, a we can be place. good Christians and believe in redemption. Yeah. Yeah. There's that too. But um, it's very interesting cultural artifact, I think. And just thinking about, uh, I never thought about Icelandic immigrants before, uh, to the United States. It's not like, what, what literally are her skills, right? She could translate from Icelandic to English, right? Except everybody in Iceland speaks English. So no skills. Mm-hmm. Her, her entire, in fact, the, the word she uses, she one of the things she says to praise her husband is he no he's not good for this he's not good for that but he knew how to build a good house and a good house has full length mirrors everywhere so a woman can look at her assets and it's like more true than uh, i guess we we thought it was just titillation but maybe not well it's interesting the way you put it cuz that's how Ed sort of seduces her is by saying like, Oh, we have a, you can like run a little business and you can help me run this nudist camp. And, mm-hmm. and that's something she can do with her life. And, right? and she's all for it. Right. And then when Ed, you know, reveals himself as the bad guy, he takes that away from her saying like, Oh, you really were kind of useless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what can she get from Ricky? I mean, at the end, she says, well, we can adopt that baby. They're, they're, they're on a team, I guess. Yeah. Right? That, the, I guess they're, they're partners in a certain sense. But that's what mm-hmm. she wanted from the other guy, too. And he betrayed her. They both, all the men betrayed her. Yeah. I guess the cop didn't betray her. <laughs> but, but Ricky came around. Ricky saved the day. Yeah. But in Slee's Camp Part 2... <laughs> or not Sleaze Camp, uh, Nudist Camp Part Nudist 2. Nudist Camp Part 2, where Ricky and Della run the camp. Yeah. Run a good moral camp, no no pictures. I don't know. Maybe a time traveler shows up and uh, one of the lawyers. 
has long lectures with him about what the future is going to be like. I actually, th- I did think about this as a science fiction book. Imagine mm-hmm. this was set in the 1850s and not the 1950s. Um, you could still do the foot, the photography stuff, right? It'd yeah. just be way more expensive. Um, and maybe it was happening in the, in, in the 1850s. But if it was the 1750s, uh, the tech doesn't allow, like, you got a guy, you know, like behind a curtain sketching very quickly what people's yeah. body, it doesn't work, right? Well, I don't know if it would work in the 1850s either, because I think in those days, it's just too expensive. To, you had to sit, you, well, you yeah, had to sit for, good point. for, for like 20 minutes. Yeah, that's right. The exposures. Yeah. yeah. That's why those, those Civil War photos are always of dead people. Right. Not of actual battle, because you couldn't that right and to have still images mm-hmm. so uh, it is a tech bathers you could get some bathers it is a tech book right mm-hmm. and it also is it's pre uh birth control uh, the pill yeah um not pre birth control but pre the pill which is also a, a tech thing so mm-hmm. it's almost like um w- what makes this non-mimetic fiction for me which is you know it's like a slur um is that it somehow is like a piece of science uh we can explore uh, it's a data point in science so we can like say look look at look what's actually happening what the people are worried about the iceland plot doesn't make any sense unless it's set after world war 2 right you don't have a world war 1 iceland plot uh, after world war 1 iceland plot you have a after world war 2 iceland plot and does he, was his wife from Iceland? I don't know. Um, but he obviously, you know, read, uh, read enough about it to do a little thinking about it for this book. Probably, maybe he's been to a nudist camp. We don't know much about Oriet, I guess, but we want to know because he seems to be thoughtful in a very disposable book. What, what does it say on this one? He wrote it for, I guess it's on the Wikipedia entry now too. Um, yeah, he wrote a book every two weeks at the prime of his career. Yeah, I saw that. So, uh, writing this in two weeks, you can see how he did it. He did it pretty fast. He was sort of naturally good at it. But he didn't just pile on six six uh, sex scenes. Like, um, uh, I was I was t- I was explaining to Scott. Um, we were talking about a uh, uh, J.K. Rowling tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're uh, we're both like yeah we we agree with her, and I said you're gonna have to put turf in your Twitter bio now. And he says what's a turf? <laughs> I had somebody I think Paul explained to me what a turf was, and I said oh it's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Or, um, and he says okay, <laughs> I don't think he put it in his bio. I'm not putting it in my bio, uh, just because it's not that interesting. But um, when I read. Uh, J.K. Rowling, I think I can see why people like her, but she's not that great at writing. <laughs> like, I, I appreciate Agreed, yeah. why she is appreciated, at least with the Harry Potter books. But um, to me, they're like set pieces where there's this scene and it's almost very, it's very movie-like where they have the big, this big battle and then they have this big battle, and then there's this cute scene, and there's that cute scene, 
And then you do enough of them, that's a book. And then there's a plot in the background, but the plot is sort of less important to the, to the experience than the ride. Whereas with this, he is careful to give us some titillation, uh, throughout the book. Although it's, you know, heavily weighted at the front, um, and way less weighted at the back. The plot is actually there just to fill the, the space, but he, he is attentive to it in a way that J.K. Rowling is not attentive, uh, to Harry Potter's experience. And that's my experience of reading her one book. <laughs> you know, yeah. First Harry I Potter. I haven't read book. any of her stuff. It's, it's, you can see why kids like it, right? Cause, uh, yeah, if you've seen the movie, the first book is pretty much on screen. There's a lot of scene. It, it, they're pretty, I, I don't remember there being many. Well, that was my impression reading the first book is like. Oh, you did read the first book. I, okay. I read the first one. Yeah, me too. And it, and it read like a movie. Yes. Like different scenes of a movie. Cause there's almost, there wasn't that much internal getting to know the character. No, just this, description this and they're fine description. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas this is the opposite of that. This is like an intellectual experience along with some titillation that is so tame. It's like, I didn't get hard at all, Evan. <laughs> yeah. I got to read some more of these though to think if that's like a common theme. And, I'm, and I'm very curious. Approach of it. I'm very, very curious because if it, I, I, only other ones I've read, I think are Lawrence Block and Donald Westlake ones. And they're different you know, you enough ne- writers that I, I think I don't, I can't distinguish them doing that in their regular books. I, although Donald Westlake was not heavy on the sex in any of his books by himself. Yeah. And to be fair, that brother and sister book was not very heavy on the sex either. So anyways, I go to, I go to Netflix every day, right? Okay. Usually to watch something or most days. And there's, if you look at like the covers, the covers on the, on Netflix. Posters right? or whatever they are, yeah. Like whatever you get the, what you click card, on. Card, right? probably cards. Yeah, this card. Like here, I'm looking at it right now, the reader, which is, isn't that about like a Nazi woman or something? I don't know. It is. It's something, some illiterate woman who worked in. Oh, Nazi yeah, yeah. That was a book though, I think, right? But, the cover, the, the, the card has, uh-huh. is that Kate Winslet and yes. the boy both in bed together right. and reading and they're like in their pajamas. Right. And I'm saying this strategy is still there. I like to complain how there's not enough sex in, um, <laughs> in movies these days. But mm. if you look at these, these cards is what they were using. A yeah, lot of these cards. try to titillate us with like, you're going to want to get a little bit of sex if you watch this. And, yeah, I, the book's the same way. I, I read part of that book at least. If yeah. you, if that's true, here elite two two naked guys. Uh, I have not no idea what the show's about, but yeah, uh, I, I think it's a movie. If it's called The movie. Reader, two thousand uh, two thousand eight. Yeah, The Reader is. But yeah. here's a TV show, five seasons. Uh huh. Elite. It's got oh. two naked guys on the cover. Okay. On the card. And there's a lot on Netflix. Well, so. there's, I think there's a lot of prudery in the States. And so like, there's yeah. no, there's no sex. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't spend that much time on Netflix. So may, I might be wrong yeah. there. I don't think there's any explicit sex on Netflix. I think it's pretty locked down. Yeah. In terms they, of, they try to get you to click thinking there's going to be. Sex. Oh yeah. That's what I'm saying. Well, but, but there's that. Just prudery. like they try to get you by this book. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, okay, but uh, let's let's think about what's on the newsstands beside beside the the explicit sleazecore books. I'm having trouble f- figuring it out other than science fiction, right? Which also has mm-hmm. nudes on the covers, or you know, weird well, tales. Probably westerns. Westerns, yeah, which almost doesn't have any nudes, right? Everybody's dressed. And then the, I guess the, the romance books, which is like, I mean, these are marketed towards men, and romance novels are marketed to women. But yeah, I don't even remember what they would look like covers. back then. But uh, the the sleaze covers are nice to look at. <laughs> they are, yeah, they are. They're actually, uh, honestly, there's more uh, titillation on the covers and in the descriptions of the books than there is inside generally i would say because yeah. there's a little bit you know you get an intimate scene but it's not very intimate uh which you know makes sense you know people there was like um back in the day there's hustler and i don't think playboy had it but i think hustler had like sex letters where yeah. you would like write up a basically a little uh, hey, a teacher and me in the cloakroom. Yeah, Whatever. penthouse forum. Yeah, oh, penthouse. Okay, yeah. I don't. Maybe Hustler was the one without the letters, or if they were, they were all about uh, you know, free speech. <laughs> in Hustler, I think Hustler got yeah featured letters, speech. articles on health, medic, medicine, psychology, and social relations. Well, that's the that's one of the really cool things about reading a magazine with a naked woman on the cover, is. Or, you know, as naked as they'll, newsstands will allow, is you would get, it'd be like the HBO of magazines. It, you would get sort of the uncensored or less censored things that people are actually interested in. And you would get, mm-hmm. so like when, I, I guess there's a famous incident where, um, Carter got interviewed in Playboy and he said he had lust in his heart and that was a big scandal. Um, but you want to actually know what the politician actually thinks rather than the lie that they, they do all day. And the thing mm-hmm. is, is like, um, I've heard a few situations. Uh, I guess it was somebody talking about Obama on, on the last day, his exit interview. Ah, I think that's what it was. It was, uh, on Joe Rogan, he had the, uh, founder of Rolling Stone on. And it's w- one of the reasons I really like listening to Joe Rogan too, is because it's, it's way less censored than everything else. Uh, that's, you know, mainstream with fame, famous, uh, people being interviewed. Um, so this very shit lib, uh, former hippie. I uh, was talking about how he does his interviews and it's a fucking terrible interviewer. It sounds like anyways, he, he was talking about interviewing Obama on his last day about, uh, you know, his exit and they had just done, I guess it was his last interview before, before he leaves the presidency. And there, there, he was really upset and worried because, uh, what would Obama say now that Trump had won? Uh, because they had all expected Hillary to win. And he was talking about how, how, uh, Obama was saying, I'm not really interested in lying anymore. <laughs> and this is like not in the interview. It's just like, uh, you know, the pre-interview interview, like, well, it'll be okay if I ask you these sets of 
questions. What are you thinking about this? How you feel about that? Just to give us, you know, soft core interview because it has to be done as a formality. And, uh, he gave, you know, the shitty answer and then he gave the, the truthful answer is I just don't need to lie all the time anymore. And that's why I wanted to read about Carter having lust in his heart because he's more being more honest. Yeah. And so when we do see a weird, you know, sleazecore book, it's somehow more honest. Uh, honestly, I don't think I'm ever going to yeah. be in the situation where I need to worry about incest more than I have in my uh, experience reading, uh, <laughs> reading um, brother and sister. Uh, but now I know a lot more about nudism, I feel, and maybe Iceland, than I did before reading this book. And so what other situations can we get insight into looking at these artifacts from the 50s? I think it will be very Better revealing. Be hit. Apparently. I, I think he's a good pro stylist, too. He's not amazing, yeah. but uh, clean, uh, easy to follow, um, and interesting. He's got an interesting, uh, uh, and it, it's un, unaffected, like with, um, I don't feel like he's, he's trying to hide anything from me. Even though he has to do this thing where he reminds us of her body every, every, you know, few pages. So I, I liked it. I'm experiencing, uh, interest in these books. Yep. I, I, I don't think, I, I don't, don't think, time I don't think I need read like more of them, 50, 50 more of them at this point. Um, because I, I think if I get a big enough sample, I, I read a romance novel when I was younger and I, I figured I don't need any more of this because, uh, the other ones I would read the backs of, you know, I would find some books or be given some books and I'd try and sell them. I'd read them to try and, you know, see if there's anything of value here for me. And I didn't find that they had a lot of value. They did. They didn't have a tiny little bit of sex generally, but it was as tame as this or tamer. Uh, the sort of eighties, nineties, uh, very slim romance volumes. So good book. Thank you. No problem. Uh, shall we, have a look at the schedule and see what's next. Sure. All right. Let's have a look here. All right. I'm, I'm, I think I'm two episodes ahead on editing. Oh, we got Blaze. Oh, when's that? Uh, oh. I'm on down. I'm down. Oh, yeah, the there. Okay. The next three weeks. Yep. I've seen a lot of people reading on Night in Lonesome October, um, on Twitter for some reason. That's a big episode. A lot of guests. Yeah. People, people like it. Although, we'll see. Maybe Paul will still be mad at me. I think he's becoming less mad as time goes by, but it's hard to say. It's, uh, the reason I think that is because, um, let's see, there was a famous author who liked one of my tweets and then Paul responded to it. <laughs> so oh. I think, I think he's, um, he, he doesn't think of me as the star. What is he? He should be thinking of me as the star. He's, oh, Harry Turtle Dove. So. I'm Innocence the, Abroad. 
Let me think. One, two, three, four. Um, I could start out my Mark Twain series with Innocence Abroad. That'd be great. I could start reading that one. Excellent. Um, then you'll have something to say for one. sure. I already have some things to say about Innocence Abroad. I haven't read it yet, so I have nothing to say yet other than I want to read it. Uh, dude, it, it, it you need to, to check why I why I don't like why I'm not a fan of tourism or the like. Yeah, on well, travel I'm, in sure general. I think sense. Mark Twain kind of already knew 150 years ago why travel sucks. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the uh, Michael Crichton books, he's really good. These early Michael Crichton books, yeah, really solid. Um, Grave Descent, I'm looking forward to that. But what was the last one? Easy Go. That was super good. Um, and super consumable, too. Like, you, you start reading it, and it's like, I could read this all, I could just finish this today. That's, that's a good book. And like he did, he either did so much research, you can't tell that it wasn't a personal experience or uh, it was personal experience. And he just wrote down his experiences, uh, you know, combined with a little <laughs> fake stuff, but very solid writer, very impressed. And, you know, I don't get the sense that most of the writers writing today are, and maybe that was never true, but um, most of the people, you know, who are writing science fiction books, quote unquote, science fiction books today, I think that they're not natural writers like this. I think they're just like, they want to be writers and because they like reading. But, you know, Stephen King's natural writer, right? Yeah, I don't read enough new stuff to know. And I mean, it's like Neil Gaiman, Ted Chiang, Stephen King, not much else. Uh, I read that uh, Andy Weir book, the first first one he did. It was good. Oh, we did the troop. We did that troop book, right? Which is, I think, um, probably along the lines of I like Stephen King. I'd like to be Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the guy is completely mm-hmm. untalented, though. Um, but I don't, I, if you, if you were grading that as a, on the Stephen King tier list, that would be near the bottom, right? Yeah. Right. The book I compared it to is one of the more bottom. Well, in but it would, if you, if, if it had Stephen King's pressure. name on the cover, you would definitely grade it near the bottom. Yeah, I think so. And like just body horror. It's like, yeah, even Stephen just King's body that's horror. a low level. That's the lowest level, right? Yeah. Yeah. gross out which is you know not good so i don't i want to read fewer of those i want to read more of the uh I, and i make exceptions for science fiction because idea based stuff is really cool um so yeah cosmic computer junkyard planet is one book that's i don't it's more h beam piper i don't know much about it um grave descent don't know anything other than it's a early michael Crichton book um Added Heads of Cerberus, which is another Francis Stevens novel, and uh, I think that's I think that's it. Other than Blaze, uh, doing the Black Stranger next week, but again, everybody wants to do Howard. So, so these are that's a three four hour book, I think. Let three, me see. three and a half hours. So he wrote a bunch of books before Anonymous Strain. What? what I'm thinking of who? 
Crichton. Crichton. I'm looking at the Crichton website. Yeah, he wrote Crichton seven uh, as John Lang. Yeah. And the, every one oh, I've read has been good. This movies are hit and miss, though. I'm really enjoying his stuff. Some of them are really short. John Lang. No. Uh, Michael Crichton. There we go. The Chicago Tribune calls it very, fairly thrilling at times. Which one is that? Brave Descent. Oh. I, I think that Our on case a Crime republished it, though. Yeah, there, they did all seven of the... Oh. Of the, um, the last one is the only one without a original cover. The one we just did, Easy Go. That was a reuse of a, uh, of an, a failed, uh, hard case crime spinoff series called, um, don't remember, but it was with a character, uh, oh, Gabriel something, Gabriel Hunt, Hunt for Adventure was the series. So what they did was, uh, Charles Ardai, he says, I'm going to make a character like the spider or the shadow or, you know, Indiana Jones. Um, and it'll be a companion series to hard case crime adventure book series. Right. And they did like six or so of them. And, uh, I read one of them and it was pretty good. It was fun, but it was churn out a series character. So it was more like a ride than a really good book should be. And, uh, that didn't last very long. So they, uh, but one of them was set in Egypt. So they just recycled the cover. So that was kind of disappointing, but everything else about it was like awesome. It's like, yes, I want to read more of this. Were you in on the binary one we did? No, that was the first one we did. Um, I was on any of the Michael Crichton ones. You want to get down with Michael Crichton, my friend. He's, I haven't read all his later stuff. I've read a few of his middle stuff, like, uh, the, uh, Eaters of the Dead. He's real playful and he, he's a really, he is one of these natural writers, like just amazingly good at transforming thought into words into a novel. So. You should sign up for Grave Descent, even though there's a lot of people Maybe. on it. Uh, I'll, I'll try and sell you uh, right after Innocence Abroad, I guess, or Blaze. Yeah, maybe. After Blaze. Mm-hmm. Me thinking. So I'll be next time for Blaze. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you very much. The other two seem kind of, seem kind of crowded. So yeah, I don't they're know if it's worth pretty crowded. Staying up late. No. But we'll see. I'm looking forward to All that, right. Michael. Um, or the Mark Twain should be good. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. It's big. I think it's a it's, little long. Yeah, twenty twenty four hours, something like that. So, but you get to spend twenty hours with Mark Twain. That does not sound like a, a hardship, in my view. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.
There we go. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Good. Uh, we don't have Cora. She's uh, got some family business. I told her it's fine as long as she does it in the nude. Uh, so no one else? Uh, it might not be. I, I'm... I saw Alex pulp covers was um, listed without a question mark. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Connor's not joining us, so we might have Alex, but um, I've texted him uh, via my phone Skype, but I don't see him online. So it's probably just us, which means we can um, talk about how much Paul hates me <laughs> for a long oh. time. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit annoyed, it seems. Oh, my I want to talk to him because I'm, I'm like I'm dieting too. I'm, um, you know. Yeah, but you're, when I got um, back from China, I lost ten kilograms really easily. But mm. Next ten, I'm, I'm trying to get down to like closer to eighty-two or eighty. So when you go to the nudist camp, you'll look great. Yeah, I just want to get some vanity. Yeah, um, when, uh, when uh, people are. Um, putting out i mean i've been working out a lot so it's like but i still got that a little bit too much in the way of showing that off a little bit so (laughs) um but i it's i stopped drinking and i Mm. i'm pretty strict on no carbs and yeah and you're you're, not eating after two and i don't know like you're already pre-disciplined though right with being a vegetarian right yeah i think it's you know i i didn't but he's so sensitive. I, I didn't want to like give him any advice. He'd take it wrong. I yeah, no, he he takes he takes criticism and stabs himself. Wouldn't even been criticism, but yeah, I mean, I think he assumes everything I say is criticism. I guess, but yeah, there's just some sensitivity there. I do think, you know, it's like just don't do something if you, if you want to stop. Just stop or, or, or i don't know it's not that hard I, well i think a lot of it is self-talk like he he puts it yeah. on there so that it's like a rule for him so that he he it's like you know just oh yeah. I, yeah i shouldn't be doing that sort of thing yeah that's that's the way to do it i suppose i just mean it makes sense how it works right but i mean this is how william james talks about it it's like you can you may not totally have free will but you can establish habits for yourself that right? was in varieties of uh dieting experiences <laughs> no i think it's in, in some of the psychological theory it's like or no it's in is maybe it's in um i forget where i forget where it is yes it might partially be in varieties i mean that the idea there is you discipline your mind to do certain things maybe in certain ways and then mm. it becomes like essentially a belief there's there's a truth in that right like the buddhist who can meditate and reach certain states of consciousness yeah. And things that that may not be objective scientific truth, but it's there's a reality to that. And I, you know, I'm not. I have to reread that stuff. It's been a while. But I'm understanding. At least he's American, right? William James. Yeah, my, yeah. I'll, I'll get to him someday, maybe. Yeah. But I, I think his it essentially comes down to habit. I think is a lot of what. Yeah, it's kind of like a fake it till you make it. I guess that's one thing that a gets right. I suppose mm-hmm. is that you you just behave a certain way until it becomes part of 
Who but there's also are. that anonymous part that uh yeah that's is the, part the opposite oh well i guess it's not if, if like on twitter i'm not anonymous it's just i i'm not focused on myself you know yeah. i mean i guess i am i'm just making jokes for me all day um but uh it's not like i'm 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 making myself a brand it's like now nah, this is the website it's no for me what bothers me about AA, I guess is like this this kind of surrender and you got to go to meetings and you got to talk to people and it's like <sighs> Fuck that. I don't, I don't need to. The surrender is supposed to be helpful, but mm. I, am I, I think whenever you surrender power to someone else, um, yeah. even if that's a f- fictional deity, you're actually surrendering it to whoever you think is an authority about that fictional deities thing. So yeah. I think that's very dangerous. You know, like, yeah, it, 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 it can be. I guess it's, it's more, it seems kind of cultish to me. Uh, yeah, it is very cultish. Yeah. But my point is, it's like, I may, but I do, I do accept that there's probably people that do have more, like, genetically or whatever, more tendency towards addictive behavior. And for them, it's just, they need additional support or whatever, or that works for them. So I guess back to the, the original theory, if it works for them, that's great. Yeah. But, but for me, just just white knuckle it <laughs> if you need to. I, yeah, I, I basically have. I mean, I'll, I'll pick up drinking again once I reach my goal weight. <laughs> I just realized that. Well, it's a lot of calories, right? It's yeah, those sixteen beers a week or so, sixteen tall that's, boys. That's, so that's probably more I'm, like twenty. What's what's that's probably more like twenty four. That's the sixteen ounce ones, the pints. I don't know what this ounce like. Yeah, the tall beers and the short beers. Yeah. Okay, so it's like six hundred. The short ones are twelve. Are like a can of soda. Okay, three hundred fifty five milliliters. And the tall ones are like sixteen. So I would drink like sixteen or so a week of the tall ones, which is about that's a lot. It's like a. It's not a ton, but it's a lot. But it's that's that's like three thousand calories right there. If I just take that out. My weight's gonna go down. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I see people buying. I, I might the, guess uh, that Paul's probably overreacting a bit. Like I can never have a soda again. I'm just like, huh? yeah, it's. I don't it's, know if that's true. It's like moderation. It's not like he's diabetic. He's pre-diabetic, right? Yeah. So, but even so, like but again, I don't know what his doctor's telling him. So I don't want to step in. Like, well, pre, you know, but I. It sounded like blood, a, probably blood test. It sounded a bit. A bit of an overreaction. He's, and I just I want to talk about like that we're both sort of dieting, but I, mm. I didn't want to touch any nerves, so I just didn't do it. Well, I think that's actually the the real issue is like you can't really have good conversations on Twitter. It's it's mostly yeah. for jokes and for uh, little mini essays and stuff. But like the back and forth dialogue doesn't work very well because the tone. Uh, you can't really have conversations on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did promise we'd wrestle over a couple of things. D- Elon Musk made a joke that was kind of like the one you were making a minute ago. Uh, or I'm trying to remember what it one, which one. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was, um, he was making fun of somebody. <laughs> oh, they, there was one where he's, um, they, they put him on the kill list in Ukraine and he says, uh, he says, they told me to fuck off or something like that. <laughs> oh, that. It was something to do with the, the, yeah, the Starlink. Wireless internet. Yeah. yeah. It's just, 
Oh, yeah. this is the one. I don't, was... I don't care. Like, like, uh, you know, oligarchs can make jokes. That doesn't mean I'm going to like, I'm not saying forgive them for being oligarchs. No, no, I'm not saying you should forgive them. Uh, this is, this is one of the ones I sent you. Um, some rando says, uh, here's why I think one, a one in six chance of an imminent nuclear war <laughs> and why I appreciate Elon Musk. And then Sam Harris says, seems like you're considering only one branch of the decision tree. What are, what are the risks of giving in to nuclear blackmail? I think one could argue they might be worse. <laughs> Elon uh, Musk says, yeah. Sam, there is such a thing as meditating too much. <laughs> oh, that, well, I actually, I was like, I used to listen to those atheists a lot, like yeah, yeah, Dilla Hunty and mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I was actually rewatching some of Dilla Hunty's or watching some of the new stuff he's been doing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I've been reading so much philosophy. I just find his whole approach, that whole approach, kind of, um, it's just a little bit close-minded. I think I'm, I'm more open to, um, like, like someone would give an argument to Dilla Hunty, for instance, would. And I haven't, I, pay, I don't give any attention to Sam Harris. He's really obnoxious, but you know, someone would give an argument and then Dylan Hunty will say like, make an argument. You're mm-hmm. not making an argument. And it's like, well, I, I, I listened and like, he did make an argument. The person you're talking to did make an argument. You just don't like the terms he's using or the foundational concepts he's built in that argument from. Mm. It doesn't mean he didn't make an argument. And I find that more and more in people I used to respect. So it's... What's his name? Sam Harris got into a big beef with Daniel Dennett, uh, who is also uh, an atheist guy. Yeah, I I prefer Dennett more because I think he's he's more sensitive to religion as a lived experience that people have. Yeah, I... He's the kind of person who could teach, like, a world religion course without being, like... He is a prof of some kind. about it. I think he's yeah. a philosopher. Well, he's a real philosopher, yeah. so... Like, yeah, no, he's... He actually has a contribution that's quite useful. Um, yeah. You know, con- conceptual contribution. Um, so, yeah, some somehow... When, when I saw uh, Sam Harris uh, on TV, you know shilling for iraq war i'm like what the fuck <laughs> it, was a, it mm. was basically it was like a uh it was like yeah the, he he got up well, his like, own like ass too much yeah like hitchens is hitchens I is mean, a really interesting case yeah yeah he i think he's that's a good example of someone who just kind of let this dislike of religion kind of get in the way of reason almost it's yeah. like i don't know I, I should read that book about it. Was it Ben Burgess? He's like a socialist. He wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens, I think, a short one of those. Um, is it Zero Books that pub- they publish all those mm. little left wing left wing books? He re- he wrote some book for that press about Hitchens, and I think that's trying to understand a little bit more. He he was he's a really firmly good from the left. Yeah, he's, he's firmly from the left. Yeah, uh, the, like the socialist left and. Then he, you know, that path took him to like neocon conclusions. Yeah, I, I, I would like to know. Like, but you see that with Harris alive. too. Like, oh, he's fucking, yeah. he's fucking terrible though. Like compared, like yeah. Dennett, yeah, you know, like Dennett's like, dude, um, <laughs> <laughs> just listening to his podcast. It, it's almost like he's he only listens to himself, so he makes these arguments yeah. to himself, and then 
that's what you need someone like that's what a friend is i i was yeah. in a little twitter beef with some uh people are like stepping in this conversation i was having with paul it's like dude i don't know you i can't help you uh, this guy i know i talk to him all the time right um so like if if you that is the job of a friend it says dude you're getting fat mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah like and you're, you know, your nose is all puffing up. Like you should stop drinking. Um, and, and a, f- a friend does that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now the thing is a friend can be wrong too, but, uh, they don't do it because they hate you. They do it or, or, mm-hmm. or if they do, that's not a friend, right? So yeah. it's, it's a real, it's real tough. And I think, uh, Sam Harris was talking to himself. Uh, and he talked yeah. himself into that. And I think there's a similar problem with Hitchens. Hitchens is super, was super smart, really good at making arguments, very good at debating people. Um, mm-hmm. and it was hard to find s- someone who could, you know, talk him down out of his ideas. I yeah. uh, probably in his peer group. It's hard to say because I'm not his peer. I was seeing this from the outside. Um, but, uh, it is, a, it, it's like, it's hard. It's very hard to see, I guess, how you get there. But I think it's it's something along those lines. And that's what, what I was saying to Paul is like, I can see how Paul's day is going throughout the day because he it, he treats it like mm-hmm. a, a commonplace book. Every every twitch of uh, the boss shows up on on the page, and it's not yeah. like I'm monitoring it continuously. But because I am on Twitter, putting my own stuff up there, I see his stuff too. Yeah. So, but it, 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 how do we get to, uh, you know, cheering for war? And that, that they're thinking, I'm not cheering for war, but that's how everybody was during the, uh, you know, 9-11 war and the mm-hmm. second Gulf War. And it's like, dudes, what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah. I think having some sort of principles and always going back to them and saying, wait, is this a good principle? Because otherwise you, you are subject to whatever whims and twitches, uh, mm-hmm. of the information coming. It, it, it is so important. Like just talk, uh, hearing talk in the background chatter, this, that, and the other thing, you know, uh, yeah, I guess that's what I was. Rem- I'm reminded now of where where our little beef was. Where was it? Our little friendly one. I was what, trying to. Stroll. I guess Too I right. was trying to wonder. Uh, this was all in DMs. So yes. Like, go on, and find them on Twitter. I, I'm but tr- trying to find it's them. like I'm not. I'm not sure if you're like, like, you you're anti-war, and yeah, generally. But, I mean, I, I, don't, I, understand I don't know what the there would what be some the, circumstances. Yeah. So. If I if I say like Putin was bamboozled into war, I mean that's probably the best case scenario, right? Like that he was. Well, you said forced into it, right? Yeah, I mean he's but forced by not here, being it, a pacifist. Yeah, but that's that's like a. So you're in the realm of real politik. I guess yeah. that was my question. Is yeah. like on one level you seem to accept real politik because once yeah. you told me like, well, oh, Taiwan I, will eventually just have to accept China's power and and yeah. unify with them or or you know, Putin's making decisions as a, you know, out of na- out of national interest and, and self interest. Yeah, yeah, because he wants to be well, leader and he has to care about the whims of his people. 
Yeah, so it's – but when the U.S. behaves in real politic ways, you're, you're quick to criticize. Well, um, that's my that, I, 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 you could say make the same dis, just determination about the U.S. as a great power doing things that yeah. great powers do so, historically. Here's a, so uh, that doesn't seem to be a, a strong anti-war position. That seems to be real politique. Well, I guess that's uh, here's, But you, you seem to have an exception for the U.S., it's more about proportionality, right? So, like, uh, when I go around the world and I look at military bases, and I was talking about this with one of my uncles who, you know, he's a mainstream news guy, so it's really hard. Um, he, you know, how many military bases are where? And, you know, I was like, ours, Canada's practically the only country in the U.S. military uh, system, the Western, you know, alliance system, that doesn't have massive occupation right, by military bases. There's barely any. There's like a couple of joint Air Force bases or something like that, right? It's very minimal. Um, and the reason is we're so goddamn trusted. We do everything they want. And the example is like, uh, it looks like, and it's so fucking hard to tell, um, that we're going to extend copyright another fucking 20 years. The reason yeah. that happened was because Donald Trump re- renegotiated the uh, uh, free trade between Mexico, Canada, United States, and uh, there's pressure, right? And the NDP, as weak as they fucking are, those weak, weak ass fucks, they are, are apparently agreeing to support everything um, as long as they get mm-hmm. dental care. And the dental care that's rolling out is pretty fucking weak. It's starting with children. Which is, it's something, I guess, but that's not how you get, you, you gotta roll it out power. And so the reason yeah. that's happening is not because, uh, the domestic copyright industry in Canada needs to extend copyright. That's not why. It's because we're so fucking weak. We do what our boss tells us. And that's, that's, that's not a military power. That's a, uh, you know, influence power. But, Going against the states is is bad for can uh, for Canadian politicians, right? You get in trouble. So that's a good example. Is like that's wielding power. Russia doesn't do that to Canada. China would probably love to uh, influence Canada's uh, political system, and they are trying, but their hand is weak compared to the U.S. So it's not that, you know, China can't do anything wrong or Russia can't do anything wrong. But uh, the big neighbor next to us is doing things to us way more. And it's not just because they're our neighbor. It's because they are the world power and we are their fucking lackey. Yeah. But I I do think we're moving towards a more multipolar world where where there's... We get to choose. I'm, I'm not... There's talking about like uh, India, well, I'm not convinced Iran, that's good because the last Brazil. time we had multipolar. Again, I don't know, but the last time we had multipolar, well, multipolar world, it was a like disaster. No, no, Cold War, Cold War was. No, I, I'm thinking multipolar, like it would oh. be like in late 19th century or early mm. 20th century. Yeah, I mean, war's not going away. They just don't call it war anymore, except when other people do it, right? Um, 
So it, there's there's potential danger there. I agree with you. Yeah. But um, it's not like uh, there has been a Pax Americana that has prevented the deaths of millions, right? It's well, every pa- every Pax is a myth, right? Yes, Britannica just exported it to the. I mean, one of the bloodiest civil wars in human history, the Taiping Rebellion happened during the so-called Pax Britannica. Yeah, and you know there was no Roman peace either. It was just an internal kind of stability. Yeah, for a while, but that didn't mean there wasn't border wars and and, and things like that. But maybe or, border or wars are conflict. Maybe those are better because. <laughs> You know, like the the way it is now, uh, you can do a war for twenty years, um, and it's just a way to milk the cow, right? It's kind of like there's no there's no purity of, um, of you know gaining things other than domestically. It's yeah. fucking awful, and I guess I guess you get lower gas prices and lower lithium prices, uh, but probably not. It's about well, not if not if you're consuming them in the war industry. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, there's that too. But the, it, it is it is right now. It's it's a way to milk the cow. Right? But it might be an issue of, of of late capitalism too, where yeah, where war is a way to spend the surplus production. It's a way to get out of the well. There's a there, rate of profit, right? At least that's the Marxist kind of take on it, is you get declining rates of profit, so you take over prisons, you privatize schools, you um, you start to consume those sectors, and when that runs out, I mean, there's always a war, right? Yeah. War is a way to continue to sell. But it's... Which I think that would be really the end stage is when, when if if the rumors that Russia's running out of weapons is true, the U.S. just has to start selling to Russia. There's a a lot of, like, propaganda. Like, you know, they're saying, oh, they're using T-62s now because they ran out of T-72s. And and one of those uh, guys who shows up very sporadically on CNN or whatever, former... Joint Chiefs of Staff guys, and no, they're rolling out T-80s now, right? They got, yeah, and you they can got lots. Revamp old equipment. They got lots. The they got lots of tanks. Don't worry. Um, um, but let's just say they are, uh, and then the U.S. the U.S. should sell to uh, um, Russia and. <laughs> I mean, I that, mean that'd be the most profitable like response. I mean, that's your theory, right? Why isn't the U.S. Brokering a peace, it's because there's too much money to be made for the war. Oh, uh, come on, is that is that really uh, as uh, are we only going to call that a theory? Well, no, we're not because right. it's a, just a fact, right? Yeah, we're agreed on that. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, my problem is uh, I don't want World War Three. I don't think seeing people roasted alive is good. I think those yeah. are bad things. Um, if if it was a drone war where only consumer goods were being destroyed, right? One drone versus another drone, and somehow they could still keep the idea that this is uh this is fear. Because uh, I mean, ultimately, I think the reason government American capitalism doesn't uh go into lead pipe replacement instead of foreign wars is because you can generate fear of of foreigners much better than you can generate fear of lead pipes. The reason you can, I mean, 
it's they seem to do it with cops, right? They say we need more cops because of crime. Um, so we can spend money on cops, but they can't seem to do it for like schools or bridges or uh, anything that would be useful. Industries like whole, yeah. in, you know, like privatize it, not private, public, public, public nationalizing, I guess. Um, whole industries. We call them crown corporations here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need more crown corporations is my solution. Just plow, plow money into buying up industries. Yeah. Uh, and th- it's a good way well, that's, to. So that's what we, the, well, that's how the U.S. should be using its military. And, and uh, World too, War II, like as, like as Army a, Corps engineers kind of thing. Right. But World War II really put money into people's hands, not just, you know, a small elite. It put money into people's hands and reading, reading all these pulp magazines. What do you see in between the stories is buy war bonds, buy this kind of bonds. It was a way to put money into the hands of people so that they were not disaffected and angry at their incompetent governments. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think there's, uh, a f- major fundamental disagreement uh, between us on what's happening. But I, I guess the fundamental disagreement might be that I'm, I think there's plenty of blame on multiple sides for this conflict. But you don't blame, you don't blame the, the guy who's knocked on the ground unconscious, uh, for continuing the fight compared to the guy who's still punching people, right? There's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, Central yeah. American states that are, <laughs> are not in the, this fight no, anymore. No, but we're talking about a particular conflict. Yeah. Like, that's like Ukraine? Ukraine, yeah. Okay. So I, I don't think, like, it, like, I guess I don't quite understand how you can, how someone who's from an anti-war perspective could not essentially blame Putin for the decision to go to war. Well, uh, it's, I, it's, I think it, unless it, you say he was bamboozled, I mean, that's, yeah, but bamboozled bamboos- makes it sound like he didn't know what was happening. I, I guess that's true in the sense that he thought that there would be more reasonable people and really what else could he do? Right. So one of, one of the facts I brought up to Paul, um, well, he, he could, he, he could, he could accept NATO in Ukraine as an, as, as the worst case scenario. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, he could, right? That's that'd be that if he was. They want, but the way that it, seems worse. That seems better. That's a better outcome than than losing a war or causing a nuclear war. But if they, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that's like saying, you know, why, why does why does North Korea need nuclear weapons? They could just accept. American domination. And that's yeah. true. They could. But they I could, think yeah, I'm uh, saying that's an option. But I, I I'm on on and that might be I'm on team no- North Korea because I the way I talk, I think about it and I talk about it is they're not occupied. You know, there's no Chinese military bases in North Korea. Yeah, they have to listen to the Chinese. But they're not occupied. It's a free country. Yeah, they have a king. Sad story. So do we or so do I. <laughs> right? That's bad. 
I agree. But uh, no, uh, Koreans want to be united and they are prevented from that by American occupation in the South. If the Americans, you know, unilaterally left South Korea, what would happen? It would unify. I don't know how, but it wouldn't be a uh, one-sided, um, uh, you know, North Korea takes over South Korea and becomes a evil uh, communistic dictatorship. That wouldn't be what would happen because, yeah, may, there might be even be a civil war, but it wouldn't be um, uh, a slaughter to the last person because there is genuine affection on the part of a, a lot of South Koreans for reunification. They, they, it's been well cultivated, right? Um, I don't know that it would. I, th- I, I, I guess it's, it sounds to me that might be more on the table in Korea than, than like where I am. Yeah. They have uh, almost I, no I, support. Yeah. I have no, no real grasp. I, I, I do know Taiwanese people, but not like the way I know Korean people, you know? Um, and, uh, a lot of the, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, um, an expert on, but, but thinking about the way Hong Kong is, right? Um, Hong Kong is part of China now. People don't like it. Some people are upset with it. There's definitely, uh, agitation to keep it sort of Western. Um, some of that's, uh, outside and a lot of it's domestic, uh, within Hong Kong, but it's not really my business. And uh, I don't think they're going to go around slaughtering people. I don't think this is a uh, a genocide uh, situation. I think it's going to be some uncomfortableness, and we'll we'll see what happens, what shakes out. So, yeah, I I, I don't even know anything about what's going on with Macau. I have no idea. But well, Macau is really small. It's just like compared, you know, yeah. It's but, like a but a there. Square I think it's barely that, and it's. I mean, it's kind of, it's got some financial stuff, but they, the other thing is that they were as far back as this, like the fifties and sixties essentially handed over. I mean, it was, mm. like, there was almost no, like the integration process had been going on for a while. So smoother there than in, in Hong Kong. My understanding. Yeah. I, uh, uh, like, I barely yeah, know anybody from Macau. There's a lot more Chinese influence going back to the sixties. I'm I'm for uh peaceful transition so we can get some cool movies out of uh China slash Macau slash Hong Kong and you know that I'm uh, you know it's objectively horrifying to see people being roasted alive. So I'm against it. On the other hand, I understand sometimes um people need to get a can of gasoline poured over themselves and see themselves roasted alive so that it shocks the conscience or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but taking it, taking it personally, like Paul is, um, I think it's, it's gotta be something about, it's like he, he doesn't like, he didn't respond to any of the facts. Like I was talking about how Crimea he was talking about, you know, the country being carved up. And I'm like, you know, Crimea's got a long history with both mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine and the Soviet Union. And, like, in 1954, they gave 
Russia stripped off the oblast of Crimea and gave it to Ukraine for like a 300th anniversary party of or gift of a war that, you know, was preceding the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Like that's like the reason you do that is because you're saying we're one big happy nation, right? (laughs) Not because well, a a union of nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're one big happy collective of Soviets, right? Um, And it was it was like a symbolic gesture more than anything else, and it was a very strategic place. Uh, you know, Crimean War, <laughs> Florence Nightingale and all, all that shit. Like, people want to control shit. I get it. Um, but if the people there are getting killed, you know, 14,000 people were shelled, uh, since 2014. And then, you know, they do, well, that's, that's when Crimea was taken back. And then you've got the shelling of the people in the Donbass. It's like, this was, you call that bamboozled? <sighs> I, um, I don't think that's bamboozled. No, I, I think... I think if, it's something, but it's not bamboozled. Well, the American you're, people you're were get, bamboozled. You're, you're, you're kind of on the side here of ethnic irredentism and, and ethno, ethno-nationalism. Yeah, I guess so, but when uh, they, they literally have Nazis, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, um, the, and the Nazis are prominent and they are given weapons and they are killing people and Nazis have a tendency to kill people who are outside their ethnic group. I know that there's some problems with this with regards to Zelensky being a Jew and, and you know, there's, it is not German Nazism exactly. Um, but they're doing the salute. (laughs) They've got the tattoos uh, they are uh, ultra natu- nationalists, um, and they are tr- trying to bring people who are not their they they don't consider their their nationality uh, to heal at the very worst. I don't think it, I don't think there was a plan for concentration camps that would uh, or death camps, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the effect was. It, it was very similar to why, you know, the Serbs were aligned with the, uh, the Russians. This, there's pan Slavic whatever yeah. during World War One, right? <laughs> More fool the, uh, the Tsar, I guess, for responding to the will of the nation or that feeling of feather, fellow, whatever. Yeah. So. I, I, it goes beyond language though, right? There, there's, it's funny because, um, one of the, there was a video, a uh, little, s- uh, screenshot of, um, four guys giving Nazi salutes and you can't see on their uniform any Ukraine, uh, badges. It's just not there. Um, but looking at their, their camouflage, it's a Ukraine style. Uh, looking at their weapons, they're carrying AKs, uh, AK-74s, AK-47s, um, various, you know, Soviet slash Ukrainian weapons. But they also have an MG-42 or uh, MG-3, which is a German uh, Nazi weapon if it's World War II era. 
and an MG3 is a NATO version of the MG42. And it's not like they're, they had captured it. Or if they had, you know, that'd be surprising. But people are saying they're Russians. And like, there are probably some Russian Nazis because there's a lot of people there. But they're not. They're Ukrainian. And the way to, uh, I was thinking, well, maybe we can figure this out. So I, I screenshotted the, the bandle, uh, the gun strap that had word, a word on it. And I did the, you know, translation. And it just says October. <laughs> right? I couldn't read the other one. But it says October in Ukrainian and Russian. It's the same word in both languages. Yeah. Using, like, so is it ethnic thing? Is it language thing? It's a culture thing? I don't know. Taiwanese are different from Chinese. That's my understanding. Ethnically, but I the, guess the that's Chinese true. Chinese claims are are somewhat historic. They they make historical claims. Yeah, it's also ethnic irredentism, and I don't I generally yeah. don't think that's a good thing. Yeah, I I um, don't. I, want... I just think self determination is is best. I agree. And, I don't want Americans certainly, coming I, I in think Canada. Ukraine should to take over. Allow those regions to to vote if they want to leave. Oh, 100%. That's that's, that's my And solution. that's but literally what think, happened, right? That being denied them is a justification for is justification for war. Well, yeah, that's my burden. Yeah, but at some point we both agree that war is uh the inevitable terrible Bad, worst choice that you have to choose because there's worse choices. We're not uh, ultimate only peace guys, right? But anti, you can be anti-war and also uh, think that sometimes war is the solution because the other solutions yeah. are worse. So but I, I'm not going to have too much sympathy for either side if it's, if it's ethnic nationalism on both sides. Yeah, no, it's it, but it's particularly it's particularly egregious when they're Nazis. And yeah, uh, there there are there are reasons to think Ukrainians had it bad, right under the Soviets. There are reasons to think that. Um, but that was a long time ago, and we can't solve mm-hmm. that uh, except by doing our best to avoid giving Nazis weapons, because Nazis bad. <laughs> Most people. Most people used yeah. to agree to that. Not just like two years ago. Everybody's like, Nazi's bad. Even like, you know, New York Times is saying, Ukraine has a Nazi problem. <laughs> and now, you know, they're heroes. Get, John Stewart mm-hmm. gave a, uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazi, uh, uh, trophy at Disney World. <laughs> and they, he had one of those, um, arm covering things. It's not a, uh, shirt. It's like a sleeve that goes from your wrist to your shoulder. Um, and he, he pretty much had to have that because if he didn't, um, John Stewart might notice that he has Nazi stuff on his arm and then he might question what he's doing because he is pretty much explicitly anti-Nazi at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Do we have any other beefs that we need to wrestle about? Um, I don't know. Anything good you've been talking about when I haven't been on? Mm. Oh, we did. Uh, I just recorded a, or not recorded. You missed um, us talking about the Temple of Death by A.C. Benson. Did you read that? Mm-hmm. No. Nope. Uh, oh, damn. Um, really interesting story about um, 
O'Connor recorded it. It's uh, from 1903. It's about a um, uh, Christian who is walking through Cornwall uh, looking for converts, and he finds himself in a a temple of death, uh, local religion, basically some sort of um, temple of Diana slash temple of Pan, uh, local religion, and uh, got a real deep deep conversation with it. Very interesting because it is uh, going deep into the Christian philosophy and stuff like that. So you would have uh, you would have enjoyed that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I don't know what else is going on. My mom has three cows. Oh, you wanted me to explain that tweet. Which one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Said, I didn't understand. No, it's because the, the original tweet was capitalism absolutely did win over communism. Uh, and then, and this is someone I follow. Who is, who is this person? Taiwan. Uh, she, she reports on Taiwan, China. Oh, oh yeah, stuff, yeah. I saw so that I in the bio. So capitalism actually did win over communism. Basically, no one in the world wants to collectivize our farms anymore. But the battle between democratic capitalism and authoritarian, authoritarian capitalism rages on. Now, the last part is true, I guess. But the evidence here of why capitalism won over communism is that no one wants to collectivize farms anymore. So my reply was... Uh, Basically, nobody wants, in the world wants 10-year-olds in mines, workhouses, or capital punishment for property crimes. Guess that means communism, absolutely, one over capitalism. So you're, you just take one aspect yeah. of communism, yeah. which is not necessarily, it's just a small part of it. Uh, actually, the collectivization of farms. I've been done by corporations. Is, yeah, that's the second point. But the first point is that was an effort to solve the problem of development, you know, how to mm. develop your economy rapidly. And, you know, and you could look to, like, the American West and say, if you had these big bonanza farms, like, it seems to have worked in raising the standard of living and in raising the productive capacity of the country, all that, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and then the other hand is what you just said, is like, you know, if you, these huge farms run by corporations, where people are working as wage laborers on them, how is that not a collective farm? I mean, it's various. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar. It might be the, the Soviet-style collective farms might actually be better because there's still at least the concept that the peasant class own that land through the nation or, or through the collective. So, anyways, the point I was just making was that you can't. You're looking at one aspect of what communism is and saying no one does that anymore. Asterix, yeah, people do it, but yeah, it's just corporations do it. it. It doesn't mean capitalism won over communism. If you want to make the case that capitalism won over communism, you could just say, yeah, look at the world today. We have global capitalism. Yes, we but do. I'm not sure the debate is won, I guess. I guess that's what I think. Yeah, it, it didn't seem like uh, it logically followed. Um. Part of the problem uh, that that's part of the problem with your tweets is uh, it is almost like you're autistic because I I'm like what does he mean? Um, there's a, always a biting satire in your tweets. I think I think mm-hmm. I I don't think you ever like uh, you don't ever like tweet um, uh, going for a walk. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Or if you did, it would be after somebody uh, somebody said something, and then you're making fun of that. 
Your tweets are... I guess, no, you put out the, you know, podcast, just out tweet. Yeah. Um, what? I get in trouble on Slack for this sometimes, too. What? Uh, being fighting satire? Being guy? a bit sarcastic. Being sarcastic, a bit sarcastic. Yeah. And then people not really following. Yeah, it's... Um, you have to... You, it's, uh, it, it is, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, and, uh, I, I, there was one thing, um, I, this is kind of interesting. I just, I, I, I tweeted it, you, uh, the remark that I noticed, and then I did a thread on it. Um, the fact that in the conversation I was having with Paul, two people mm-hmm. popped in, three, three people popped in to say things. Um, and, it's not like it was DM, so it wasn't meant to be private or anything, but it was like a comment thread on, I was the only guy who commented on him doing a video. The, the video was, or no, it was, um, yeah, it was a video of tanks being blown. Oh, not tanks, a column of trucks being oh, blown yeah. up. And his GIF reaction video was, what was it? It's a Darth somebody from Star Wars. Some Star Wars thing. Uh, and he says, more. And I'm like, that's fucking sick. Or I just said, that's sick. Um, mm-hmm. So it got into a long thread, right? But um, two, of the, two of the three people mentioned puppies. Like, sad puppies? I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, uh, it'd be like mentioning the moon landing. <laughs> During this, like it's completely unrelated. So I was thinking about why that was. I, uh, I'm like, I think that it, like it broke people's brains in the same way that Trump did, you know, like it, some people like they have, it's called Trump derangement syndrome, right? Yeah, I barely know this sad puppies thing. I think you tried to explain it. To no, me. I got it from Paul. I never heard of it. I, 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 I went back well, and looked the first time. No, we, you mentioned it before the sad puppies. Only I only learned about it through Paul. Yeah, so, but so you didn't 20... learn about it just this week. This week, you learned no, 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 no. But yeah, I, 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 I have no personal experience with it. I'm I, like people say this. This account is puppy adjacent, and that's actually some one of the links. Somebody said this is a uh, explanation for why the gas link Nord Stream was an accident. I'm like, mm-hmm. and they said this is puppy adjacent for what it's worth, or something like like. What the fuck? <laughs> like you have to tar the source before you you put it out. Okay, fine. well you're critical of the Hugos, and I think weren't the puppies somehow? Yeah, yeah, they're they were of the Hugos. Yeah, yeah, they were process. But uh, but so. this was not related to the Hugos. This was about no Ukraine. But I mean that's why you're getting called. Uh, yeah, somebody somebody said you should be out of. Uh, I want you out of fandom, or I wish you were out of fandom. And it was, it was basically, and then other people were calling me idiots and like, I'm not offended because, you know, they're angry and upset and hurt. But why do, uh, like, my account doesn't say anything about puppies in it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't think I've ever read a puppy book. <laughs> I, I've never read a Larry Korea book. I believe he's puppy related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> looking at the Wikipedia entry. So why is this still being talked about? It ended, I looked it up. It ended in 2017. So that's five, four years ago. Well, five years ago? Five years ago. Um, why are people still talking about it? Trump's not in office. Why are they still, you know, saying this is Trumpist or what? Well, like, 
it broke, literally broke people's brains. And the only thing I could think of is these are people who have never experienced any kind of trauma, like, like physical trauma or emotional trauma. And it hurt them so centrally to their core that they're treating it like it was a trauma. Like, you know, like it's a little kid who gets a, you know, a skin knee and they start crying and it's, everything's horrible because that's the only experience of, of negativity they've ever had. But it, that can't be it, can it? And if not, um, what the fuck else explains it? I don't know if, I think you were, I don't know. I look at it just that you were being, um. I was, I was being cruel to Paul. into okay. the conversation because you were your puppy adjacent from fans, from the fandom. Obviously, Maybe it's my account name has SFF. Yeah. But they're looking to attack. They're looking to attack and hurt me. Or no, one of them was. No, the other one was just mentioning that it was puppy adjacent. Like, I, 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 they were drawn in because Paul did a quote tweet of something, right? And probably people saw that and, a lot of people who follow Paul are uh, into science fiction and fantasy, which makes sense. He's got like 7,000 followers or something. But even so, like bringing, bringing up something like inter- – it's almost like it's a party issue. There's the uh, puppy people or puppy adjacent people, even though apparently ended in 2017. Uh, and then there's the – SJW woke people, uh, pronoun bio people, or whatever. I don't know. I, I I just don't get it. It it's bizarre. Yeah, I think that that back and forth is a little bizarre. But I think Paul thinks this war is pretty black and white. Yeah, and and from his perspective, good and evil. But it's, the problem, it's a good thing. What, you know. Yeah, defending themselves. You know, we need to help. You shouldn't yeah. carve up countries, blah, blah, blah. Uh, not so blah, blah, I, blah. I, yeah. I wouldn't jump to the, I wouldn't say sick. That would have been my response to that. Dude. It's a little weird using the Star Wars, uh, yeah, gift. It, it was calling, for, it was calling for more. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I, I, like seeing a guy, you know, on fire coming out of a, uh, a truck mm-hmm. is not cool. And, you know, I, I, maybe I'm over empathizing with a guy being on fire in a truck, but yeah. the video was, you know, it was delighting in it. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like, uh, I mean, I'm just I, saying there's, there's no reason to be shocked that Paul presented it that way. Uh, no, I was shocked. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was like, cause I, you know, I know he's not a peacenik either, like peace at all costs, mm-hmm. but, um, the level of propaganda that, you know, makes you think seeing people burned alive over what is essentially milking the cow is horrif- horrifying. You know, I, uh, there are lots of nice people. Uh, there's one lady, a lot of boomers who have Ukraine flags on their lawn or Ukraine signs or f- literal flags flying above their things you know bc fairies has you stand with ukraine ads on their video is horrible uh because they don't and it's sort of unthinking praise um i can understand not putting the opposite up you know stand with russia (laughs) because you know that's 
that'd be uh, an extreme position. Um, on the other hand, uh, why are we on the one side and and you know, like every fact that I brought to, brought to the conversation, Paul ignored, like the Boris Johnson stuff, the uh, Crimea stuff the 14,000 people being shelled stuff. It's like, it wasn't in, it was like, it was tarred because it was not in the official news reporting. And they're like, it, it, I think that's how you end up with people rooting for Nazis, right? Is just sort of minimize the Nazis and emphasize, you know, we can't trust those evil Russians. I've, 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 t- I've tried to explain like to, just to myself, I guess, and to students, um, like why there's so much anti-Russian hatred in the States, even after the, you know, Soviets are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it still goes on, right? With all the, uh, you know, Soviets, uh, communism conflating and, uh, Ukraine. Well, I guess my, my view, I think, you know, my view, it's like, I, I think, you think it was a good thing. Yeah. I think the Soviet union was a good thing. Yeah. And, and, Russia is pretty horrible. Yeah. Well, so I, I agree. The, it was the, the, the hostility to the Soviet Union during the Cold War was the misguided one. Yeah. But I'm more sympathetic to anti-Russian thought today just because it's a. But, uh, you know, it's you can be authoritarian capitalist regime. And, yeah. But you yeah. can be. Um, yeah, it is, it's both those things. Absolutely. Authoritarian and capitalist. I don't know. We we can uh, do a show on a nude book if you like. Yeah. Since I I don't think we're getting uh uh Alex, let me just check. I don't see him listed there. No. Okay. All right. Um, I have a recorder going, but um, it was after Skype. It's probably fine. It was after a Skype update. So, um, let me. Oh, I have one thing on my phone. An Ori hit thing I found. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Oh, God. I've got two ad blocker browsers on my phone, and one is awesome, and the other one's okay. But I like having multiples. Um, I'll send this to you, and then maybe we'll read some from it. Copy. Where's the copy link? There it is. There we go. Sometimes the whole world stinks. <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page? Apparently not. I didn't look. Ori hit. Hi. Oh, yeah, he does now. (laughs) So whenever this... uh, Somebody probably took most of this this, uh, personal blog and uh, turned it into a Wikipedia entry. Yeah, he he wrote a lot, and he. Oh, let's let's uh, start first before we talk about uh, that. Okay. All right.